Okay, this is session number five of the McLuhan on Maui Monday Night Seminars, or Colloquia, and it's March 28th, 2011, starting uh, Hawaii time. It's just before 1.30 in the afternoon. Okay, so, uh, so okay, Sheila and Carol... We're having a free-for-all right now. We have no guests yet. Maybe a guest later. What did you want to know, Sheila, or what did Carol say? Oh, Carol, talked, you go ahead and say what you said, Carol, and then... Oh, I'm not sure what I said. I mean, I was just saying that I do agree with McLuhan, but I do also think that there's a bigger picture of that left-right male-female thing that hasn't been... Um, completely balanced out yet. And well, okay. Yes, well, look, look, look. You're saying yeah. a bigger picture. The bigger picture is how uh, McLuhan says the internet is making us neither right nor left hemisphere able to fl- work in both. Uh, oh, I so th- what? Yeah. I think you're talking about the concept of left and right hemisphere. That theory and how that's incomplete. Well, I don't know, Bob. I kind of see it in real life, though. I see it. See in what? Practice. See what? You see the internet turning everybody into corporate close and interval people? No, I see no. the fact that that the, um, uh, for lack of better way of putting it, and I don't mean to offend anybody by saying you that. can offend people. We're mature. Yeah. We're not afraid of words here. <laughs> but but basically, the male dominance is still pretty much in total control. And okay, now here, Carol, that's because Western women are made left, have been made left hemisphere for 500 years, and they feel the impulse to take over because there's a right hemisphere favoritism in the new electric environment, but they are up against their own conditioning, not from interpersonal emotional things, but from the environment themselves that made them left hemisphere. And when they do take over, they continue the left hemisphere mode. Yes, and that's what I'm saying, Bob, exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that that's the issue that I see is that women are still being left-brained or male male in their ability. They're being Westerners. Right. Well, Forget I don't the male, know if it's Western, Bob. No, no, that's I mean, the point. We're, we're talking McLuhan. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. You're made left hemisphere if you grew up in an industrial environment. Yes, there is a movement afoot now, though, that's, uh, to, to change that. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, it's not going to work. It's not going to work because we're now corpus callosum, and it's neither hemisphere that's involved. You've got to well, be Bob, digitally chip, right. chip body. Bob, 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 no, Bob, be, Bob. wait a minute. This is, I agree with you, but I agree with you for different reasons in a certain kind of way. Uh, the way that I see it, like I can associate it also with astrology, like really – big in stuff with astrology uh, and I don't necessarily think we need to go into that but basically no we want what we do here is analyze why societies developed the concept of astrology why they emphasize the eye when writing came in where societies before the eye wouldn't even think of astrology or astronomy that's the the level we're talking about here well, I don't know. It's been around for a very, very long time. I would... <laughs> yeah, no, look, speech has been around. We're talking about societies based on gesture and speech. They could not see anything. They couldn't even see their feet. Right. Well, they, you know, Because they were non-visual. 
It's only yeah. when the when the, the writing, the runes, and early systems of syllabaries and the writing started to make people get extended and look and develop what the eye was uh, noticing because it was being affected by the environment of writing. Okay, then they formed the me. systems of astronomy. Okay, you got to give me a half hour because I'm going to go have dinner and I have to have dinner. But I right. Well, so back. what's that last? What's your last line about that? What my, I just said. And my last thought is this: on that is that yes. I agree with what you're saying, but I feel that there is a bigger overall influence. And yes, we are moving into that middle place where there is going to be. Okay, so McLuhan says there's no bigger influence. Here's the point. McLuhan says that, well, we're trying to understand what McLuhan's saying. The media of communication that the society uses is bigger than anything that you might conceive as bigger. It's way bigger the effective right. printing press than any idea you could come up with. That's I'm what he coming. said. I got it. I've got to go. Okay. I will be All back. Right. I'll be back. All right. All right. Okay, Sheila. Yes. Uh, oh. I, I find it very interesting um, about the, um, you know, the um, right. Talk about the change. You said there's it's changing yeah, no, now. So what is it? What, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. Uh, I find it interesting that you say, oh, well, the female can't dominate because now we're in the interval. Well, that's the perfect thing because we are moving towards super consciousness. And in super uh, consciousness, when we're talking, to, I don't know if it's super conscious, we're going necessarily into a different consciousness because we have a different media environment. It's that simple. And w- will our culture be able to adapt or will, will it matter that we can adapt? Uh, here's a sample I think of. Adam Agoyan, you've heard of that Canadian filmmaker? Yes, yes. He, I read an article a few months ago. He went to the local Toronto theater with his teen kid, I think, teenager, and yeah. he goes there to see these movies. He was shocked at his son's friends. They did not really pay attention to the movie. They just texted and talked in the theater. And he, he was shocked because he values movies. That's his art. And he said, my God, the kids coming up now don't even care about what's being said. It's their reaction to it and how they react to each other uh, was the uh, shocking dynamic he saw in his son. And he said, I was an alienated kid. A lot of Generation X were alienated kids, the, the ones who were, whatever you call it, into private creativity or something. And he doesn't see his son being that kind of alienated kid. And he was stunned by it. That, to me, is an example of, since I don't have kids, so I don't know what's going on, but hearing that thing, I'm assuming that's happening to kids all over the country, and that... They don't think in genders. I don't, they probably don't think of anything in chemical body terms. And they're constantly demanding instant response from each other. And they don't receive a packaged environment like a movie. They're not interested. They're, interested in, they're addicted to interaction. And that certainly would be a genderless situation. So the media is making the kids' difference. And it's so really, what you're seeing, yeah. Sheila, is going to come in inevitably as long as we keep the Internet here. Yes, it's very interesting to, you know, ponder where that all will lead. It's, it's, I'm exposed to it. I have a lot of nieces and nephews, and not only that, but in the environment movement, I'm surrounded by young people. And well, I'm what I'm saying, do, have you noticed? Give us some evidence or, yes, or data. Yes, that's what I'm, I'm going to go on to say is okay. that um, the, the business of talking while something is done. I, I, I have uh, witnessed this in some high-level meetings where there will be a speaker making some points that you need to hear. And I've had young people at the table talking, not whispering, but carrying a conversation on together. Not even being polite about it. 
and commenting while the whole thing is going on to the point that you can't hear what is being said. <laughs> and then you say, you ask them to be quiet and they're confused. <laughs> it hasn't occurred to them. <laughs> no. You know, they're like, well, we didn't do anything, you know. <laughs> so there's a deafness going on. See, the acoustic part, which normal speech society understands, you give and take in speech, they are not acoustic. They're tactile or extended into tactility and don't know that people should respond tactile, um, acoustically. They are probably so involved in eye contact and gesture interacting that they don't notice the loudness of their voice or anybody else around them. Yes, they're also used to being bombarded with numerous media at once. That's right. And they can actually probably hear what the speaker is saying. You can't. You're older conditioning, but they may be able to hear it while talking. Oh, possibly, quite possibly. Um, Was I there any know. indication of that? I wonder about how their thought processes develop. This is the only Here's thing. an idea I just got right now, Sheila. They do not respect monologue or some, if someone's talking and there's no obvious face interacting with it, it's not real. <laughs> so they require facial interaction. Facebook, they need to see facial interaction. Then that's happening. But they don't see why they should listen to that guy. He's talking to nobody. Yeah, they, maybe. They, and, and the thing that you probably would not experience too much, uh, Bobby, is the, the whole way that texting is, is affecting everything. Because you right. go into a room full of people, and the kids are continuing totally to text all the while that you're together. Let's say you're at a family gathering. They're texting all the time. Now, most of the time, they can sort of keep up with the conversation, but it is, it is different. What they yeah, because to, you want to match. You're a print person. You want them to hear what you say, consider it, and then respond based on it. Not a vague, what we call phatic, just half-listening and it sounds like they are not in their chemical body. They do not understand speech. One chemical body talks to another. They have to be in the whole environment, like a beehive. They have to keep in the texting buzz all the time. They do. They do. And the thing is, they, I, I, you know, uh, what happens is they won't respond to their parents or anything, even when their parents call them on their cell. They don't respond to calls anymore. But they'll respond to anybody, anywhere, anytime if they text them. Okay, what's, what's, I have an iPhone, but I never use it. I don't have any need to use it or any, any requirement. But what is the difference between calling and texting? Well, texting is a message that you type. And one of the reasons that they do it is because it's a whole lot cheaper to text than it is to call. But oh, they can okay, also, okay. But they can also communicate with more people that way. And they like have a group, a group like we're doing here. They can have group texting going on. Oh, like they could be involved in this conversation. Meanwhile, their friends could be texting them wherever they are. And right, they and could, their eye is glancing over and, and probably really good at just getting the point of what was just visually texted while talking to us. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that the parents are absolutely, you know, they're finding themselves quite powerless to keep the kids away from their phones, like they right, they and, and in our culture, or maybe in most cultures, the big issue is how are the kids having making having sex or not? And so I heard the other week about sexting or text sex texting sexting. Oh. They're now normally sending pictures of their of their nudity to each other. Oh, you know, I see. Just, yeah, the story. The, someone told me that 
you know, the, the guy or girl wants to brag that they had sex with somebody, and they prove it by showing pictures of your partner naked. That means oh, you were I with see. them and took a picture, and that's part of normal social communication now. Oh, yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah, but it's the sexy. Thing that, so, the thing that I wonder is I, I don't know about how they are developing their, their thinking and their analytical processes. Okay, but you got to look at that. You have to say, what cultural and technologies do I prefer? Are they going to be able to interact with those technologies? And you and you have to recognize, well, are your technologies you want them to be able to interact with as relevant in the one that they're doing now in the present? Because they take to the latest technologies instantly anyways. That's what kids do. Yeah, I'm not saying that I'm favoring any certain thing. I'm saying that I... I can't imagine what is happening with their thinking processes and their analytical capabilities. Right. Hi, if it's Ginny. Oh, good. Thanks, Ginny. You have something to say? Yeah, I was just going to make a comment that if you, um, because we grew up in a literate world in a book kind of an environment, we do favor analysis and imagination and all those other kinds of things. No, no, not analysis of imagination, a particular kind of analysis of imagination. I'm citing McLuhan dogma. Each sense has a different imagination, a different form of analysis. So you wouldn't use those terms to be overarching everything. Okay. But it, it, I guess it's just the same kind of difference to say, if you have a dog and you raise your dog on a lake, because of the environment, it adapts one kind of behavior. If you have a dog and you raise a dog in the city, it adapts one kind of, kind of behavior, and the dog's whole structure responds to that environment. It's about the environment. Their, their capacity to engage won't rely on it. They won't have to be how we've been. That's what I'm trying to say to Sheila. They won't be the way we've been because they can't be. Yeah. They have to be the environment be. they're thrown into. Yes, right. and so I what happens is, I'm what not happens is adults make kids wrong because they don't respond, and that's why our education system needs a lot of attention. Because Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just said dogs and long. What was that? Dogs make kids long? No, adults. adults oh, adults? What? Make kids wrong. Yeah, and, and that's uh, that's natural. <laughs> but what yeah. Sheila's saying, the adults can't even get into the game. They can't be adults. We've seen, you know, each new electric medium has obsolesced the, the adult control. This is extreme. And a person uh, I was talking to last night, a great McLuhan student, who has done a lot of good work for um, 20, 30 years, says, I do not understand the kid's mentality of social media. He has written on social autism. He understands what I write in my stuff about technological and tribal solipsism, what we've seen in the last 20 years. But he says the social, these kids are in a new kind of autism that he can't figure out. And that's so, what I'm right. And he couldn't, and he wouldn't, and he shouldn't. He couldn't, he couldn't figure it out because his, he's not wired up like that. No, well, that's, the, that's why you have McLuhan. We, we, we learn how to perceive something, even though privately, perceptually, you might not understand it. You make an inventory of effects. That's the method. You, did you listen to Eric's talk from, from Bologna last, this weekend? No. 
Okay, he lays out the toolkit. But you take an inventory of effects because these kids are so involved, they don't know any other way. Maturity is knowing different environments. Now, the Android me makes many environments implode. We don't even know which one we're in, which makes it extra hard. But if you know that, then you know how to look at the evidence. Yes, and you make like an inventory. I like the term inventory effects because it doesn't require any modification or change on anybody's part. It's just an observation. Right. I like that. Uh, yeah. Good. That was McLuhan's method. He said, I'm yes. just observing and making an inventory. So can we, can we start to make an inventory of what we know about where the media is at right now? Okay. Um, let's see if there's anybody else here besides Sheila and Ginny. Uh, if they want to say something. Anybody else want to say something before we do this? I guess no one else is there. Okay, so um, I like what you're describing. The inventory, you've already started, Sheila. The parent feels they cannot get to the kid to do normal chemical body discipline or schedule keeping, right? Right. Or communication. Communication. Right. Oh, who's that? It's Matthew, but I have a lot of background noise, but I think I'm young enough to understand what these kids are up to, and I'm mature enough to actually look into McLuhan, so I'm pretty good understanding. Okay, we can't hear you right now. Hold your thoughts, Matthew. When you get in a different environment, then say your bit, okay? Because it's stupid. We can't hear it. Okay, back to you, Sheila. So, okay, uh, Ginny, have you got any evidence of kids, what they're doing? Oh, I think she she went out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just you and me, Sheila. Here's the thing, is that sometimes the kids are texting to each other when they're in the same room. Like if they are in, in uh, say, a big family situation and they want to check in on, you know, what the other one is thinking or feeling or whatever, they're texting. You don't realize but they're texting, you know, to each other right in the very same room. Okay, so I was telling my friend who didn't know how to do the respond to the new kind of autism, uh, I said, I think my five-body model is the way to do it. These kids, when you, when you say they're, they're in the room but doing something else with their uh, digital stuff, that's the chip body. And they live with more than one body. But if you just look at them and think that they're just a physical body, that's a, that's a limited perspective. There's another body that can communicate and doesn't feel it's in the room. Okay, well, so how did that, how did that come about? Uh, we, we, the quick story is you had the radio environment and then the TV environment. Huge one-way broadcasting. Barry Nevitt, you know, great colleague McLuhan used to tell the story when he was in Germany in 1933 after visiting Stalinist Russia. He was there with the Nazis marching down the street with their public address speakers and whatever other broadcast, electronic, electric broadcasting, broadcasting. He said he was frightened. Everybody was frightened. They were inside a huge drum. And so he, he recognized that. So now then you see TV had a massive effect one way than the early computer. But once you start to have the uh, VCR, the video recorder, and the Walkman, you started to play your media consumption in your own pace. You didn't have to watch the same show as everybody else at the same time. So, oh. it, Right. So that starts 30, 35 years ago in the 70s. So because you could disconnect from the hypnotic trance of everybody watching Ed Sullivan at only one time, 
Yeah. You then you that leads to the sentiment in the 70s of the me decade because you're away from the tribal trance. But what happened is that as the Netscape in the 90s and people got onto uh, more wired wired interfacing computers, you have a young kid in in 2000. They got a cell phone or a uh, what was that for early, early stuff or the BlackBerry and the one before that. Can't remember what it was called. And they have the huge radio content. They'd be doing their Napster sharing, file sharing. They'd have all the movies, all the newspapers, all these media that were huge environments as they came from 1850 to, to 1980 and had a huge one-way effect. But when you can start interacting and you're a kid with a massive database, you're not experiencing radio like the radio generation did. You're not experiencing radio at all like that. So you're, you actually think the media is getting smaller or you don't have the being inside a drum effect. That's the beginning point. The media shrunk. So it was no longer bigger than you collectively as a big environment you're inside of. And because you could edit it, especially when you get into Web 2.0 and YouTube, you have total control of your media. It empowers you, and that's what these young kids feel. They aren't intimidated by a huge TV environment or a huge radio environment. You get that? That's the difference. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah, that's so, really interesting. Yeah, so that's so I called the um, the first phase of one-way broadcast media the extension of the central nervous system. It really was an extension of what people fantasize ESP was because on the telephone you can be at two places at the same time. Your normal physical body can't do that. So with the telephone and telegraph, people started thinking of spirits and seancing and occult stuff uh, was retrieved. But the fact is that Look at the analog, one-way electric media as a cloning or extending of ESP, extrasensory perception. What happens with the digital environment, you can turn off the tyrannical domination of the ESP electric effect by your own ability to choice and consume when you want to. So therefore, you engage with the old cloned ESP environment voluntarily. So that means you're even off the ESP grid. And you know, a lot of people romanticize ESP or the sharing of communication verbally or gesturally or secretly or ESP-wise. These kids, the reason they don't even know there's any, uh, how do you say, there's any reason to connect with anybody or that they're inside a shared environment is that they don't have any medium that's bigger than them. They're bigger than any former environment. Yeah. Or they're not controlled by it. So it's all vol- they engage, they voluntarily engage in chemical body ESP, but they do a lot more than that. They do endless babble, battle, ba- texting and babble back to each other, and it's not the stupid content about, oh, I went to the bathroom, had a bowel movement. It's the constant rubbing up against each other on the chip body level. That's true. That's true. And, and it's a, I don't know, it's, it's a very important way for them to know that they're alive and they're connected. Like the more texts, the better. You know, it's, it's sort of a sign of their if, importance or popularity or something like that. And they're, well, they're kind of like one of my nephews who's uh, studying engineering right now. He, I mean, he has his phone with him and he's texting all the time too. But in a way, he kind of resents it because he still enjoys the, he comes from a background that was rich in, you know, 
social cohesiveness within the family. Our well, he had family. that before the texting he, happened. He still likes that too, but he feels, you know, compelled to. Just you have it. to. Yeah, everybody has to do it. It's a new environment if you're economically dependent on interacting for money. That's the main thing. Money is like, if you think of God as something that holds everybody together, money in industrial societies holds everybody together because everybody has to have some. But well, now money's now. gone, and that causes a big issue. Yeah, so we, if we can just spend a minute here, we were starting to, um, you know, to, to think of, of all of the different media. Okay, I see it this way. McLuhan talked about the, uh, a kid born in the 50s plunked in front of the TV. That's a mm-hmm. whole different sensory tactile dynamic. They're, they're absorbing that imagery and unconscious of the effects it's doing on them in relative to older media. So you admit, these kids are born on a party line pretty quickly they are in interacting texting at an early age. So they're actually born on a party line. They think that's their main medium of sustenance. Mm. So, so they keep a, it going. I just got an insight. You know, Bob, uh, uh, the early part of my uh, career was, uh, was in teaching, and I, I did do some teaching of uh, emotionally disturbed children. And I'm just having an insight. You know, the rates of autism have dramatically increased. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, what happens with the kids who do not have the capacity to tune out all the different media, you know, because there's um, television. Well, autism is a way of tuning out. Autism is is, autism is a way of tuning out. So you'd want to be autistic. Yeah, because people are trying to figure out why autism rates have spiked. Well, one of the theories is, uh, you know, the presence of aluminum in um, in uh, vaccines right but but nobody has talked about the media effect right and i have and uh, the person i was talking to last night has done a lot on it on social autism when you when you can start to listen to uh, music uh you know with your vcr when you compared to when you had to do when everybody else did it on in the 1560s you have disconnected from the tribal involvement or trance Therefore, you're not, you don't have to communicate on that. And so with an answering phone, an answering machine, people could call, and I didn't have to answer. Before that, everybody answers the phone. So we actually have had on a, on an autistic world since digital media came in the last uh, 20, 30 years. And it so, is becoming more and more so, and Facebook is really, uh, you know, is really uh, increasing that tremendously. Right, so the kids, you would look at the kids, you would not blame them for being autistic. You'd have to say, I brought the digital environment here. I gave it to my kids for a birthday present. This is one of the effects. They are keeping up with the autism. It's the autistic, social autism of the 80s and 90s has been squared and totally intensified. So that you have people who, like at that table, are talking to each other, don't notice that they're interrupting somebody, and they see that as not a problem. They don't see autism as a problem, so to speak. And there are normal people who don't have the, nor- the average autistic symptoms. Even the non-technically autistic kids are autistic in, in the way they socially relate. No, well, what hey, Bob, I'm saying Michael. is that... Do you remember when um, McLuhan... Michael Edmonds here. When, do you remember when McLuhan used to um, talk about... Uh, I don't know if he included autism, but uh, aphasia... He worked with that guy in Montreal, and he recommended jumping up and down on the trampoline. That was for dyslexia. Dyslexia. Uh, yeah, Arthur Porter, and he, and he, yeah, do you want to go into it, or? 
No, no, I just wonder if, I, I think it sort of has relevance to the... Uh, yeah, he said, boys, because the electric environment was dimming down visuality and your, your, uh, the precision of your eyes were not being developed in the TV world of the 70s and 80s, he said, boys, because they're left hemisphere, are already in trouble. But because they did sports, which required, I think you'd say, broad vision or peripheral vision, it did not allow you to see things pinpointed. But girls, because they did cooking and knitting, they developed their pinpoint vision. So they weren't as dyslexic as the boys. So he used to point that out, that the girls are better, better able to um, handle you know, not becoming dyslexic, which was sort of inevitable because people were not visually precise in their reading skills anymore. So then he said the kids, boys, I guess, should do bouncing on a trampoline because you kind of got to pinpoint your vision as you're going up and down. You're doing the pinpointing that you do with books without using a book, so use the, the trampoline, to counter the dispersal of bifocal vision by television. So that's dyslexia. So that was rampant, they said. Now they're more concerned about a, a speech thing. They don't interact properly on the speech level. Right. But, you know, we were talking earlier on about inventorying uh, the various yes. media that we have available to us right now. And I was saying that um, especially the kids are often on many of these media simultaneously. Okay, so they could be... Um, they can be watching TV, they can have their computer on, they can be texting, and they could actually, if they had a landline, they could be on the phone too. Right. Um, so that's what Adam Agoyan was saying. Uh, he, he knows the kids were not – he said that the movies are never going to be focused on like he had experienced, that he thought they contained spiritual values, intellectual values, whatever – um, that the movie will not be focused on because these kids basically can't focus. So the inventory is, one, parents are complaining. That's, one, one, that's the inventory of effect. That's the first one, right? They're yeah. complaining about how they can't get them to get on schedule or something. Well, they can't com they're having great difficulty communicating with them. Verbally. Just trying to, yes, verbally, just trying to sort out basic things about life, like, you know, if you're out in different parts of the city, where you're going to meet, you know, are you having some food together? Okay, so to add to the side effect just, list, what, how, does that, how do they personally among adults say, wow, I don't know if I should be a parent? Do they say something like that? Or do they say, no, I'm going to be a parent, but I don't know how to do it anymore? Um, that's, that's another side effect you put in the inventory. Whatever yeah, they say about that. Yeah. Um. How about this? How about texting? Uh, what's happened? You actually just look around at what's happened. Well, the economy collapsed. Um, uh, earthquakes are increasing. Um, and, you know, it's amazing. You look at the government inventory of earthquakes. There's 6.5, which was a big deal. And if you had a 6.5 in L.A., that'd be trouble. But they got 6.5s happening every 30 minutes in Japan over the last three weeks or something. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so that's something that's happening. We don't know if it's relevant. What else is going uh, on today? Um, your government collapsed. Stephen, what's his name? Harper. Right? Stephen put yeah, that in the hamper. Harper, Harper. Oh, yeah, put that Harper in the hamper. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one thing you do, Sheila. You just register what's going on. What do you notice that's sort of odd in ecological stuff? 
in in your in the in your meetings or what you do oh well you know i'm talking about atmospheric stuff a lot i mean my meetings last week were about uh, atmospheric emissions from industrial sectors and okay uh, so how are and you're complaining that even in those meetings people are texting no god no oh no 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 these are very formal meetings no i was talking about what i was telling you about was uh, it was more like a conference atmosphere uh but it was a actually it was a provincial meeting where the provincial budget was being rolled out and so people you know and somebody was speaking uh, about the budget to the whole room right and now so actually, it, it, look at this texting is it Look at this texting former surveillance, Sheila. Everybody's texting what the minister is saying immediately to their corporate environment that they're no, connected they to. Doing that. No, they weren't doing that. They were talking at the table. Oh, among themselves. Us, yes, not whispering, talking. Wow. Ignoring the monologue. But, yeah, ignoring the, 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 the breaking information that was coming out. <laughs> so they're like the kids so it's, it's not just the kids everybody gets changed well they were the kids they were they were they were you know university students well no those are not children those are adults well, they're not children but you know but they're still you know they 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 are the ones that are in this kind of media environment that i'm telling you about the same as the little kids Okay, yeah, we all are, but uh, now, you saying in your private meeting with the centers or whatever, nobody was doing, doing the texting there. Oh, absolutely not, no, no. Okay, so there, what is that? That's an, a respect for the higher echelon, and, and uh, you don't, you, oh, it, it's, I, you're actually that. meeting with bureaucrats at the head of the visual technology, and you don't act non-visual among them. Um, no, in larger meetings, sometimes people are checking their Blackberries and stuff like that and checking the messages, and, you know, but if, if you're in a, a small, I was in a, you know, smaller meeting, like 20 people where we were all interacting. So it would have been very, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of that going on there. No. Right, but there can be, but the people knew not to do it because it was a sign of rudeness. Well, no, that's right, because we were trying to solve problems and, and we were, you know, we had flown a great distance to be together for this purpose, so it was a little bit of a different situation. Right. So you, so you witness college kids and kids do not recognize your problems, what you're talking about. Um, the norm is, is, is changing. The norm, yeah. uh, many norms about social behavior are changing. And the thing is, is that the thing, well, okay, we first started experiencing, we probably started experiencing a long time ago, but I mean, one of the ways in which um, intimate social environment really began to be um, intruded upon, encroached upon, was with cell phones. Right. Because you could be together with somebody, even in a car, have in the middle of a conversation and a cell phone would ring. And suddenly... They're gone. They're somewhere else talking to They're talking to someone else, and you're talking to them. The new kids don't even measure their interaction based on talking. See, the cell phone 20 years ago interrupted your conversation with your friend, right? And they yeah. talked to someone else. You're, the texting means they're, do, they're not limited to talking and interrupting you or being interrupted. They're interrupting visually. This is true. I mean, that would be one positive thing to say about texting, actually. What, it makes no less verbal no, interruption? 
well, they can still they can still be it's perhaps a little easier for them to follow the conversation and still be included than right. if they're on a phone. And I mean, when they were on a phone, unless they were in a car, they you know you're supposed to step away slightly, yeah. so that you know you're not dominating the the. So a service, and we do an inventory of service disservice, a service of texting is that people can stay in the same room and be interrupted silently. Right, yes. Yeah. And, and they can surreptitiously, you know, respond and so on without... Uh, That's the espionage part. People start texting to someone else in the meeting and you don't know what they're saying about you. Well, exactly, exactly. So that makes... Yeah. That makes now, this is a not... I would say that makes everybody think there's a conspiracy going on, and that's why conspiracy theory became so popular on the web over the last few years, because everybody was actually interacting in an espionage situation where your oh. person beside you was ESPing with other people, and you didn't know. So that oh. might explain why conspiracy as an old visual bureaucratic model was happening, was retrieved. Well, maybe it all would also explain con conspiracy in that the more... Um electronics and technology we have the more people can be watched so well that is that, that is inevitable and yeah. they also watch drug dealers and that without busting them because because the drug dealers can disappear real quickly with mobility you don't arrest them you want to see who's mr big or mrs big and keep watching him for years to see who's yeah. higher up that's right yeah. Because if you busted them and they're the lower down, you, they say it's really hard to get back on track again. So yeah. actually, they never will bust these guys. Yeah, but, <laughs> but returning to an, an, an earlier part where I was posing the question, um, does anybody have thought about where this splintering of mind space, you know, will be taking us? I, 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 I. I'm not able to understand how the kids will be figuring out the social context, the political context. They won't. Uh, it's, it's total anarchy, and there'll be services in that. They are not going to be controlled by anybody. They're not going to, the power does not work in any form anymore. Yeah, but how does that translate out in terms of how... We Into other older media structures. Well, part of it, money's collapsed. Is money going to be rebuilt as a system? I doubt it. Yeah. How will we govern our countries and, and manage our businesses large scale? We'll recognize the services of not governing people. Because, you know, the, the decentralization that the first phase of chip technology created was was that it was anarchy. Nobody had to follow the rules because nobody was paying attention. And even in banking or any business that access to digital money could rip off corporations and pension funds without anybody knowing. So we have to recognize that nobody is following the rules, the literate rules anymore. You have to assume that's happening. So we don't have to worry about that, but then people have to learn how to live in a ruleless situation. There's another way you could think about that uh, because the previous structures of, I think what you're alluding to, I don't know who you are talking actually. but Sheila, Sheila. Sheila. Um, but, you know, there's a whole kind of a layer of how you get to vote in elections and the party system and so forth. But uh, when you have the ability to take instant polls or like instant votes, so everybody's used to it now. So you can ask all, and you can ask questions uh, ten times a day about how you, what what you want to happen. So society as a whole gets a voice, and how to sort out what the, you know how to do that, what the meaning of that is, is yet to be known. 
but the mm-hmm. it, it, it's almost like a retrieval to me of uh, the Greek agora where people uh, gathered in the square, and that was a real democracy because everybody had a say. It wasn't a party system. Yeah, also the the legislative bureaucracies are too slow. The mood of the day, what are people going to do with your Japanese earthquake victims? They've got a place to send money to, to help. All that thing instantly can set up, you know, with texting and all that, and you don't need bureaucracy. So the voting or the uh, poll taking and the registering of things is all within the mood of the moment, and the moment is huge now. 24 hours is huge in terms of how involved you can get into it. Yeah, the moment you know, never stops now. <laughs> yeah, the moment is never stops, and it's, it gets bigger. It's vibrating within it. So the people get more. Moment. What? I said the endless moment. Yeah, that's why McClune said there is no finish line. Not an acoustic. It's a resonating sphere. It, the sphere got broken up by digital technology. There was the tactile sphere, of auto tactile sphere. It got shattered. Uh, you know, the, the mystical sphere, the uh, Empyros, I think it's called, uh, it got shattered, and that's what we've been having for 20 years. But Michael is saying, because it's shattered, you need constant polling to find out, a t- create a temporary sphere. Yeah. Oh. Hi, Bob, I'm back. Or you could even say a resonance, a resonance sphere. Yes, the resonant, the interval is the rhythm of concern. And, and McClellan said there's dropouts and drop-ins. You know that people can't take this in one mode, so people drop out while others drop in. <laughs> there's, people, there's many people who worked in Greenpeace or those kind of active things for many years and then drop out and don't do it, but there's always new people just getting tapped, so to speak, by their sense of collapse, and they join in. Here's, here's an interesting new thing that's happening, Bob, is that um, with political polls, uh, kids, well, a lot of people, but especially kids these days, they don't have landlines anymore. And you can only do telephone polling to landlines. You can't do it to right. cell phones. And so they're missing out on that whole cohort, not knowing how those people are going to vote. And so some politicians are actually hoping that that might sway things in their favor. Yeah, so that would, I noticed in the, uh, whatever election was recently, was the governor of New York, there was a lot of crazy guys running for governor of New York. And they, they were counting on maybe their bizarre image will tap into something that the regular people can't control and, and might evoke new things. So that means more, more opportunities for un, unpredictable or unfamiliar uh, programs. What did you say, Ginny? I said the rent was too damn high party. Yeah, like that stuff, yeah, like that. Right, yeah. right. That was like, what was that? that guy. And that other Carl guy, Carl. The Tea Party probably was able to ride in on that a bit. Nobody talks about the Tea Party and the fact of texting. But that's what you do when you're McLuhan. You just say, "What is everybody using today?" And you look around. Okay, that caused whatever the concern is on the news. It's that formulaic what McLuhan did. I thought that was how Obama got in, Bob. Was that he had a big? Uh, he had a lot of people on cell phones, and they were they were twittering and texting and doing all that kind yep. of thing. And that brought in uh, the younger vote to Obama. Right. right, and that's using the chip landscape to organize the digital counting. But his image was so 
in the terms of, uh, for the TV landscape, very appropriate. Very cool, no opinion, no one knew what he stood for. So he managed his TV image very well, and he managed his chip landscape well. Mm. Well, you have to in this day and age. I mean, now you have to cover, you used to only have to cover the TV. Now you have to cover the TV, the chip. Like every time a new thing comes on the market, then you have to master that one as well as the one before. So, Carol, are you saying that we got more than one body? <laughs> you no, said have to. Uh, you, a body is something that has to, the needs have to be met. So yes, I, there's several yeah. levels of have to. Yeah, you have to actually if you really want to like win, succeed, whatever in this day and age. You know, you can't really do it without the computer. You know yep. what I mean? You you can't really do it without you know blah blah blah. Okay, you know so the the results are in. Bob's inventory is correct from Carol's point of view. We do have a chip body. I got one vote on that from Carol, right? From me, for sure. <laughs> Bob, what was the name of that director you were saying who took his kid to the movies and the kid? Adam Egoyan. Uh, Adam Egoyan? Adam Egoyan, E-G-O-Y-A-N. Well, that brings up the uh, sort of the meltdown of Hollywood and the... Um, the yeah, Academy and Charlie Sheen. Well, I'm just talking about the Academy Awards. So many people I know of my generation and older generation thought that it was absolutely abominable this year when they had the young guys um, be the hosts of the Academy Awards, Anne Hathaway, and I forget the other guy's name. But yeah. James, uh, James they, Franco. She, she, did a lot of, she did a lot of clothing changes because now mm-hmm. the big thing with the uh, Academy Awards is not around the movies. It's what people are wearing on the red carpet. Right. right. Now, that's a good example. Now we're inventorying that institution. See, that's part how you make an inventory shield. You bring in, okay, what's happening to Hollywood? And that's a, a good example. People, a lot of people felt um, of my age who respect movies and love movies that, that the movies were trivialized and it was just Anne Hathaway making stupid, goofy jokes and not really <laughs> connecting to anybody and her, her cohort just smirking and, and hanging around. And it's almost like... They were high school kids just giggling and... Um, right, because they're flat. used to... They're actually reflecting the way kids are, and their chemical body's not important. You're looking at a chemical body and judging how their appropriateness or proprietary stuff, and you don't know that's a ghetto and not even to be considered seriously among the four-bodied uh, kids or the new people, new sensibilities. Right. I think the only person that people could relate to was when Brit- Billy Crystal came on and sort of said a lo- uh, quite a bit of wry humor that the adult population in the audience could get. Yeah, yeah and I guess a lot of, uh, wasn't it really low, the, even the attendance of people watching the Oscars? I mean, millions I of younger people won't even know about it. People all around the world, and, you know, like they're doing this for people all around the world. Um, I don't get it. Are they just trying to teach them how to be American? Is this the idea? No, no. The, yeah, that, no, that's propaganda as a culture in action, and you just have to show. That was the old stuff back in the 50s right. McLuhan wrote about. That, you know, Suharto or Sukarno of Indonesia said, I want to thank our Hollywood movie producers. They're the greatest revolutionaries ever, revolutionaries, because then the people see that stuff and they want to have a refrigerator. That's like back in analog broadcast media. Now... People don't even want objects. They want pattern interna- interaction, a sense of knowing what's happening in the next two minutes. Right, yeah, and that's I think why there's a, there's a huge thing about the young. You know, when we were growing up, there was still some respect 
effect or some other thing with the L, the old. Yeah, well, let's do it this way. Talk technically. There was involvement with speech as a technology. Now the yeah. kids aren't involved with speech technology. That's how you say it. You don't bring in respect or value judgments. Just talk technically when you're in the McLuhan zone here. Yeah. Well, it's almost like they brought in the chip, chip body kids to introduce the TV bot to the TV body audience. Mm-hmm. And the TV body audience wasn't buying it, you know. They're wanting the, they're wanting. No, and, and Hollywood does not. It's not concerned with the older mm-hmm. people. It wants to stay in right. touch with the 18 to 25 or whatever the kids, because they are the economy. Yes, that's it, Bob. You got it right there. And the art world's like that. And the art world is never yep. like that. You weren't even. Kidding. Yeah, that's another example. Carol's in the world, the art world. Well, they go the the whoever galleries go to graduate schools. Take some kid, and the kid doesn't, hasn't done nothing, hasn't hung out at Cedar Tavern or, or taken acid right. with Tim Leary or nothing, no, no culturally hip stuff, and they put him in the galleries, and the guy becomes a big deal, and he hasn't even got a school yet. Right. Oh, and, and that's, that's what happens with happens. American yeah. Idol, too, right? Yeah, the whole thing. Right. Now, here's the thing. The digital technology in the last 15 years made a huge abundance of money, digital money. So there was a lot of rich people in New York City uh, in the in the five years ago, who wanted to buy art objects, so the market expand. Anybody you show up, I'm an artist. The guy would buy it because he probably wanted to buy it for tax write off. It's the the wealth of the digital chip technology, the Android meme I call it, uh, affected the art world that way. Hmm. And yeah, because they'd have in England, they'd have all those rotting corpses, and people were saying it was the greatest thing since sliced no, bread. Hurt. Right, Damon Hurst. Okay. Yeah, and here's the thing about Sue. Sue Bowen flies, and she's a flight attendant. She She's popping into countries all over the world, and because you're in hotels and the way she lives, she reads the media and what's going on. You actually, from a flight attendant, you know, a sociological professor at university should have flight attendants on his payroll so he can find out what's going on all over the world if he's having that kind of uh, inventory. And so Sue can bring in all kinds of things. And that's that's a chemical body mobility. You don't need a flight attendant. All you need is your looky box. <laughs> that's right, but who's got the time to do that? No, that's the chip body. I'm saying the chemical body, the flight attendant, they know the best restaurants and all that stuff. So they're a good source of information. And that's why I say they should have, quote, classrooms or meeting places in airports for people to exchange information. Yeah, that would be a good idea. Yeah, that would yeah. be. Yeah, ongoing, quote, yeah. seminars. Well, you know, I came back from Rome yesterday, Bob, and we had a big group, 59 kids uh, and a few adults coming back uh, from their school trip of 12 days. And, you know, they had all their little gizmos with them. And, of course, on the plane, they've got the the TV in front of them that they can watch whatever they want. And um, they've all got their iPods and their their special little um, ear pads and all that kind of stuff. And I thought at the end of that, you know, here they are, and they're not texting. They're not texting or on their cell phones for, oh, gee, at least 12 hours, maybe 15 hours. So And so what, so what do you make so of that? They, to, did they suffer? No, what I'm going to start doing is, is taking a, um, you know, I'm going to start asking them how they're feeling and, and what yeah. happens. <laughs> do they, yeah, do, do a pull-out. Uh, we need to take your temperature. We know you're not having the interactive advanced voluntary ESP texting experience. And now yeah. you're just, a cons- they're back into consumer mode, passive reception of TV body stuff. Tube. 
trapped in yeah. a tube hurtling, hurtling through space. You see them walking on the street in New York City. It's unbelievable. They don't look up. They don't know where they're going. Their head is in the, the gadget. Yeah. They don't look. They don't. Are they bumping into a lot of people? Yes. I'm, I, it's like they're as dangerous as drivers. To walk behind each other. Unbelievable. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm not, this is not a joke, guys. This is they not in New York City. No texting they, uh, sidewalk. And they have earphones in. Like it's yeah, they're not in New York City, Carol. That's the I point. Know, it's, that's there's no New York City anymore in any romantic way you think it is some place that was special. But, I mean, like, but why? I don't know. It's weird to me. I mean, maybe I'm just an old person because I look at these kids and I go. Yeah, you're not, you don't require that. You're, you are obsolete. Nancy Parker sent me a photograph yesterday. She was on a ferry to Whitby Island between Whitby Island and Seattle. And she says, look at these beautiful sunsets, Bob. So she shows me the sunsets, you know, sequence of images in the email. And at the bottom is five people sitting inside the boat staring at their, at their chip right. stuff and missing the sunset. That's it. That's what I mean. I see it every day. I'm like, they're on a date. And instead of talking to the person they're with, they're on their gadget. Okay, now here's the thing what McLuhan would say. Every new medium alters the senses, makes your senses be a different, require different needs, and you, you gave these people these things, they are unwitting, somnambulist, like everybody is, they have to stay involved in it. It's, yeah. like, it's like, what is it? It's like putting, putting your liver outside yourself, and you know you've got to protect it, and so you keep looking at your liver. It's dangling from you. <laughs> They're protecting themselves by watching what's going on. It's fascinating yeah, and, to me, though. And parents take their kids on road trips, right? Of course, the big vans and stuff right. like that are outfitted with right. their video machines and everything. Yeah, and the parents are like, you have to turn that off and look at the, look at the scenery. I can see <laughs> Look at the scenery. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as good as what's on the screen, though. That's right. It's new nature. It's... it's uh, Captain uh, uh, Beaver said that Van Gogh added color to the sun. Okay, so there's that technology of painting, you know, 150 years oh, ago. Yeah. It, it, it's, it superseded nature. And yeah. I, I see it every day on the beach, you know. Everybody's right. on the right. beach with a book and their, right. their email and not watching me with the glorious Mr. America walking by. They're ignoring me. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be over there Atlas. to watch you ASAP, Bobby. <laughs> okay, so uh, the, it's, it's, it's like, Carol, when you say it's fascinating, it's not fascinating. It is normal that people get stunned and involved in the new medium, especially one like electricity, which is so organic and interactive. What Marshall called par- the participation mystique—that's it's—it's boring that that's what's happening. Once you believe you understand it, McLuhan terms. I mean, I've been at Fashion Week, you know, sitting at these avant-garde fashion shows, and the first front row—they're not looking at the fashion shows. They're unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, kidding. what are you even doing here? Why don't you just go? Well, wait a minute. See, you're missing the point, Carol. They're juggling their four bodies. This is what quadrophenia means. Yes, they, they just need to quickly look at it, a real quick glance. At least it's, it's why stay limited like in the 50s. We're going to sit there and watch this boring show for two hours. I can enjoy a bit of the show, and I don't, I don't need to know much because if I have to communicate about it, I'm communicating to someone else who doesn't care about it because they're on their chip landscape. So they're juggling their chip landscape. The, the show is not what it's about. They're just one quarter of themselves have right, to be at right. the show. 
That's all. You mean they're not texting to their girlfriends about what they're seeing? They might be. That, that They might be, but what I'm saying is, is that instead of being fully present in the moment and having this experience, like Bob is saying, they are. They're having like four experiences yeah. at once. But to me, it's just like I'd rather like... Well, see, you don't them. have this texting thing, so you're, you're a fundamentalist yeah. for the chemical body, yeah. a fanatic uh, who demands everybody to look on the one level, and you're not yeah. used to seeing how they juggle their four bodies. Yeah, yeah but I live in point. my shit body, though. What? I live in Which, the body. Yeah, well, okay. That's the, there's no value pro or con about that. That's why you're fascinated by those that don't aren't limited to one body. So you should say, oh, they got four bodies. I don't. That's it. I'm going to the beach. Yeah. So which point. body's wearing those platform high heels? What'd you say? What bodies? Which body is wearing those platform high heels? That's a mixture of the chemical body and, it's, and the TV body. Because you can't see the TV body. It's, it's an image, like Lady Gaga has an image of herself and what she sees in the media spectacle, the TV landscape. Then she figures out an image that she's going to do for the, for the TV landscape. So put herself in an egg. She's thinking about that and how to make her, her chemical body uh, carry the, chip, the TV body effect. So she's thinking of her TV body, two bodies all the time. Yeah, Lady Gaga. Yeah, right. and that's the yeah. point I was going to make, uh, Bobby, is that, you know, uh, okay, so somebody's in the fashion show and they're texting, and then you're asking, so you mean they're not texting their girlfriend? I don't think that it matters who they're texting. That's they right. To, the, they, and, and, and they just have to keep texting because that's. They must keep the, t- the kidney yeah, going. That's part of the juggling. It's, it's, yeah, it's a, yeah. It's that's why McLuhan said nothing ever written in a book was as important as the fact that the population was using books and getting altered by it. So the content is always, and then he said the electric age even points this out even starker, and that's why we can notice the medium is the message, because electric age made so much instant demand on your response that you begin to see that people are totally involved in something, a new environment, and can't get away from it. Like literate, detached people were 100 years before that. Mm-hmm. It, well, so the electric media demands involvement. Yeah, our parents used to say we were always watching television. Right. What did you say? Your parents said you were watching television. I mean, our parents always thought we were watching television and could cut it out. Yeah, they didn't know that you were tactilizing. Right. It wasn't watching. You were vibrating, resonating. All those new age terms that got retrieved are just t- describing the literate person's interpretation of the, of the TV resonance. But that is a passive thing. Like, just your memory, Sue, of watching TV is not the memory. They, you have been, your memory has been killed in the general population. They don't know what, you, what your experience is. You mean because Thank we you. all have our own... Uh, They're interacting. They're not sitting and looking at a thing and knowing everybody else is watching the show at the same time. They're interacting with non-content. I'm going to the bathroom. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. It doesn't even matter. As long as someone's talking, it's like, keep rubbing me. You did not have that on an interactive level when you watch TV. So your sense of your TV and chemical body is not the body that anybody today, young, uh, is being formed by. Understand. So they don't, you have been, you've gone to another planet, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Your memory bank has. Mm-hmm. Oh, Lord. I can remember Ed Sullivan. Yeah, and well, was, nobody else can. Well, that was the whole family dynamic thing of everybody can re- remember sitting around watching the Beatles or whatever it was on uh, 
And you know what that is? That's a literate society used to matching on the collective level, and they thought everybody had to do it at the same time. Yeah. Because that's what you do when you're reading a book, so to speak. Everybody's on the same page. Yeah, and you had something to talk about at the water cooler the next day. Right. Now you don't go to the water cooler. You work at home. Yeah, everybody on the same page. If if, if you're with a, a modern family... It's crazy making because none of them are on the same page. They're like, <laughs> that's right. You know, and I have experienced this, and, and forget it. They are just not in the same place at the same time. But, Sue, I mean, Sheila, you, don't, you never had kids, never had the family. You are observing it with a visual bias from your own memory bank, but the mother involved in it, they're used to the craziness. They're used to it. Oh, yeah, they're used to it. Yeah. Yeah. When they're involved in it. All my, yes no. my brothers and sisters that know how to, that have kids that text know how to text. I mean, I don't bother with it because there's not a lot of people that I need to be doing that with. Yeah. But my sister has a daughter who's 20, and believe me, my sister texts. And you know what I mean? Like they have to. Right. She she I left know. your planet and went to another planet with the new exactly. kids who went to another planet because the spaceship was created by the company that made these digital BlackBerry. BlackBerry removed everybody from one planet to another solar system. Hey, Bob. Who's this? Foo. Foo Fighter. Both time, Foo. <coughs> <laughs> well, you you have something it, to say? Yeah, my wife calls that texting. Our babysitter does that. She calls it digital Tourette's. Digital threats? Tourette's. Tourette's. Oh, Tourette's. You mean the way they're interacting with each other? Yeah, she just uh, breaks away and, and types some with her thumb on her phone, and then she stops and starts talking again. Oh, that's yeah, it's Tourette's from your wife's point of view. Right. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Digital Tourette's. I think that really, that really expresses what it is. It does. It does. It's great. Well, what happens in Tourette? Someone starts mouthing off at you and it's not warranted? Or what, how does that go? Tourette Someone gets Tourette aggressive? They can't no, help they, Right. They, they, they what? They, it's they a major twitching. It's a major twitching and barking and, and whooping kind of oh, yeah, yeah. They, they, scenario that some people have and they can't control it and they... They, they say whatever right. So, mind. so they when you're texting, you're doing silent sure. Tourette's. Texting is silent Tourette's. Yes, it is. That's <laughs> the part of the juggling. They can't help themselves. So while they're at the fashion show, they have to be doing. They have to be doing it because they're. Now, here's an interesting thing, Sheila. Um, is McLuhan said you look to the artists who lay out what's coming decades before. I mean, they have to be a genius artist, not any artist. Look at Finnegan's Wake. The actual kids today experience life exactly like Finnegan's Wake. You know, 50 languages happening in one page, nothing being completed. That, so he described in the book form what was coming. Aha. Uh-huh. That's why you find Finnegan's Wake so fascinating. Yeah. I don't get into the content. I can do that playful. But the, fo- the form of the thing itself... Start off 60 years ago, 70 years ago, crazy, ridiculous, no storyline. But our life has become more and more painted by, like what Finnegan's Wake is painting on the page. It's literally a mirror of our time. And as we get crazier, more fragmented, you're getting closer to the Finnegan's Wake presentation. I think all great art does that, Bob. I think that's the definition of great art. What is it? It's a forerunner to what's... 
on the It's way. a picture of you, you know, a couple decades before you get there. Right. That's uh, in some form, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The, now, most the, of these uh, arts, painting, they can't paint the reality. Movies can't keep up. They can't even make them focus. None of the media... Are, are appropriate to mirror our time. But Finnegan's Wake is the last one of them, which is close. And it's madness, that book, on the surface. Well, what about Picasso and the Cubists and all those guys? Now? No, that, that's, that's changing going. different points of view. The, the kids don't have a point of view or even multiple points of view. They're not involved in that level. But you don't what think they're forerunners showing us all fragments? What about cubism? What's that a mirror of? That's a mirror of the telegraph press, you know, 1910. That was life in the, in the cities in Paris and that. The decision lived with multiple points of view because they started to have the telephone and the car and the movie, multiple levels. Oh, so that's what Picasso was. Yeah, he paid every artist. McClellan puts value and usefulness in all the movements of art. What did Jackson Pollock paint? He painted the pixelated TV screen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How about he painted a non-visual side. He figured out how to make a visual medium communicate to the present, and so he made he drip paint on something, and people thought it was nuts, and they called it abstract. They should have said, "No, this is TV." How about Dolly? With, you know, Dolly is photographic in the movie thing, putting the discontinuity of the movie because the movie is both discontinuous, electric, and mechanical. It's got a bit of both. It's a transitional border thing, borderline media between Gutenberg and Marconi. So it's a mixture, and they were just playing with photographic upside-downness or overlaying or visual puns. Still I. So no painting, no music, no medium of communication can uh, re reflect our time. The only medium that can reflect our time is texting itself. <laughs> it's self-reflexive now. That is the art form, texting. No, you're funny, though. You said, no, it isn't? I said, I'm not sure if I agree with you, but I think that... Yeah, I'm not sure point. that I do either. Okay, here's what I'm saying. We're talking about texting as the ground of our time. And art is usually an older technology that's updated and mirrors what's going on. I'm saying that you can't even begin to say what's going on or that the effects of texting is um, so incredible, no culture's ever been that, quote, hyper-fragmented, that the action of texting is the art form for the ground. So the figure and the ground have merged. The medium is the message. Now that's the, well, McLuhan has said that, but that's never been said today about texting, that he said the super audience, like the super enterprise, works for itself. Well, texting is art forming yourself. Hmm. Well, what about right, Bob. Twitter and Facebook? Bob, Bob. Same thing. If you want to call that, the, um, I, I would call it more, instead of the art, form of the time, because I don't really see artists defined like that. I would call it more like... Okay, what do you see art defined at? We've got to get on the same page about what your definition is. Well, my feeling about what true great art would be, it's a forerunner. You know, like, right. Like so because you can't measure where we're at, texting is covering all the now. And it's the involvement. Paying attention and being involved is the only art form because you actually can't pay attention and be involved in a non-existent present because all communication is gone when you get fragmented texting, any matching. So everything's disappeared. So the only thing that makes you think that there's a, an appearance is involvement. So that's your art form. Total involvement all the time. 
is, yeah, we are now moved in what I call the mystery landscape. So total involvement can't totally measure what's going on in the mystery landscape. So total involvement becomes an art form. That's why McLuhan said hockey and football were the more important art forms of the 70s because they were content for the instant replay. You know, what Warhol was doing wasn't much. You had to have a collective thing like sport. So they were the art forms in the uh, beginning of the Android meme. But they aren't the art forms today. The art form today is to pretend you're still here. And you do that by seeing your... <laughs> hey, Bob, you think the texting is what uh, McLuhan called the new age of angelism? I uh, know. Okay. Angelism was when uh, you read a book. That's doing a parallel universe. He said once you had the radio, everybody could be in more than one place at a time. So that was super angelization. Now, you have the digital breaks all up that that collective super angelization includes it, but it must be something more. I think it's a kind of landing in a new environment. We actually come back out of being angels or even super angels, and we've arrived at a new platform, which cannot be articulated. Oh, yeah. it's a new and, UFO. And Not even that. You, you can't make an image of where we arrived at. That's why you stay involved to see if everybody else is still here. And there's no, no place to arrive to. Right. There's, and that's why money broke down four years ago. Because the bankers couldn't uh, get on the same page at, at, they all, at all. They couldn't count anymore? Yeah. Yep. Too many zeros. That's right. That's why, and, and what ha- that means is total fantasy to run a society. So Obama knows if he says we got a trillion dollars and we'll hand it out to everybody, that's good enough. <laughs> Even though there isn't any. Yeah, they don't have any. Right. You just say it. It's like it's, uh, America's for people who still have ears and think someone's talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, and texting, panic texting, they don't worry about having it. They stay vibrating with each other. That's what texting, keep vibrating. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely, yes. And, and so that's the illusion of being there, right? Right, so then physics changes, and they start to pick up on this 20 years ago and call something string theory, and it has no physical basis in traditional physical laboratory experiments. The old guys, the quantum guys, said, that's crazy. But string theory took over because it resonated, literally resonated, with the vibrating string resonance that was coming in with uh, Web 1.0. So the medium changed the the geniuses from their images, what's going on, and they don't know that. And that's the real science, to know that. Oh, my God. Almost like the two tin cans with the string between them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What did you say, Michael? When you talk about money disappearing and you're doing inventories, doesn't that uh, sort of say that uh, capitalism is dead and we're all moving to a communist uh, environment? No, no. We're, we're too fragmented to be any group dynamic. And it's not visual money disappeared. Digital money, or Web 1.0, uh, disappeared when you brought in Web 2.0, which was more interactive. So digital money, the Android meme, disappeared in 2008. So we still got the good old uh, paper dollar. No, here. Here, here it is, Michael. The world ended for analog media, you know, in the 70s, 60s, and 70s. Yeah. Digital media took over, and it was an afterimage, and then it died. See, and, and the digital media was machines talking among themselves. They off themselves in the last few years. <laughs> we got off 30, 40 years ago. 
the chemical body. Yeah. When you go to the store, Bob, what do you? How do you buy your loaf of bread? I've never been to a store in years. Ah, uh, that's not true. You're up here in Toronto. You bought a jacket. That's that's years. That's four years ago. Two thousand and eight. You go or to three years ago. I think, I think, yeah, I think the walls resounded. What did you say? I think the walls resounded when you got that jacket. But uh, so. Uh, oh what? Yeah, I bought a jacket. So what about it? When somebody goes to the store, what do they use? A credit card. They're doing one quarter of their of their disappeared selves. They're doing their chemical body. But it has no it has no container. It's not there. You drop it. You you get your new jacket and you don't even notice it in five minutes because you're watching your texting. Yeah, but you're warm. Yeah? You know that you're warm. Look, you don't get rid of any older environment. In fact, we have a jacket up here called the Canadian... Yeah, but you know, you're getting this. Obsolescent, McLuhan said, means there's more of it. There's more chemical bodies on the planet now, now that they're <laughs> obsolesced. You got called it. overpopulation. And they're still making Same. more. Yeah, this is they're still making more. But, but the people who are making them don't have much contact with the babies they make. They got them for a couple of years, then they're on their texting, and they're gone, which is what we started with. Sheila's saying the parents can't connect to their kids. Yeah. Like I figured a couple of years ago, I figured, I figured it out. I said, parents are losing control of their kids by age 12. It's dropped down. It's, it's even earlier than that now. The kids right. Are, now, here's the thing. You could not be a parent after World War II. See, you're still thinking there's a chemical body. <laughs> you, could get, you could be one quarter of yourself a parent you know, in the 50s and 60s, or one half of yourself. The rest was the, the new discarnate state. But it's not that parents can't, can't, can't stay in touch. Their machine, the cell phone, cannot connect with the kid's machine. So Nothing to do with the chemical body. Parenting is obsolete. <laughs> yes. E- yes, everything is obsolete, so we're going to get lots of everything. <laughs> <laughs> I thought everything had disappeared, Bob. Oh, yeah, no, everything's retrieved. It's hyper-tetrad. Yeah, that's okay. why everybody's got three TVs now. I mean, yeah. we've got more of everything. Right. Uh, yet there's no constancy of whatever you want to define that you think you are. <laughs> oh, my God. Remember poverty? Where do you think this is all taking us, Bob? We got there. Yeah, we're already there. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, Bob, you know what you were saying about, uh, you know, with texting, how there's the illusion that you're there, that you haven't gone anywhere. Uh, well, with that, that's what Facebook is, too. Facebook All electric is, media don't go anywhere. It's the involving. Now, the, there is something, you know, Carol, when you ask where we've gone, I can't say it because it will show up and interrupt everything. But that's where we've gone. <laughs> I know what you're talking about, Bob. Yeah, you should know what I'm talking about. We call it the mystery landscape as figure, as noble. The, no, I almost said it. I ain't going to say it, but uh, it's lurking there, just waiting for the opportunity, you know, because it loves to talk. <laughs> yeah, well, why don't we invite it in? No, 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 because it's not good for what we're trying to be. We're trying to target. No, who? I can't even admit that in public, what we're trying to do, so... Anyways, it's not uh, it's not advisable right now. Later, later, Sheila. Yeah, yeah. Few months, six months, ten months. We will, we will. Well, we're playing with the echoes of McLuhan. That's right, and and so here we are talking, grasp. 
I don't know if you saw them, a bunch of Spanish peasants sitting around in Barcelona 150 years ago. They weren't saying, where are we going? Where have we got there yet? They're just talking their farm tales or their drinking tales or their party tales, right? Look at what we're doing here. We're all trying to say, is there something happening? <laughs> I think that's what draws us together. I mean, that's, my interest is always in that way. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not, there are some people that could care less where we're going that I know personally all the time. But I'm the, you know what I mean? So I no, no, but wait a minute. I would say that they don't care. They care where they're going in different media contexts than the ones you do. And I call those a mythic stage. What you are interested in and the technologies you, you value and you want to know what's happening to them, that's your mythic stage. And it's mythic to imply a bit of the non-reality of it because it's since the last 30 years, so it's virtual. But it's also mythic means the whole process. You're, you pick a particular technology to tell you what the big picture is. And so when you say some people aren't just no, they have other ways of measuring themselves, other technologies that determine that they value so you, your values are the technologies you use, and it's a myth, and it's even more of a myth now when everything's been, you know, disappeared and retrieved 5,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you get homeopathic. I mean, I'm all for turning this McCool thing into learning Bob's language, because my language solves the issues to the degree you want to talk to somebody and have some jargon that you match with. Well, you're an extension of McLuhan, Bob. Well, yeah, I am McLuhan. Yeah. And more. For all intents and purposes, you're experiencing McLuhan here. Mm-hmm. And everybody here agrees with me. They're all my fan club, including Michael. So we, we're waiting for the, uh, the Andy environment to show up. I don't agree. Who's that? Who's, who's that? <laughs> who, who is that? They won't even identify themselves. It so right. wasn't me, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, some trembling little mosquito. What is it? Who said that? <laughs> trembling mosquito. Because <laughs> we are insects, the buzzing hive. So we're, it's Ant-Man B, B-Fart Song. We're Industrial Man was Ant, Electronic Software Man is B, and Man, 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 Ant-Man B. Man is the invisible thing in between that, the mystery landscape. So we've gone from Ant to B. So who was the B who spoke? <laughs> Who didn't agree? Go ahead. They call those bugs no seams. Must Wyndham Lewis. It's <laughs> <laughs> somebody who doesn't want to say anything more. They're just registering like a vote. I don't agree. Then they're gone on to other activities. <laughs> they don't have to explain themselves. Fast up. What was that? I said, come on, fast up. Who are you? Yeah, yeah. Okay, Michael, you talk. Michael can be an anti-environment to me if he wants to. Well, no, I, I, I totally agree that you're carrying on the McLuhan uh, values and have gone beyond that. But then again, I've known a few like you, like, for example, Wayne Constantino, who would like to work in uh, the mind. Well, why don't you explain a bit of what he did simply, and then we'll see if it's relevant today. Well, I was thinking of him in terms of the texting and somebody talking about uh, and, and speech and all that. Wayne would say you were, you were miming speech with your thumbs. Right. So he, and, he, and what posture would you say you're in? Uh, in, the, in, the, in the texting? Articulation. Yeah. Articulation. Moving the yeah. digit. So say, say the four types if they're handy in your memory. The four uh, types of postures. There was articulation. Isometric. Uh, 
isometric displacement, and then what he what did he call standing in place? Um, uh, no, that's iso. No. We'll just call it standing in place right now. So he had said yeah. four basic body postures. All media were extensions of those postures. So you're, sa- uh, Would you're you saying that... Would you repeat those four? Would you repeat those four? Yeah, artic- articulation. Yeah. Uh, but you have to say, which. what is the posture? Describe the content of the word. Yeah. Okay, let's start with standing in place. He said he, 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 he related, related everything to the body. Yeah. He said one posture was standing in place. Another posture was what he called displacement, so that would be like walking. Right. Another posture was isometric, which would be the contraction of the muscles. And then finally... That, that would be, what would be contract Lifting? It could be lifting, yeah. Yeah, it'd be, or holding. Holding something, right. Yeah. And then the last one would be, articulation would be like standing in place, but moving your limbs through space, like your fingers do, or... Right. Like so that. digital would be articulation. I think digital is articulation. Wouldn't it be uh, moving your... You know, it sounds like you'd be doing all four. Now, see here, immediately, the standing in place, not going any place, is extended by, the, by electric media because you're sent, and yet you're still there. So actually, mm-hmm. y- you would have those factors that added to it, and I think you wouldn't make, be able to make the distinction between the four categories. They would blur. I think they would. I never particularly agreed with Wayne's uh, distinctions, but in terms of uh, <clears throat> similar to uh, doing a McLuhan tetrad, it sometimes can reveal something about uh, a condition. Right. Now, any idea, what I've noticed is any interesting pattern, like you, I've had conversation with Wayne when he was still here, and he'd make some interesting patterns and associations with cultural language, or Aristotle was this and Plato was that, and it'd stimulate you temporarily. Okay, that's nice. I find it all pattern, any kind of information or insight, even any kind of thing you hear it on Oprah, stimulates your mind to get a, a temporary order. It's like an organization of the molecules of your brain for a little pattern, but you drop it pretty quickly. And there's no staying power to any pattern insight that one comes up, which is exactly what Finning his wake is. There's no, stay, no pattern that stays there in it. No, but it's like a little island of relief. What, Finning his wake? No, like this pattern, uh, uh, honing in on a pattern. Yeah, yeah, it's an it's a form of getting detachment. I mean, McLuhan wrote back in the seventies. We're now in a situation that people are addicted to the cognitive thrills of pattern recognition. That's what these. You take that in the seventies. Everybody start watching the news and tracking, and then cable TV comes in and crossfire, endlessly uh, talking and trying to find patterns. Now it's shrunk, and now everybody's staring at things to keep their pattern recognition going. It's yeah. hyper now. Exactly. That's why Sudoku is so uh, relaxing for, for people because it shuts down the brain. It gives you that island of relief. Yeah, well, it, it, what it is, it doesn't shut down the brain. It gives the brain some patterns to work with. Yeah, it's just pattern recognition of numbers. One yeah, day. yeah. Oh, so that's, so a, I, that's that funny game you see people on the planes doing, Xing. I don't know what it is. Some, is that it's what you're talking about? Mathematical, yeah, it's a mathematical yeah. like, pattern thing. It's robotic. Pattern recognition and deduction. It's not adding or subtracting or doing any kind of math, but it's just looking looking for patterns of numbers and and 
Yeah. That phrase, pattern recognition, is useful. It can mean nothing if you actually really analyze it. No word means anything in the end because McClellan said objects are unobservable, only relationships. But the noticing of relationships is pattern recognition. That is what people live today, four levels of hyper-pattern recognition. <laughs> and they think that because a pattern means you exist. You don't exist in isolation. So you have to stay in touch with something else to be an object because it's a relationship between two things. So we're seeing the very cognitive process of being, of being conscious. That's why I have consciousness on my chart for the Croker thing. Consciousness is an art form and a hyper-panicked art form. <laughs> hyper-panicked? Well, yeah. According to your yeah. definition, everything is an art form or a lot of things are an art ah, form. Ah, everything is because everything is gone. Right. Including the chip body. That collapsed a couple of years ago. So the, remember I, I, on, on cash flow before, I, uh, before somebody showed up, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, 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 we were describing the inauguration. That was January 2009, uh, James Nine cash flow. And we're, he was watching, and he said, look, there are people in, the, in Washington in the call as Obama's getting sworn in. Most of them were, were talking on the phone or looking at their texting or watching a TV camera. And I said, look at these people. They came together to juggle all their four bodies in a collective uh, gesture of solidarity <laughs> around an image of a guy. And they were there juggling their four bodies. And the juggling of the four bodies was the new art form. Because we moved, I said, into the mystery landscape. You had a president, no one knew who, where he came from, what his birthday was, or who, where he was born. And, and so everybody was hyper-pattern recognition as in Noah's Ark. Pattern, hyper-pattern recognition is now in the Noah's Ark phase. Say that we, one again, Bob. What do you mean? Uh, well, I said a lot. Which part? I mean, the Noah's Ark thing. What, 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 what Hyper pattern recognition is in the Noah's Ark. We're trying to save the ability to notice connection with something. Because there is no connection. People don't realize how much everything has been erased yeah. in, in terms of knowing relationships. And, and so the kids are expressing it. They're saying, hey, well, you, aren't, you aren't here, Mom. I'm involved with this thing. I'm keeping communication going. I'm saving That's the, the world, thing. Mom. I'm saving the world by texting. Bob, Bob, somebody had a photograph. I think it was on Rumor Mills. I'm not sure. It was the most amazing photograph I've ever seen. It was Congress. Some page must have taken it. And somebody was talking about finances or whatever, putting a bill out there, and like three senators were sitting in a row, and their laptops had solitaire on them, and yeah. another laptop had like Facebook. And That's was, right. I saw that picture. What? No porn? <laughs> well. No, they, they, that person was removed by the, the ushers. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing, though. But see, now what's amazing about that? You're, see, you're thinking that that's an important institution, and even those guys are texting. Right, no, right, they're right. not important at all. Matter of fact, you're amazed that they're even looking at their computer, that they even showed up, or that they even think, who would want to be someone, a senator? Uh, <laughs> I know. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> Bored out of your mind. Well, talk to me, Bob, about uh, the Canadian election now that's going to be happening here. Now, I, I say this, my opening remarks, I don't want to know anything about it. I'll just use the formula. So you don't have to tell me the details. <laughs> okay, use the formula and tell us what's going to go on. Nothing will happen. Yeah. 
There's no such thing. There will not be an, an election. There will not be a country. There's nothing there. Now, if you want to believe there's something there, then we'll talk on that level. But uh, let me tell you, there is no. The, the government did not fall, Sue. The government did not. You believe what the media told that it fell. I I don't. I didn't even know it fell. I don't even pay attention to the media around uh, all the politics and stuff. Okay, so why are you asking my opinion on it? Somebody said it fell. Did it fall? Yes, it did. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, uh, somebody decided to say. They decided to say and agree that we will agree that this is happening. (laughs) That he uh, see what? Oh, you didn't know why the election happened. Why it is happening? Well, they just do these things every once in a while. No, no, Harper fell the other day. Had a vote of no confidence. Whatever that means. Yeah, so no, no, that means that the that the major the majority that he had was no longer majority because the other parties teamed up and had more numbers against him. Okay, uh-huh. since I do follow these things, let me uh, say. What <laughs> okay. <laughs> you you loser, Sheila. You okay, follow this stuff. He, okay. He, he does not have a majority. He had a minority. He now has nothing. He he and his government were defeated on the grounds of contempt of parliament. The first time ever that this has happened. Because he's and, and what did he do that was contemptuous? He's been uh, misleading Parliament, uh, not... Uh, he's been autistic. That's not, what he's been doing. Not disclosing... Uh, yeah, autistic. He's not communicating to them. He's on a whole other level. This is the chemical body saying, you're not paying attention to your chemical body, Mr. Harper. Yeah. <laughs> he's well, texting, keeping your, company, your country image going by bombing the hell out of places because he has to. And if only it didn't have such dire consequences, it might be funny, but it isn't funny. And so at any rate, fortunately, he was brought down on those grounds. And so, you know, an election is happening. Okay, well, we can, I'd like to go into what they think. You know what I do, Sue? I take a story like that, and I'll find a way to support the most absurd angle on it. Let's, let's prove, try to prove that he wasn't contemptuous, and they were contemptuous even thinking he could be contemptuous because he was dealing with the chip landscape, <laughs> keeping the banking system going or the virtual banking. And, and he had to you know, upset Canada's image of peacekeeper, bombing Afghanistan and going into Libya because he's not in control. And it's he, the Canada that he, you think he represents, he's not representing that. He's representing a network of alliances and mafias, and I don't mean that pejoratively, just tribal groups who have a grip on the, on the purse strings of Canada. And, they, and you follow their order, if you want to be president or prime minister. Well, yeah, so that applies Canada's, to all They're countries. different than the rest of us. <laughs> that applies yeah, to all that's right, no so different. Let's, so let's talk about that reality and where we're going with that globally. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm playing on this week's cash flow um, uh, YouTube of Zoog's Rift, which you've probably never heard of. A guy named Zoog, Z-O-O-G-Z. His second name is Rift, R-I-F-T. So we think of the original parallel worlding word, Rift Riding. Anyways, you got Zoog's Rift was this extreme nut musician who died the same time as Liz Taylor. So he had the glamour, hot medium image of... Uh, of Liz Taylor, and then the cool image of Zeus, because among all the subcultures, the, the networks of the church subgenius, he was a saint. He was considered a genius. So I'm going to play the audio, and what you hear is him imitating Captain Beefheart talking about heart attack, and his lyrics are interesting. Then it shifts to he, he dropped, he would juggle being a rock musician and being a wrestling promoter. 
and he brings on the warlord, the man from the 21st century, six foot five, 300 pounds. And he's yelling at Cowboy Bob or something, you know, doing that wrestling pre-fight nonsense or yelling. And there's little Zooks snickering there as he's, as he's entered the wrestling game, and he's got this big monster. But I was thinking, yeah, everybody's forced to be a warlord. And that's the mythic stage, the media you gather together to be your armor. You will have to be a warlord. Hmm. You, anybody, every one of us. Hmm. They already operate like that in the Philippines and places like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, the, the members of parliament there have their own little armies. Now, Michael just said they're more honest. What a silly word to bring in that value judgment. They're not honest about anything. They're dealing with a, an environment, that weather, that makes them like that. That was a, that was a put on, Bob. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but uh, just to clarify, uh, up, up, because I'm in Canada too, uh, Harper's uh, government is very simple. It had nothing to do with contempt. Uh, he put a budget out, and uh, the parties uh, didn't, didn't go for it. No, you're wrong. Is, you you are wrong. Is, the contempt thing is still riding through. It never got. It never. No, got it's the not. Table. No, it is not. They, they, he was brought down on contempt of parliament. No way. No way whatsoever. Yes, he was. <laughs> so you got two citizens that can't agree on being on the same page mm-hmm. about something that's not too important to yourselves. Well, it is important. Okay, so let's look at Sheila's. Do an X-ray of Sheila's mythic stage. What media does she value? What environments that Harper represents that she says is important? What are they? Newspapers? Tell the Canada itself as a geographical entity? Like, what is it you value when you say the, the election is important? Oh, well, it's important in the current construct of the fact that we, that, you know, that we still uh, are operating as if we have, uh, and note that I'm saying as if, as if we have nation states and as if we have different forms of government. And, well, would, you know, you this is... continue that? Okay, here's one, two things, Matthew and Sheila. No media disappears. You're not going to get rid of the meme of nation states. It practically has gone since the 30s. But yes, it, what stays here? And so it won't go. It'll look like it's going to go totally, but it'll never arrive at totally disappearance. So, okay, will you so, explain to us how it, how it stopped in the 30s? Oh, that's when money collapsed. The private ownership of money, which was created by the printing press, and so were nations, stopped in the late 20s. And so then money became public property. And that's the beginning of software communism. And even though you had different cultures, we're fascists, we're Russia, we're communists, we're liberal democracy, different terms, everybody had access to money as a technological ground that couldn't totally disappear, so everybody has to be provided it. So the welfare state becomes global. And there's no private ownership of money. And then that's due to radio. So that's a beginning way of looking at it. So the nation, as a literate bound of people with separate points of view, you cannot have a nation with people in 19th century separate points of view based on reading newspapers and books when they're listening to the radio, because that's mass man, you've got cloning of ESP, discarnate man, and a nation structure is not built on that way. So we know behind the scenes that Rockefeller funded the whole world. Right? So he was the head of the world government, as it shows on my chart. So it was a world government in the 30s, and no nations had any viable constitutive 
reality. And constitute means they are an environment that nothing topples, that you are stuck with. So then you had the rise of internationalism in that period. Can you also say that the gold standard started to erode at that point? It was gone. That, that was another part. Gold, credit, and money disappeared and became public property. That's why, that's why Roosevelt could remove gold from everywhere, from the citizens, took it away from them. It was no longer your personal property anymore. It had to go to Fort Knox. Now, there's been all kinds of crazy, tumultuous events since that, caused by television, then computers, then satellite, then the digital. Fort Knox is now, that gold's in China now. China and India, maybe. Uh, but uh, harping back to something else, because I was Googling here, um, one thing that's interesting here in, in terms of this election and, uh, is um, if apparently they're saying this is our first social network election. So yeah. That, in other words, journalism is noticing the medium is the message. This, this will be a little test about how Canadians handle social networking in their elections. Yeah, they, Obama had to deal with it in 2008, right? Yeah. So Obama, maybe, it was YouTube in 2006, that upset the election. In 2004, maybe, not. that's before YouTube and Facebook. Then Facebook, YouTube is 2008. So this, for Canadians, is the first time they're dealing with Web 2.0 media. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, when did you have your last election? Five years ago? I think it's four no, or five only years two ago. two or three yeah. years ago. Two or three years was that? That is not a social media because people weren't using it as rampantly That's as they're right. forced That's to right. now. That's right. Obama you know, was the first Bob social media one. Yeah. You, you and nobody can to... really have a point of view anyway, right, Bob? You don't want one. And McClooney's saying in the '60s, you got a point of view. You're seriously threatening your survival. He so said how that. Are we elect anybody? And how come you have so many points of view, Bobby? <laughs> Well, I don't have points of view. I just jump all over the place. I'm considered mad. Not so much nowadays. Everybody's caught up to me or forced to be like me now. But But, you know, points of view, I don't know nothing. I just know how to reach. I'm fast at retrieving media. That's true. But uh, one thing you asked, Bob, I think it was uh, Sheila about the, the importance of the election, but the Globe and Mail today, it says, basically, has this article. It says, uh, the markets don't give a shit who wins the Canada's federal election. Right. The chip body has a bigger crisis. They can't figure out what their leader, Bernanke, is doing. Yeah. yeah. The, the Fed. That's yeah. their, their prime minister. Yeah. So, yeah, the election is a joke. It's not relevant. But McLuhan said that under these conditions, nothing's obsolete and everything flourishes. He predicted in the late 60s that we will not have a... a a uh, depression, economic depression. We will not have a crash that can't be retrieved because he said everything is going to become considered valuable and wealthy. You can read his article, A Media Approach to Inflation, where he goes into it. And anything can be invested in, and that's the futures market, and that will mean endless wealth. So all these economists worrying about boom and bust is not true. So McLuhan actually had a very profound understanding of the, of the boom from 1982 to 2008. He predicted that. Did he talk about money being disappeared? Oh, yeah. That's, uh, he talked about that. Um, I first him, heard him talking about money became public property in the 30s in an interview at St. Mike's College, the Catholic college he taught at. Their little student magazine, um, they said that, he said that in 1974. 
and it's probably embedded in, in, in Take Today, 1972, but it was start, I've never seen anybody say you can, there's no private ownership of money anymore. That's a pretty a profound thing, new thing to say. Yeah, but Bob, I think, how, but what does that really mean when you're talking about there's no uh, private ownership of money? Can you explain that a little bit? That means that there are centralized banks, or there are individuals who can own environments. No wealthy individual can own a TV network for him and just have it for himself. So you begin by his difference, where he talked about hardware communism happened in the 1840s when Mark shows up with his manifesto. He and Freddie Engels, McLuhan used to say, or Barry Nevis, <laughs> Freddie and Carl showed up with their manifesto. They already were in a communist environment, hardware communist environment, by 1830 because the relatively a citizen had access to newspapers, railway, uh, steamships, all that industrial stuff. Those environments, no, no private person could buy them up and remove them from public services. So public services took over with hardware communism in the uh, no private ownership could really run the show. And then in the, when radio came in, he said we moved to software communism, where, no, where anybody has billion-dollar service environments, NBC, ABC, and CBS, all these huge media environments, and they cannot be owned and turned off by one individual. Everybody shares them with relatively few pennies, he said. So that's but how you that, begin. But, but does that really scale? And the reason that, what I'm going to bring up is that I'll bring up the example of what's happened in the Middle East, uh, specifically, say, in Egypt um, during the, the events that happened in the last uh, – in, in January and February and March there, whereas they essentially shut down Internet connectivity into Egypt um, to prevent people from communicating. And organizing now, I, I'm just now I'm just playing a devil's advocate here and trying to put that out there. No, you can be as devil as you want. That's what we want people to come up with. We're trying we're trying to get rid of the grip of McClellan. Right. You know what I know? They couldn't shut off Twitter though. I was watching. No, no, no. Chad didn't. Uh, this is um, a riff rider, a riff router. Let him finish his point. He's just uh, introducing it. Go ahead. I think. He had, I think. Well, the, so, so we're. So here's here's the here's the ground, right? We're going to say, um, in the soft in, in the software environment where there is no private ownership of money, um, there isn't a single person who can own everything. So you cannot disconnect or shut down any of the public utilities, be it the railway, be it the Internet. And my point is, okay, I'm willing to accept that, but how do you explain the fact that um, there was – There is – uh, why do we think – let me try – is this what you're trying okay. to say? Why do we still think there's Fortune 500 and rich people, right? Why do we think that? Now, that is the afterimage no, of the literate environment of a private identity. Centralization would be a good characterization. Is there any centralization happening? Around one thing. There is. It's around Bernanke and the president and whoever the new Rockefeller is. Because Western man believes that individuals are separate billiard balls that, have, that uh, can control an environment. And that meme is still here. Well, so this is, there was a mini flash crash in the markets that happened two weeks ago. And the reason I'm saying this is that they had the, the – the European, uh, one, a, a minister in Europe who is the EU director of nuclear safety, who had said that, you know, the situation in Japan is getting critical, and you know, basically, you know, resulted in like a 10% decline in under 10 minutes of the, the markets, which, which I think like goes back towards the centralization point of view, which possibly yes, it's 
whereas the word makes the market, which I believe it is McLuhan's word saying that, that there can be one person because of uh, the satellite environment that actually does have that tremendous impact and influence. So, Well, you've got implosion, and it became tribalized implosion in the radio era around Mao and, and Mao Zedong and Stalin, those guys, tribal, non-industrialized people. But it became the same kind of tribal implosion around Roosevelt was interpreted as that he was in control, whereas in the communist world, it's government by committee. Now, we've moved into government by committee in the corporations, symbolized by the Bilderbergers and the Tribal Commission. But in this culture, you cannot – what you're defending, this culture's bias, that there are private spaces for private literate individuals. And that meme is powerful, and that's why people think that someone owns it. But you take a guy like Donald Trump, who's never out of debt, and if you look at an actual way his books work, he has to be trillions of dollars in debt to function. Uh, and he doesn't care. No, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. I agree with you. So, so if you actually look at the, what – I'm just trying to create contrast around that idea because I think it's no, that's good. That's what we want. McLuhan never right. wanted people to agree with him. I mean, <laughs> but, it, but it seems like it's gone to this like violent extreme. Whereas, like, you know, when you talk about well, okay, so Bernanke, who's currently the head of the the, the Federal Reserve, you know, and he has to char- carefully choose his words because he has, based upon what he says. Um, the whole world's collapsed. No, that's true. Exactly. So, I mean, so here's the big insight. Who was the first media ecologist? John, uh, who wrote the book of Revelations, he saw the effect of the printing press. And he saw the <laughs> meme of the printing press will create that powerful archetype of the individual in, in control, overviewing his environment. You can see with all the electric implosion of all the digital media and everything, the meme of the individual in power leads to, quote, the Antichrist. An effective literacy. So the Bible prophecy is a good understanding of media dynamics. Because you're right, as the confusion and chaos and lack of connecting on any level, when, when these brave kids collapse from trying to stay in touch with each other over the next five years, they'll look for somebody to represent some endpoint or some conclusion. And that's where the Antichrist comes. So the more we understand that dynamic, it won't happen. Or they'll just... Or the, the, what they're doing now is they're going broke. I mean, the example would be the uh, there's a there's a young girl who's actually been arrested for sexting, for sending. Yeah, a, I heard about that. So she's a young girl who's been arrested because she sent a lewd photograph of herself, and she's underage. And I mean, <laughs> how? I mean, that in itself. I mean, that that that. In That's an American is thing. That's it's an American crazy. thing. Would it happen in France or Germany or Thailand? They don't. Even, I don't even know if they have this stuff. Well, do but they, they even have that same relationship? I mean, America with with media, and do they have the same relationship with their body with media? Yeah, they wouldn't. I mean, you know, when the famous uh, Midran died, his mistress could attend could attend the funeral together. His wife and mistresses. Remember that? Midran. Right. Yeah, Midran. What did I say? Yeah. One of those guys. He died in France, and and the American press said, "Oh, look, his mistress sitting there with his wife." Oh, that's amazing. And McClellan actually commented on that, on having him, he would take any phenomenon and put, apply the formula. He said, because America is the only culture that went out to be alone and went home to be social, because it started in a wilderness environment where the only safe envi- social scene was in the kitchen hearth, you know, in the cabin, and you went out in a hostile environment with animals and Indians and everything, so you went home to be social. Every other culture world goes out to be social and oh, goes, yeah. home to be a, goes home to be alone. Now, look at this. So he takes the phenomenon of the mistress. In Europe, 
the mistress can be mingle in social life because the social has nothing to do with the home. But the but the uh, the husband or whatever does not bring anybody home. They go home to be alone. They do not bring any of their friends home. They, the, the mother is the queen there, and that's her kingdom, and she's not concerned about what goes out in social space where people go out there, and the husband can have all kinds of friends, you know, because he goes out to be social. Now, America, you go out to be alone, and you go home via social. So the American uh, adulterer can't bring his mistress home. So the, so the American mistress ends up in the lonely apartment. What was that you know, Liz Taylor movie, or The Apartment or something? But whatever it is. So she's stuck by herself. And only there when her husband goes out to be alone. She can't engage in the social life, which is at home. She doesn't have a home. So that kind of home. So that's why, you know, misters have a hard time in North America. They have no social life. Whereas in Europe, they do. Isn't that neat? Now, that's a really yeah, yeah, neat way of looking at a cultural yeah. phenomenon. Yeah. We give you that one, Bob. Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll give McClellan that one. We'll give you that one, Bob. No, 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 I don't tell you. I'm telling you, McLuhan said it. All right, all right. We'll give him In the one. 70s. I mean, everybody went around whether they should have a mistress or not and wondering about the moral guilt and whatever, all the, the trying to say, yeah, it's the me decade. There's a sexual revolution. McLuhan is not looking at that level. He's looking at the dynamics underneath that, which are very interesting for the mind if you have an active mind and you're looking for pattern recognition. McLuhan kept pattern recognition going. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Bob, i got to run, and I had an email. I don't know if you heard from uh, Scott, but he, he's, he's a little under the weather, so he, he won't be able to come in tonight. Okay, well, he may come next week. When he comes, that's going to be great because I'll, he, he's the one who was – I was talking to him a long time, uh, Associate McLuhan, talking last night. Are you still here, Michael, to hear this? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, yeah it, re- it relates to what we've talked about. He said that McLuhan's mm-hmm. understanding the organic tactile environment and the tactility of the TV environment of the 1670s he says, that's not the case now. And I said, that's right. The digital environment broke up tactility. And he went, yeah, that's it. That's it. You got it. I've been writing about that for 20 years. Do you understand it? I said, yeah. So I said, boy, we can really develop this because I haven't had anybody to talk to about how we're in a post-tactile environment. <laughs> well, he'll, 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 he'll join. He sends his regrets. Right. Says, he may never show up, but he did say he'd come here today, or he wants to come next week because uh, – he wants to interact with David Greenberg right. and uh, others that may come with him. So, yeah, he'll come soon. It'll be really good. See, he's the one who, uh, who's been writing on social autism as a major phenomenon in, you know, in our culture. Not oh, wow. biological autism, but social autism. That's and he says fabulous. he cannot figure out how to analyze the, the uh, social media and what we're describing today, these kids. He says, this is beyond autism. He said, my model doesn't work anymore. And I said, well, I got the model that works, the five body. And uh, we left it at that. Are you still there, Michael, or did you leave? I'm here, yeah. I'm here, but I got, I'm going to run off now. So I'm hoping we have that conversation. And also, he knows a lot of stuff and from the George Thompson era that George didn't bring up, including Scott. Uh, he told me last night that uh, Marshall came to him as soon as he died. So he has a nice story to tell about that. Excellent. And okay, what's y'all, all you fine people, i got to run. Uh, enjoy. Right. Great Thanks talking. Much. Bye. Okay. Yeah, Bye. we're just beginning, Michael. We're just, we've got another five hours, right? Everybody got five okay, hours I'll left? Be, I'll, I'll call in later. What? I may we'll call text in later. you goodbye. Is that yeah, Brian? Is that yeah. Brian speaking? Yeah, well, yeah. 
No, there was a rasping voice. Maybe it's Brian. He still lost his voice. I don't know. I'm not going to give his last name unless he shows up, Sue. Bob. Oh, okay. That's fine. Yeah. What's his first name? Scott. Oh, Scott. Okay. So we have to keep probing this. Where are we at? So you're a camel, Bob. You never take a break. Is that right? They don't take breaks? Well, they well, go they for long time. Right? Yeah. yeah, they don't. I don't need food. Yeah, I go a long time without water, but is camels don't take breaks, Sue? I didn't know that. Yeah, but listen, I'm here to tell you that Bob does not go a long time without food. It's a myth that he likes to report, but it's not true. Uh, how would you know, <laughs> Sheila? Because I've been stuck with you for hours visiting without food. Uh, uh, that's once... You've, you've been here once. We've been together maybe five times in our lives. I once visited your apartment back you know, many years ago in, in Halifax. Of course I'll eat to be social, but you ain't, I have not eaten anything today yet. I had a few, uh, well, I had the secret stuff, you know, the good stuff, the RNA drops. That'll keep me going for a couple of weeks. So, <laughs> so no, no, Sheila, in daily, in daily interaction with combustibles, combustibles, uh, it's very tiny what I do. But every now and then I have a lot. Like I might have 15 sticker bars, you know, no problem with that. Okay, but you could be on this for five hours. But like I, I, yeah, I can have five hours without eating or drinking. But like I've stayed at Sue's more than your place, Sheila, and she's seen me eat a lot, I assume. Yeah. You but that's, that's, that's when I'm traveling, you know, I'm not in a routine. And, I'm, and she, Sue knows that I go run out all over the place all day long, come back at midnight, then eat a lot, a bag of chips, maybe eat three bags of chips or something. A couple of bananas. <laughs> or bananas. Like Sheila, I knew Bob when he like lived that. on oranges and bananas for a whole year. That's right. Well, a couple of years, but yeah, you, you witnessed the year. <laughs> well, anyway. And know, here's a good story. I mentioned it to McLuhan. Now, listen, listen to this, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To relate to McLuhan. I mentioned this around 74, 75 to McLuhan, or he noticed it. He says, hey, Bob, you shouldn't do that. And I said, you know, live on bananas. And I said, why? He says, oh, Edgar Casey says it's bad for you. He quoted Edgar Casey. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, no. I'm very and, interested in know, knowing about McLuhan and his wife and their dynamic and relationship with each other. Well, if you look at the telescope, the famous, you know, remember that TV show in the 60s called Telescope with Fletcher Markle? Okay. Anyway, so they did in early 67 a special, half-hour special on McLuhan. And in it, they interviewed Corinne. And uh, they ask her, they want her to answer your question, what's it like with him? And, and she goes, well, he's, I think she goes something like this. What I'm going to lead to is what I know she said, but it's just something like, well, he's an odd duck. What's <laughs> she goes, he's an odd duck. And then she looks at the camera and goes, what's he like? She asked the interviewer what he's like. <laughs> it's a great move. <laughs> I, it's incredible. I don't know if she did it consciously. You know, more power to her if she did, but it's incredible. They, they, she can't explain who he is. And then she asked him, well, what's he like? What what data have you got on this phenomenon, sir? Yeah, like how did he, a northern intellectual type, a British background, marrying into the so- southern U.S. beauty? Ah, well, that my you listened to the first um, mum we did, Makuna Maui. I started quoting his essay on uh, Edgar Allan Poe and the southern quality, and he goes into the great 
why the South won the Civil War, why it's so powerful in the 20th century, the image of the South in that culture. And he ends talking about the archetypal beauty of elegance or elegant beauty that's part of that aristocratic European heritage that the South has. So he's talking about his own wife, who was yeah. this aristocratic very astounding, you know, looking woman. Who, who, he met her in Pasadena Playhouse in 38, I think, 1938, where, um, here in, in California, where she was training under McLuhan's mother to be an actress in Hollywood. Mm. So she was a beauty, and her daughters are all pretty beautiful, you know, Mary, Terry, and Elizabeth and Stephanie. Um, they, you know, that's all of them. And um, so she was just... I mean, Ted Carpenter says the first time he saw Marshall and Corinne, when he met them, thanks to the young Don Thiel, who was taking classes from Ted Carpenter in Anthropology at the University of Toronto, he thought Carpenter should meet McLuhan. So he arranges their meeting, and Ted Carpenter talks about the first time he walked into McLuhan's house and he saw Marshall and Corinne standing by the fireplace of their home, he said it was like he was walking in a world of movie stars. He just couldn't believe how handsome the couple looked. No yeah. Probably use the word like handsome. So they were quite pretty startling, good-looking people mm-hmm. in 1950. So uh, uh, what else can we say? Um, she, ty- she typed all those early books. Uh, once when I talked to, to um, uh, Marshall McLuhan. very similar to his mother. What? Very similar to his mother because his mother was the uh, actress. And he she- did a Ph.D. on his mother. His mother was a what was called an elocution, elocutionist, elocutionist, and he, he said she was the Ruth Draper of Canada. So Ruth Draper must have been a fa- famous American elocutionist. Means she'd go around and perform plo- poems, you know, the the great poems or excerpts from Shakespeare. She'd perform the Gutenberg Galaxy, and he heard that all his youth, her rehearsing that she was divorced. So he grew up with all that culture uh, going on around him all the time, and when he would have debates at the University of Toronto against other English professors, they'd be shocked at how he could memorize any poem that, or he could utter a lot of poems that no one ever thought of memorizing. Because he was in that human radio thing. So she was an elocutionist. So he writes his PhD on the rise and fall of the art of elocution or eloquence or rhetoric. That's what his PhD is about, over 2,500 years. Why does science go to the visual and not the oral? And so you look at it, he's actually trying to understand his mother, or he's, he's got the mother affecting him. So I asked him through the Evergreens who was an influence on him that no one notices, and, he's, and he or the Evergreens said Corinne was, because she would correct Corinne his manuscript. His, mother? his wife. Oh, Corinne, okay. The mother was a big influence, but what was not noticed is how much Corinne, her input on the uh, manuscripts when she would type what he had dictated or however he presented them. We know he dictated to Mark Stewart later, the secretary. I assume he dictated to, uh, to Corinne, but whatever it was, she's the one, the Evergreen said, she knew the dangling participles and knew what was grammatically incorrect. So she probably, she probably could have been a school teacher or was trained to be a school teacher as well as trying to be an actress. So she knew grammar like people did back then. Mm-hmm. So what were you just saying? I like that she knew the dangling participles. Yeah, that could be a penis. What is the dangling You're asking what a dangling participle is, Matthew? Yeah. Yeah, it's when you use some clause and it's not properly connected to the pre- preceding clause, and so you're not sure what it's qualifying. Uh, I don't know. You say it, 
in reference to many objects. Yeah, it's uh, anybody got an example? You got one, Sheila? You were a school teacher. Yeah, no, I don't. It's like Joe said to John that he likes her, and then he also likes her. What? Maybe. It, it, it's how about uh, uh, ending a sentence with a preposition is part of it, too. Gotcha. Hey, Bob, have you have you guys seen this movie called Limitless? Have you seen Everybody it? keeps mentioning it. Yeah. Like, so I've seen the – I can't help but think about you because uh, I'm sure you would say that it was a movie that's about you. Um, Most of the good film. ones are. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's an interesting thing. I'm talking technically when I say that. Nothing to do with the chemical body's vanity or ego. It is an undeniable – I mean, Sue Bone, anybody who's known me for decades knows – that the interesting ones are all about some dynamic that I'm doing interacting with the Android meme. Right? You, you could say that, right, Sue? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, many times people call me up and say, you got to see Forrest Gump or see this movie. It's all about you, Bob. People tell me that. I don't have to tell people. Sue's told me about many movies. Can you think of one right off, Sue, that comes to mind that's about me when you saw it? A uh, movie? Yeah. What's one? Oh, that? well, The Matrix. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So is there, do you think there will be a point where, so if McLuhan says that man is a great pattern maker and pattern receiver, do you think, do you think we'll ever reach a point where the patterns themselves will become more sophisticated or perhaps will stop you know, actually functioning in that role? Uh, that's very interesting. Uh, in, to a couple of points. I'll cite the Evergreens. I asked them, uh, when will be the final Armageddon? And they said in about 500 years. There'll be little Armageddons, you know, here and there as we go through that. But they, the Evergreens, and this is like 20 years ago, said the final Armageddon will be that people will invent a communication device where if they press the button, like implement it as an environment, all of humanity will forget everything they ever knew and where they came from. What's that? that and there will be a huge battle over whether to press that button or not. Say that again, If what? Instant, instant amnesia. Yeah. What did, did someone say that's a bitch? Who was that? No, I said. I no, I heard you, but there was another male voice. I said that sounds like the Vatican did. It sounds like the Vatican what? It sounds like that's what the that's I, that's what I, I it was I was saying this. Uh, sarcastically, but it sounds like I, I was saying that sounds like what the Vatican did. Um, okay, you mean like Philip K. Deck sense? Uh, I guess Philip. in the sense of like Jordan Maxwell, you know. Uh, right, no, no. They did it with the manuscript culture, and ancient technology has no influence, so it's still around as a meme. We're talking about a technology that is not not run by, a, it's not content control, it is sensory control or interior landscape memory knowing and you know everybody would be a zombie or in a matrix tube by them anyways it's like we'll erase the whole occupancy of the matrix tubes well, okay so and the battle will be that whether to press that button or not which is what I thought after it is what has been the Armageddon for every new technology whether to use it and once it's used fighting over the meaning of it like the Civil War was caused by the telegraph, American Civil War. So, the, so essentially, the, you know, they, uh, like in, um, uh, there's that, you know, every, every technology necessitates a new war, or every new technology yes. necessitates yeah. a new war. Which and you see that acted out in Finnegan's Wake all the way through it. There are certain patterns, meaty dynamics, he embeds in there, but 
we need a satellite McLuhan to find it. Well, so it's almost like patterns have to be in a sense is that if, if you're able to generate a new pattern, um, it's, there's a lot of risk around that because the, the, gener- the generation of new pattern threatens to revert the, the standing social institutions. That's why McLuhan wrote 1976, the violence of media. Everybody thought media were good and new. Like, look at Wired magazine saying, okay, information longs to be free and everybody will be able to have all this information. They didn't even begin square one about the violence that will inevitably will happen. And that violence was 911, which changed everything in terms of some kind of mood for a while anyways, but the uh, violence is in b- the beginning point. It's the first word, one of the first words on the first page of Finney's Wake. So uh, what is violence? And, you know, different cultures have different definitions. Your mythic stage, your collection of media that you prefer is your barometer of what is violent. Cause you it's the beginning will... stage of what, Bob? Anything? Uh, what's the beginning well, stage? Be you the said violence is the beginning stage, stage of any interaction. I mean, well, looking for not what we're doing now. McLuhan regarded as violent act. Conversation is violence because you're invading each other's boundaries. Now, what's interesting? People don't re, they're numb to that. Like when when before speech happened and humans were ESPing, you know, the mythical Atlantis or some golden place where people all had ESP or they think ETs. When someone started to talk, that was a violent action, and the people used to ESP really thought that was a rupture. Yeah. So we don't consider speaking violent anymore. We're more involved in later effects, and now we're thinking that social media can be a very violent thing. Well, although, you know, there has been a movement within uh, a development within the peace movement for years to try to demilitarize popular language. Right, which is this stupid. Now, that's, that's, McLuhan used to rant about how stupid George Orwell was. He said, George, in 1950, George Orwell was, was complaining about something that happened 50 years ago rather than 1948. And so why does McLuhan say that? that we don't go into whether he's nuts or a Catholic or a right-winger or a left-winger. Let's figure out on his own terms what he means by that. So if Orwell was talking about bureaucrat, um, newspeak, right? The controlling of words. Now, a literate person like Orwell, representing a highly literate society in Britain, they're worried about the distortion of word meaning. Now, you look at popular music today, the hip-hoppers and that, you look at any of their popular songs, they celebrate word distortion, but they do not consider that an infringement on their privacy or freedom. What they consider infringement on their privacy is a white guy in the White House on the TV, in the TV body landscape. See, so Orwell was describing the problems of the telegraph. He didn't have a clue about the disservices of radio, and the disservices of radio were outlined by Joyce, as well as the yes. services. Well, can't you say that puns and metaphors and all that kind of thing were a distortion of meaning, too? They're formal. Yes, they were, the, they were the jokes and the farts in social discourse. Forever. Uh, yeah. The release things for <laughs> literate people. There are no puns in a non-literate society. Um. Okay, what about... You know what that means? You've got to have the monotone, equal level of print, the equitone, a, a basic being on the same page to then do uh, verbal distortions on. But if you don't have any common ground, like in a pre-literate society, you can't be on the same page to make a pun on it. No. <laughs> Here's an interesting thing where... where so you're talking about the piece trying to change... Language. They're trying to change speech. And McClure wrote in 1968 in War and Peace of the Global Village that language is going out of fashion. 
He saw. And what did people do for relaxation? They took drugs and sat around, didn't speak, and hallucinated on Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Speech, was, speech has gone way down. So well, trying to correct it is stupid. It's interesting that you should bring that up because uh, that fits in with texting, too. Texting is having a tremendous uh, influence on the written word now. On spelling. On spelling, on, on, on sentences. But see, when you say the written word, it's not having influence on written words. It's having influence on written word media, like newspapers, classroom textbooks. You know, that you have to be the specific written media is what it's having an effect on. Not on the written word. What the heck is a written word? You want to know what a dangling participle is? Not when you're doing texting. <laughs> yeah, like these... Well, the, the, the biggest mafia, if you want to talk about mafias as disservice, the biggest mafia for the last 30, 40 years is the PTA, the Parent Teachers Association. Those people demand that their kids be made literate. And they really screwing up people. And McLuhan said that. He said, Big Brother, if it's not the PTA, it's the Nielsen ratings. But he put the PTA in there as a uh, candidate. And he's talking to people who read, to PTA people who read them. Yes, but the way that language is written and grammar and so on is morphing very rapidly right now. It morphed in the, with the printing press. It morphed with the newspaper. It morphed with the telegraph. It morphed with movies, radio, tell you go through the whole thing. That's what understand means about the changing yeah. of words and written language through the last 500 years. Yeah, but now so it's, it's morphing at warp speed. No, no, it's not morphing anymore. The Android meme simulated written word because there hasn't been any human communication for 30, 40 years, it's in terms of constitutive, what's really forming the ground, that's the Android meme. So within the Android meme, which is what my chart's a picture of, you've got the written technology. Now, it's morphing and interacting with other simulations of technology. So that's the beginning point you start with to determine what is happening to it. It's not, the written word is not talking to you, Sheila. The Android meme does not talk to people. It talks to other machines. So is the Android meme morphing written word within its dynamic? I don't know. Yeah. Listen, I just want to interject something here, which is, you know, you started talking at the very beginning of the evening about what's going on right now. Okay, so we've got the whole nuclear thing, nuclear technology uh, exploding on us in Japan. And I'm just seeing here that um, a nuclear scientist at Simon Fraser University uh, has just found that there are elevated levels of iodine-131 in rain and, and, and seawater in uh, B.C. right now. Yep. According to my sources, that it is so serious in Japan, and I guess it's not going to be reported on, that the wealthiest people in Japan sold their yen, you know, three weeks ago. There is no yeah. Japan. There, there can't be a Japan anymore, and it will spread all over the world. This is the year of Jubilee. <laughs> this is the end of time, the beginning of the end and all that stuff. You know that uh, the Japan Society in New York had this show scheduled before this happened that coincided almost the same week called Bye Bye Kitty. They, what is this? They had a, a program? They what had, is it? They, they had, the Japan Society had a, um, an art show of Japanese artists. And, you know, they plan these things years in advance. The show right. is called Bye Bye Kitty. And who's Kitty you know, in, in Japanese oh, culture? Oh, you know about Hello Kitty? 
Hello Kitty is one of, you know what Hello Kitty is. You've got to, Bob. I don't think so. I don't think so. Oh, no. Oh, no. Hello Kitty is this image. She's, you would recognize her if you saw her. It's a very simple, cute kitty face. You mean, not, you mean a cat or an anime figure? An anime cat. Okay, an yeah, anime, I know that. Yeah. Yes, of course, everybody knows it. And yeah. it's very, very popular among kids till to this day. I have a couple of friends and a niece who collect this stuff, like, you know, unbelievably. Anyway, yeah. the Japan Society scheduled this show. They probably had it in the works for at least a year. And it coincided within days of the earthquake and the tsunami. And the, the name of the show is Bye Bye Kitty. Bye bye Japanese TV. That is the TV bodies of Japan's icon of recognition. Yes, what you're saying. Just when I, yes, and and this was not on purpose. That you know that you have to plan these things like a long time in advance. Yeah, yeah. And the and the uh, you know uh, the fact that this the the coincidence of this the. You know, I know, happening. and the Japan Society is a major institution. I saw a whole retrospective they did in Yoko Ono there, you know, a few years ago. Right. That, that's no, a, no, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mirakami was has been there, you know. With, you know, this is a big show, and it's a big show. Yeah. But see, that's where language and media interaction with Andrew and me is commenting on things. That's what yeah. you might want to notice: the synchronicities happening in culture across the board, the ESP that's going on right, within right, the Android right. meme. Yeah, that's right. true. But here's the interesting thing. Why are they not moving to uh, to fill the reactor with uh, cement right, exactly. like they I did at uh, like Chernobyl? Right. Why exactly. are they not doing that? What's right. your theory exactly. on that? Interesting. Well, it would have to be. Um, I've, I've got sources that tell me why, but I don't know if those sources are true, but I just know it's way worse than uh, people are saying, and I guess that's one of the reasons they're not, not doing it. They can't get there. Or whatever it is they should do, they can't. Oh. Oh, that's true. They weren't able to do- dump water from above because it was too dangerous for the airplanes to go there. Yeah. The, same, the same could be said for cement, I guess. Yeah, they have to dump the cement from above. You know, they yeah. have to fly it in and dump it or something, so. I, I think in the book of Revelations, they have an image of the flash in the sky from the east. Well, some of my sources say that that's this earthquake and that nuclear problem is the prophesied end times uh, flash in the east, what we all saw on television, whatever images they had of the reactors. So it's actually, from some sources, very serious. I mean, it's, gonna, it's a replay of disappearing ourselves. We're now going to have nature try to disappear us, even though we've already technically disappeared many times, as we talked about two hours ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, Bobby, what are they saying in, uh, in Hawaii about the measurements there? Of what? Oh, we, we don't pay attention to that. I, I, don't believe it. I don't believe that stuff personally. It's not going to affect me. Uh-huh. I do not. I, was, I wanted to say for an hour or so. When I want to know what's going on outside of me, I click on the Drudge Report, I scan the incredible number of headlines there for five seconds, and I got it, and, and that's it. So I, I kind of know about a girl who did sex texting, but I never read the article. I just know the headline. I do one, five, ten-second scan of the outer world there, and that's it, and I don't uh, really take it in personally. Mm-hmm. 
I've, I've, I've disappeared so intensely that I've reappeared beautifully. That's how I regard it. <laughs> I'm not worried. I don't take anything seriously about somebody telling me, oh, this is it, because I can talk them into realizing they got disappeared 30 years ago, if they listened. <laughs> well, look at all the crises, eh? Uh, ever since, what was it, not, was it the year 2000 when all the computers were going to crash and everything was going to go to hell in a handbasket? Y2K. Y2K, yeah. Y2K, and then there was... <laughs> The ozone and, uh, well, we did have 9-11, but we had the ozone. What were some other ones? They seem to be getting more and more intense, but we can use hairspray again. We had the blood moon on December 21st. That was tragic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we haven't had anything. It's always been the Android meme panicking and having a tantrum. Let's go into Charlie Sheen. I've got a really good pattern. Uh, Brett, the um, the novelist, American novelist, Brett Easton Ellis. You would know him, Carol, right? Know of him? Brett Easton Ellis? I don't know. That doesn't sound familiar to me. (laughs) Okay, you missed that one. He was big in the 80s, I think. They made a movie out of his novel. Okay, he wrote an article saying that Charlie Sheen is the the death knell of the empire. And he means by the empire, the American media, we could say TV spectacle landscape. And he says, Charlie Sheen is a, he was celebrating Charlie Sheen and everybody was worried about the particulars. Like, did he beat up his wife? Did he do this or that? The cocaine, cocaine, not, not relevant. He is exposing the fraud of the Hollywood mirage. So he was celebrating Charlie Sheen. And I read this after I'd gone on cash flow a couple weeks ago and personally took Charlie Sheen's criticism of the world as an attack on me. Okay, but I never got a chance to explain it. But this article was the way to do it. The empire died in 1990. You had the post-empire that Alice is saying Charlie Sheen is part of and celebrating the new post-empire, the new... Uh, the Hollywood celebrities don't have to worry about what their private lives are. It's not a measure of their meaning anymore. They don't have to be controlled by their publicists. So he's saying that's the wonderful new post-empire scene. I say it's post-empire from 90 to 2008. And from 2008, it is the new empire of Dobbstown. And we're witnessing the post-empire phase from 1900 to 2008 panicking. And Charlie represents the establishment of the post-empire panicking, trying to get attention. That's how I take it personally. Hey, Bob, what happened in 1990? Uh, well, you know it is the year of the wall going down, Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Right. But it right. was really the end of communication. It was the end of the Android meme. And the, the 90s and the spreading of computers is the afterimage of the Android meme, and that went for uh, 15 or 20 years. Now that's gone. The computer reality is gone. The, you saw the article you know, eight months ago, the Internet is dead. You know, they're trying to express something. They, they don't get it right, but they feel the mood. You remember that article, Chad? Yeah, I do. Or, I, do. I, know, or, I, know, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and, and they'll talk in business terms, like, oh, the market, you know, they have crazy efficient causality. They don't look at the actual, I look at the article. Why read it? The article is, is a figure for a larger ground. 
And so journalists specialize in looking at the details from their media mythic stage. But if you look at their symptoms in all the different media mythic stages, then you see a really larger pattern. And then you can end up saying, you know, hyper things like I'm saying. We've, uh, we've disappeared four times now. That kind of statement. So Charlie Sheaton came out after the whole reality television scene where he just actually turned on a camera and stopped doing cocaine and just started talking. And that was the first time anyone actually saw a Hollywood star in a reality series. He was trying to text to his, uh, his fans. He was trying to talk to them, interact with them. No more have a package show, you know, a TV sitcom or something where it's a one-way broadcast. He wanted to make contact with what he thought was a disappearing reality. His audience, or whoever he thought he was doing. He started by going, that all started when he joined up with Alex Jones and trying to defeat the uh, 911 uh, myth. So he already tagged himself as different there on the level of the knowing. See, it's, it, your opinion on something is your identity now. Are you for the 911 regular story or the truth story, the non story? That people are, and, and you go back to McLuhan, I didn't finish that sentence, people are their, their opinion. It's, it's archetype. Now, this is when opinions are obsolete. But uh, McLuhan said in the 50s, why is social life becoming more interrogatory or interrogative? And the main thing that people asked, he said in the 50s and 60s, is that when you meet somebody, you go, what do you do? You have to know what they do before you get a, a bead on what they are. Now, that's gone way beyond that. But the interrogative... In the 70s, it was like, who was wearing the bell-bottoms and listening to the rock music? And, and what, media, what media you were wearing determined right, who you right, were. Right, right, right. And then the next so generation, like X's him. kids, they said, no, the Madonna thing is, I don't care what anybody's wearing. I'm just going to be a material girl, right? So, so that was a fragmentation that cable TV and... And VCRs and early computers brought into the kids of Generation X. Yeah, but see, I'm not. As a, as a, I think that's an interesting point, Bob. But I don't think I agree with that because, as someone who's a member of Generation X, I I definitely know that um, the tribal it, it was tribal in the sense that people wore their identity with their clothing. And what I'm going to say is that, and I think you'll agree with me, is that the tribal identity now is essentially what type of technical appendage that you choose, whether it's an iPad or what brand cell phone or what brand... Yeah, what I'm calling a mythic stage. Now, now Riffra, that, that's that. here's the thing. What you just said is valid because whatever Carol said, I responded, and that's generally seen as chemical body. But if you bring in a criticism, I go with you and say, yes, the multi-body thing means that on the chemical body they conform or don't conform. On the chip body they conform or don't conform. The breaking up that you're... You know, it's not either conforming or not, which you were criticizing the idea they, where I said they weren't conforming. That's true, but you have to bring in the four bodies and then figure out what levels they're conforming and not conforming yet. You see what I mean? Four yeah, different I contexts. I guess the, just the point that I was going to make is that it, it definitely felt like when, when in the 80s and the 90s, you know, you can look at someone the way they dress, and you can, know, this person's a preppy, this person's into hip-hop. So there's a, that subculture, mini, nano-tribalism, so right, to speak. Right, right, in the, in the West, at least, in the West, at least. Yeah, in the West. Now, and so that would be their consumer profile, which I would call their TV body, because I say the TV body is the passive consumption the passive of consumption. Right, whereas the chip body, you make your own spaces. So these kids would have their gothic subtribal subculture thing, but they were creating their own zines or their own this or that. Right, 
that's what's, it's interesting that you you call it the TV body because just as someone who participated extensively in skateboarding culture, that was very much having to do with with magazines. And I know like early punk movements like on in the Pacific Northwest or in DC or New York, they were all very like indie zine based. That's right. If you look at my chart, the Tino chart, you'll see the Dobbs Quadrant, the main sub medium is the magazine, because the magazine was the hidden ground from 1960 to 1990. People looked at Time Magazine to scan all the different activities that are happening. So it was the authority. It was the ground scan. And then as you get into the digital shrink of the media, the kids still wanted to do their magazine thing, but they made their own magazine, and that's Zine. And the Zine was a scan of all their consumption. Yeah, and I think I, think I would agree with that. I think maybe what's happening now is that you have people are – it's – Okay, to use your language, the, the whole idea of people, the extension of themselves as far as the clothes that they wear or even their own ideologies that they support, I think that's disappeared. And what you're seeing now actually is almost like people return to their body in a sense that they're doing yeah. extreme things with their body in a sense of identity. And that's why tattoos have become huge again. Like, have you ever noticed how insane tattoos have gotten if you go to New York or L.A.? I mean – and, and that's new. That wasn't like that 15 years ago. Yep. I know. And you know what? I get the the most extreme, what do you call it? I'm at the leading edge of seeing that because I see it on the beach every day. You can't believe you got the domestic perfect mother, you know, with her two little perfect kids, and she's got sprawled fucking tattoos all over her body. I yeah, know, Sue, your that? mother would have dropped dead if she saw that. Yeah, but why is that? What's the ah, McLuhan said television tattoos you, right? Tactile medium. You go back to McLuhan. So then as, as it became, we moved out of the TV body or TV landscape, and then it gets miniaturized in the TV body, and the new ground is the chip landscape, which then eventually gets shrunk to the chip body. In the transition from the tattooing, the invisible tattooing of TV, to the new environment, therefore the old TV becomes bigger. Everybody was retrieving their TV reality by having the TV tattooed on them, the, tattoo, the TV effect. Oh. There, was a quote, there was a great quote that you had from the first seminar, which was the retrieval of the aboriginal man, I think. And I, yeah. You know, if you look at aboriginal societies, tattooing is a rather ritual, but ritual has kind of disappeared, and now it just becomes maybe it's a... It's, the it's a scarring. They call it scarring of the chemical body. I see right, it as so, part of the just the the, uh, the search for the tribal again. That that you know, yeah, the tribal that's, that's effect. That's exactly not to right. be. Everybody keeps being super individual and starting their own business. They can't stand other people or other chemical bodies. But that's the image. So what I used to say 15 years ago that the the tattoo came in. You know what's his name? Psychic TV. Genesis P. Orridge. He's the one giving credit for initiating that thing of putting pins in your balls and, and your penis and your nipples and tattooing, right, uh, Rift? You know about, about Genesis P. Orridge. I, I actually don't, but I, I'll check that out. So he was the original subculture guy who, you remember the book, um, the research books? Research? Remember those books? Research, uh, research labs. Research what? Research labs, uh, throbbing gristle. Oh, Who's that speaking? Gristle, right. Bipple. Oh, okay, good. All right, tone it down. Your phone's very loud, you know, like last time. But it's, it's great to have you here. But, so, okay, so I said that the tattooing is the afterimage of the TV landscape. The stud in the tongue or the ear or the penis or the nipples was a distillation of the chip landscape. So by 2000, people were wearing an image of their TV body and an image of the, we'll say the TV landscape, 
and an image of the chip landscape with the stud in the, the little crystal in the tongue and the tattoo. And it's kind of the interesting thing about like, I guess to kind of ride on that is that how in rave culture in the 90s that um, piercing and that's what that's really where piercing came in. I mean, I remember like you'd see kids in like the late 80s and the 90s in the club scenes in New York, and you know everybody had their tongue pierced, and it was those that but those rave and that's what uh, what's his eight bit was talking about in the seminar a couple of weeks back where yeah eight bit you know, yeah. You know, he was, like, he, he was you know, part of that intensely. Yeah, it was interesting to hear him talk about that because you could tell that that environment was extraordinarily technical, technology, future forward. Like he, they were very yeah. much involved with embracing, um, you know, cyberpunk culture, and you know that was like the you know the pre-wired magazine, which ba- basically destroyed all that. So I said this. So wired uh, magazine is a corporate image of rave culture. What is? Wired magazine is the corporate image of rave culture. Yes. Now we're back in '93. It's well. I think it it became corporatized, and that's what, um, you know, it became a corporate image. While I mean, '93 is when the rave culture ended, like '93, '94, because the internet. The internet so when when the the Newhouse bought out, bought out Wired, he retrieved the rave culture. But it was a corporate image, whereas it wasn't. Yeah, the he retrieved the the image of it, the after image, the Android yeah. meme. The Android meme wanted to have an image of uh, rave culture, so they retrieved what had gone the year that Wired started, and then it was sold about 98, five years later. It's interesting, the only indie scene left is Islamic fundamentalism, if you can believe that. Well, that's what 8-Bit's part of. Now, this is interesting. Isn't that insane? No, I I inspired that. Listen to this. In 2005, 8-Bit and I met in New York, and it was fun talking to him. And uh, and he said he could do print. An, he was an internet savvy guy. He said he could print an interview with me right away or put one up. And I said, well, I like to have a picture of my father. No one's ever seen it. So I got you know the picture that the Church of Genius is based on. Rene Dobbs. He's the first to get it. And now that picture is very valuable. So I went down to his office and I stood there while he scanned it. And he had to give it back to me because there's no way I was sending him. He'd steal it or whatever. Who knows what he'd do with it? So I met Eight Bit in that context. He started talking to Mike somebody about me and what he'd learned from me. Now, Mike, do you know this Mike guy who wrote the novel about the, the punk Islamic punks? Um, I don't. Okay. He, it's a subculture. Anyways, so Mike wanted to meet me. So we did a walk around the reservoir around that time, 95, 96, a couple days or a couple of hours. And I don't know if he understood anything. He went home. He was working on a novel. Maybe he finished it. But it's about... Islamic Muslim kids here in America being punks. And isn't that what you just said? The punk is now, the Noah's Ark of punk is this, uh, Islamic kids, right? Well, yeah, I think what I'm, I think like I'm thinking about um, like kids that are probably, I mean, I don't think you can, I, I don't think you can be Indy at all in, in the West. I'm talking about more kids in, the, in Turkey. You okay, know, well, that's what this, so this, so there are a lot of those here in America. So Mike wrote a novel, got a little bit of a high profile, and then there was an argument between 8-Bit and him because 8-Bit was the one who, who told Mike this stuff. So Mike got a, a book written, and then bands were made, and they ripped off 8-Bit to the point they used 8-Bit's name, and he had to go have a big hassle over them not using his name. But 8-Bit was around the beginning of all that, and he was inspired by me. So that's another thing I inspired, <laughs> indirectly, you know, not consciously. But here's, here's the thing. Sue sent me Friday. Now, Friday is an interesting phenomenon. 
to fit into what we're talking about. You know, Friday, is Sue still here? You mean Friday the movie? Hi. No, Friday the, the 13-year-old girl who's got a big hit called Friday, it's weekend. Oh, Friday, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> YouTube okay. sensation with 39 million hits. Yeah, let me tell you, Sue, I did some instant research on that. I didn't know about it, but someone emailed us on it on Cashflow, right, Sue? Yeah. It came up. I read an email. I didn't know what it was referring to. And then shortly after that, that you sent me. the use. That was me. Oh, so why? Let's let's you be. You're the uh, a journalist or a, a reporter on assignment. What did you? What did you? What stood out about that phenomenon? Why did you send it to us? I sent it to you because this young girl. It's like she's tweeting. She her, the whole song is about like a tweet on a, a telephone to her friends, and it's like Friday and. Friday's here. It's all just simple little words, you know, me going to party, me going to celebrate. Um, And it's these kids that are between 10 and 13 years old, and they're all going to this party. And they're even in a car, but, of course, you can't drive when you're 13. And they're all excited about going to this party. And it looks all sweet and innocent, but they look like they're how it used to be with, like, 20 and 30 year olds getting all dressed up to go to some kind of event. Like American Graffiti, you know, back in 73, late teens, these are 13 to 14 year olds doing it. Or no, 10 year olds. Like 10 to 13 well, year olds. The, They're tweens. I think that's tw- interesting. And I'm going to tell you what that is is that that is, again, that is big business, the corporate image trying to get access to the largest untapped market in the West right now. Yeah, yeah that's our. And the Crummy and Fitch. Putting um, uh, Abercrombie and Fitch. Bra- yeah, eight-year-old padded bras in the bathing suits. Well, you get money because you put discarnate super angels interacting and reappearing, put them in an older medium, a song, a video, or a movie. And it's like Zappa wrote in, 19, in Life magazine in 1955 when they saw Blackboard Jungle, all these teenagers. They said, wow, they have our world in, in the movies. And it's just like any try, anybody gets, when they have an extension of themselves, they get suckered by it. So Zappa got suckered by it. He admitted it. Blackboard Jungle, you know, Bill Hillary comments right there on the movie. Now you have this digital rapid videos showing on YouTube. And so the corporate guy says, we've got to show an image of those 13 year because they need to see themselves. And it'll be instant success because no one's ever shown them lately. And the interesting oh. thing was right smack in the middle of this video, all of a sudden, there's a there's a, a, a scene with a black guy who's about thirty. Heavy years black old, guy and it, it, sitting uh, in yeah. a car, cruising. Uh, a, a gangster, a gangster cruising along, doing the rap. With a big diamond earring in his ear, singing along to the song. I'm going to a party. I'm going to have fun, and. You know, so there's this very sinister image, and then it gets back to the kids all getting yeah. to the party and all running into the party, and you're thinking, okay, is the gangster the the pimp coming? Is he the predator coming, or is he the drug dealer coming? Like, yeah. That to me, that was like the black swan of the tweenies. Mm. What is Black Swan about? About just black quickly. Black Swan is a movie that was just out, and it was. I know. What's it about? Quickly. It's about about the sweet ballerina that needs to access her dark side in order to be uh, right. real. Uh, I, got, I, got, I got it. Like Bla- Blue Velvet. Eh, a million movies. The same movie. Okay. So I wanted, So Sue sends you this. Then 
And then I, I so you I said, sent is me this your, the black swan of the tweenies? Right. But the thing is, is so I, I say, what's this? I look at it, and it's something that 70% of the world hates. They hate this little girl, Rebecca Black, for doing this. They, it's a serious issue. Mu- jobs are lost over whether you like this video or not. And then she's interviewed on ABC or whatever those shows are, 2020. And that's another scene. So all this phenomenon happened over the last couple of weeks, right, Sue? Well, it's bringing up the, the big fear of the parent, you know, that they can't protect their children against the dark forces. The very thing. You see how these unfold, these seminars? You see this, Sheila? We are yes. now back to what we started with, yes. right? Okay, yes. we're back to the fear of how the parents control the tweeting. Okay, mm-hmm. so I'm walking along the. Uh, you got that, Sheila? Is yeah, she but still it's here? not. It's it, uh, Bob. It's not controlling. I keep trying to tell you, they're trying to communicate. Just basically. Yeah, the machine, not the parents. The cell phone is trying to connect with the tweeting machine. Yeah, but I mean, but the thing about the parents is the issue is about having difficulty with just basic communication with their Yeah, offspring. that's what we're talking about. You, you think, well, communication is control. For parents, that's all they communicate about is control. What parent ever said anything else to a kid other than controlling them? That's okay, the role. Protect, protection. Yeah, it's yeah, that's their role. This is Ginny. I would just like to say that, yeah, I agree totally with you, Bob, because with parents, communication is control because they're, quote-unquote, concerned with their safety as though, quote-unquote, they could really get that job done. Right. That's their only yeah. job. That's what they're, they're – they're, they're humiliated if they fail that. That's right. And that's their whole identity as a parent is whether or not they succeeded. You know, yeah. it's like Chris Rock says, my only job as a dad is to keep my daughter off the pole, which is hilarious when you think about it. But well, I want to hear that. Who said this? Chris, Chris Rock. Rock. Chris Rock? Comedian, black comedian? Yeah, and what did he say? His number one job as a father is to keep his daughter off the pole, meaning the strip club, the strip pole. Oh, yeah, 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 right. Becoming a stripper. (laughs) That's his only job. Not to educate the kid. That's obsolete. You can't educate the kid. Don't don't do it. He's talking about my only job is the chemical body role. Yeah, that's that's not going to happen. Look at Lawrence Fishburne's daughter. What happened to her? Yeah. She became a porn star. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, the parents, see, parents are so obsolete that the way you begin to wake up the parents is, no, you're not trying to control them. You're trying to get your older technology to control them. You don't have a say in this at all because you can never control them nowadays. The kids that have more than one body. To be a parent is to limit yourself to one body. That's stupid. That will cause cancer. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think... That would be a great uh, symposium to have. Would be the actual obsolete role of a parent. Yeah. Obsolete. Well, here's the thing. It's worse than that. The the android me simulates chemical body activities, or the whole history of chemical body humanity. The android meme collapsed, and the android meme's image of a parent within its own machinic dynamic can't control the other machines, and it acts out in front of us. See, it's no people involved in what we're talking about. No chemical bodies. Yeah, you're say something. I'm not Marsha McLuhan, a replay of his chemical body. I'm the meme of McLuhan, at least on Mondays. Uh, Is this a decent volume? What'd you say? Is this a decent volume? No, it's too loud. (laughs) 
Okay. Okay. Now, Sue, I want you sent me that YouTube on Friday. Okay. I want to give you some my on the on the spot report. I'm walking along towards the beach. All the many aged tourists. There's these two 15 year olds walk along with no with nothing on, basically, right? And they're walking in front of me, and they're going towards the same beach. So I'm walking along behind them. So I said, hmm, this is what Friday's about, or Rebecca Blatt. This is the audience. So I jump around and jump in front of them. And I say to them, I look back and I say, it's Friday. And it was Friday, okay? I go, it's Friday. See if they would start celebrating. And they look at me like, what's this got to do with anything? And, And I said, don't you know the song Friday? And they both go, they both go, no. Then I describe it a bit more. Oh, that, ew! And they started to puke almost. Says that's a disgusting song. <laughs> they started, 50 year olds started saying that that song should be killed. Okay? You getting this, Sue? Now, why did they think it should be killed? Because they thought that's it was right. stupid? Or because they thought it was menacing? Or because they thought it was so stupid. Now, this is interesting. They're like 15-year-olds. They're light years more mature than the 13-year-old, right? So there might have been that age, age difference thing. But I, and so they stopped and were amazed that I even brought it up. And then I, then I started to – what did I say? I said um, – I started to talk about it. It didn't matter what I, I said. They said, you don't like it, do you? They were shocked. It looked like I liked it because I was talking about it. And I said, well, I don't get to hear that kind of music much, but someone sent me YouTube. It's a nice old danceable thing, but that's not the issue. And they go, well, I don't know. They're still upset that I liked it. They said, okay, you guys are, are cultural. You sound like cultural, advanced, sophisticated people. Uh, you, you don't want crappy art in your life. Are you aware of Frank Zappa? <laughs> You said that to them? Yeah, I said that to them. Because they're being hoity-toity, you know, like, hey, that's low. We want the real good stuff, right? It's got to be valuable or whatever their values are. So I said, you ever heard of Frank Zappa? No. And I said, have you ever heard of Moon Unit? And they go, no. And there's this tall, swarthy black guy walking by us when I said Moon Unit. He goes, yeah, Zappa! And he keeps walking. He might have been 55 years old. He goes, yeah, Zappa! And he keeps on walking. So he interrupts the scene. And I said, you support me? And he goes, yeah. So, you know, any talk about Moon is a friend of mine. So they're confused by all this. So then I gave another, what did I say next? I said, okay, you guys want to have value. You're in your ear experience, and you don't like this cheap Friday stuff. You're going to have to encounter uh, Zappa at some point, or at least Moon Unit. And they just looked really puzzled, and they were starting to look around like little minds. They're like, mm, where are we? What is this worth thinking yeah. about? And then <laughs> I turned around and walked off. Is he a predator? Yeah. Is he a, it, was not, it was not worrying about me. They were trying to figure, I could see their minds, uh-oh, this is a new pattern. Should we accept this pattern? Zappa, what's that? You know, I could see them quizzically trying to adjust their sense of themselves by this interloper. So, anyways, that was my experience of Friday. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you one thing, Bob? Is this too loud? Yeah. Okay. No, that, that seems to be okay. Okay, guess what the name of the production company is that produced that um, video you're talking about? Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's like a school name, a lab, art lab or something. It's capital A, capital R, capital K. Arc, that's right, Noah's Ark, right. Yeah. 
And, so and it's, it's like, a place, it's a school that, or a place they go to learn how to audition for American Idol or something stupid, right? I, I, I didn't, after I saw that it was produced, but I haven't seen the video after I saw that it was produced, I was like, thank God that like these people couldn't organize something this slick to fool this many people to thinking it was actually worth wasting their time. But it was just kind of like the same thing that you said Zappa thought when he saw Blackboard Jungle. It's a co-opting misinterpreted in the translation of production. No, he didn't think it was co-opted. He loved it. He was loving well, it. Was... Well, but he later on said that he was seduced by it. No, he never, he never, no, he never said both that. He just said, he started complaining about uh, 10 years later how kids were seduced by rock and roll in general. But, and that's a good point. I don't know if he, object, he didn't hate rock and roll. He just basically said, you guys can't get to hear all this stuff. But he was, show, he was really doing a McLuhan. He's saying this stuff is real important. He's talking to parents in 968 and Life magazine and how they're not understanding the hippie culture and the counterculture and all this stuff or the new psychedelic music. And he's trying to tell them this stuff is new lungs, new oxygen. I identify with this stuff. Not against it, but just, like McLuhan saying this is new nature. So he was taking that medium as a message angle in his limited non-McLuhan, non-expertise way. Okay, I remember I that. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, like in 2001, there was a song by some anonymous pop band. It was the same kind of thing, but it was 2001. And I remember there was one line in it, and it said, go on to ICQ. And ICQ was like the first instant message. It was the Twitter before Twitter. Though some people say Twitter came out in 2001. It didn't really come into uh, you know, prominence until that hmm. guy landed a plane on the Hudson River. But, right. um, so that was the first reference I heard. And it's just all it is is just a replay of the kids natively going towards the newest technological thing, like in the 80s for me was arcades. Wait, 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 what's a replay of that? Of uh, this, um, well, I, I haven't seen the no, video. No, no, what's the Sue, down? Sue, Sue mentioned that in the Rebecca Black video, it's like kind of like the narrative is uh, created by tweets, and then the black guy is kind of like he tweets as well. No, no, the narrative of boat is in the style of tweet. Actually, it's not, to me, it didn't look like a tweet. What she does, it, it shows the alarm going off at 7, She's lying in bed. She opens her eyes, and she says, it's Friday. And then it says, it has an image of Monday and her assignment. Do essay. Then an image of her diary Tuesday did something. Wednesday something. Thursday something. These quick flashes, right, Sue, of the image. And I don't know if that's tweeting, but it's what she was doing. Then Friday was weekend. So she gets up, and it shows her run around the house, trying to get busy, and her family's busy. And what's interesting, she goes out to the bus stop, and a car comes along. And that car, I think of Adam McGoyan's thing. He, he said he was amazed at his social interacting ability of his son, uh, interacting with the other kids, male, female, like uh, it's real fun to be with people, whereas he, being a Generation Xer, didn't like people. It, you know, it thought it was better to be alone. That's when you develop your imagination. I, I think of Adam McGoyman seeing his son interacting with these other people uh, in an in a extreme phatic way, but enjoying the phatic, that's what they show. She looks at the car, and they're all having fun. They're all waving, giving her signs, and then she says, decides whether to go in the bus or in the car. So she gets in the car, and she's, I guess, Sue, it's, she it's says, I didn't... It's probably another no-no from her parents is to get into a car. She right, but I'm now thinking the tweet aspect. She goes, should I get in the car or should I stay here? And probably she tweeted that question. Maybe that's the meaning. She tweeted, I'm here. Should I get in a car or shouldn't I? Maybe that's what you mean. It's about tweeting. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah well, like when, before the guy landed the airport. Are we all familiar with that? Some guy. Uh, no, no, let's yeah. not go over it. No, don't go into another story. Let, okay. Let's figure out this thing. 
So, so she, let me just finish tell you what it is, is that so she gets in the car and they go along, she's singing, and then the black thing came on, the black guy, and I thought, what the hell is this? I thought someone jammed my, my computer, you know what I mean? Yes. It's shocking when the black guy comes in, a gangster, and he's driving along, and then I don't even know what he's singing, I catch it the second time, and then he's gone, and then it's back to her in front of her crowd at school singing the song, and it's... And yet her voice is good. Oh, this is what I told the girls. This is what. So they're saying, ooh, ooh, we won't live. You can't talk about that. So I went for the jugular. I said, you know what Lady Gaga said? And, and they go, no, what? I said, Lady Gaga said that, that uh, Rebecca is a genius and, and do not take it seriously, Rebecca. She said this on TV somewhere. That if they think it's uh, cheesy, it's not. Your stuff is genius. And I said that's Lady Gaga. And they go, they were shocked. Lady Gaga said that? Like, their whole world collapsed. It's like, McClellan is not a Catholic, you know, or something. Zappa did take LSD. Anyways, the, 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 they were shocked in that moment that their embedded hero, Lady Gaga, I assume, uh, approved the dirt. Hmm. That's the important part. I forgot that. So, anyways, uh, so this, but I thought it was an interesting texture in her voice. It was she almost like a robotoid voice, right? <laughs> is it auto-tune? I don't know what it is, but it's not. It's got an, a timber, a timber, a pitch, or odd machinic quality to it. So but what's like incredible so. is she's so pretty in the classic sense. And then when she gets interviewed, they, they, they and they interview the mother, and the mother says, "I could like she got you know slammed immediately. Email everybody hating her commentary." And so you wonder, what's this little 13 and how she take it? The mother said there were about four times over the last couple of days, I would have killed someone. That's what the mother said. So then they go, the, the, Rebecca, and she says, uh, well, you know, yes, I did cry at the beginning. And then I realized, what the heck, who are these people? And then she's sitting there all beaming, and she actually went through a quick transformation, and she's quite cool now. About it. She established her autonomy. And well, she Lady said, Gaga told her not to pay any attention to it. Yeah, I don't know if that helped her. She didn't say anything about that. So then she said, um, they said, okay, uh, can you sing? And she's yes. They said, okay, sing the uh, national anthem. She does it, and it's pretty good. And so everybody said, oh, she, she can sing. And so she said, look, everybody's saying I'm the worst thing that ever happened in the history of music. No, I'm not the worst singer. I'm not the best singer, but I'm not the worst. I'm competent. And she was very mature. She did not seem like 13. And I was very impressed with the, what, how she is now. She went through the fire. Came out of it pretty cool. Okay, so now you can talk, Bipple. I'm finished. Okay, well, all, of, all I was going to say was that um, we only really heard about the, the value of Twitter only really was understood by the masses when there was a, an event like an emergency or breaking news like the pilot landing on the Hudson River or the Iran you know, revolution before revolutions became, I guess, more streamlined and successful like they did this past few months. And, and before and that... And what was it? Why tw Twitter was there and no one had anything to Twitter about and that was the first time once a few people had Twitter that they could Twitter about. Is well, that, that what you're saying? Yeah, ex exactly right, Bob. That's what happened. Is like once it was like, you know, seemingly like a quote-unquote important breaking news yeah. event, then all of a sudden everyone's like hearing Anderson Cooper say Twitter and they're like, what did he say? Twitter. Tweet us on thing. And they're like, what? And my mom and dad who were like in their 70s like, did he, what did he just say? Is that a cartoon? <laughs> what are they talking about? And so, um, 
So before that, though, it was like Julia Roberts. You know, people would make fun of it. like, oh, wow, she just went to the washroom. Everybody, let's go to this side of the restaurant, and then all of us put up our left. It was like used flash mobs for the dumbest things ever. That's what Twitter right. was being used for. It's like, we're all going to Chipotle after the, new, or after, the media, after the job speech. We're all going to Chipotle to, like, you know, revel in our early adopterness. And then, right. you know, right. after now that, you know, and, and that's all it was. And be like, oh, guess what happened? What happened? The Twitter network went down. Oh, we're so cool because we know what that means. And it's just um, no one gave a shit. And then a few events happened. And then the Gulf War of 1991, which put CNN on the map really yeah. on a big level, that, that's what yeah. this was. Exactly. Yeah. And you it's, know, I, it's I, like, I you know. I think that's an interesting uh, take on that, but I, would, I think I disagree. And the reason I'm going to say that is because I think that, what one thing that Twitter and microblogging does um, is that it kind of retrieves a very natural, humane, creative impulse. And I know it's probably trivial to think, well, just because someone can put, you know, 200 characters on a dashboard and publish it to the world, that might not be the most revolutionary, or extraordinary credit act, but it is. You know. But wait, wait. When you say humane, that's a literate value. You know, I mean, we're here in the McLuhan context. Humane, any of your words, you've got to put four meanings because you've got at least four parts of the world that that word means differently in. So that's why I don't have an opinion. I wouldn't say a simple, one-leveled statement. Well, because that, what's humane in different cultures? All right, so let me rephrase that. If you don't agree with that, what I'll say is that it's, it's, um, it's allowing people to produce content. And I think people feel good after they produce content. You mean uh, on YouTube or something? What's well, the content? Yeah, I, think, I, think, I think people, irrespective of applying value judgments to it, which I would probably agree with the previous talker about what he was saying, but I think the value is that the reason it's so popular is that people for so long in the literate age, it was very, um, you know, you had producer and audience, whereas the audience usually did not, couldn't afford the capability, their public couldn't afford to put a book together, couldn't afford to produce a television show. But now they're actively producing content. I think people feel good about that, and that's why the success of microblogging and so on. Okay, so, so Riff Router, McLuhan begins in the 50s or 60s when Xerox happening, saying this is a revolution. It's going to really upset the publishing industry because a human Absolutely. being can now make their own book, right? So the revolution of the effects of Xeroxing was McLuhan's thing. And his pattern was everybody moves from being consumer to producer, or at least producer-consumer. So the idea of producing uh, data and materials that, you know, before World War II, nobody had access to doing that, uh, this producer thing is sped up, replayed homeopathically, and Twittering is replaying, archetypalizing the producer mania that the Xerox created in the instant multi-level media of yeah, Twittering. But, now, but don't you think that, don't you think that the, the act of... of of producing books as an academic image because I don't see tweeting or that entire microblogging culture as an academic image. I think no, 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 it's not an academic. I'm academic. saying Xeroxing was. Well, Look, it would take nobody had access to a printing press unless they owned one. So when Xerox, came, I agree with you, but I also think that the reason why um, you know Xeroxing did not produce the same type of effect that tweeting did on a mass cultural level. Of course it didn't. It's, a, it's analog media. Okay. McLuhan is his first sentence in 1953 in the first essay in Exploration says, the desire for people or the ability or the natural tendency to express yourself. So all through history, people want to express themselves as natural. In a speech acoustic society, everybody can talk so it's democratic. When you get into writing and in print 
print levels, it becomes hierarchical who gets to express themselves with the common extension of print. Then you get the uh, uh, electronic form, who gets to be on the radio. And so you look at everybody going to Hollywood in the 20s and 30s because they wanted to express themselves in their medium. The common denominator that human beings want to translate themselves whenever a new media environment comes along. The great thing about the digital, it allows everybody to express themselves in all different forms of media. And the Twittering is just hyper-fast at it. Okay, so my question to you is that how come you didn't have 13-year-old girls becoming pop sensations? Well, maybe you did. You have Michael Jackson, I guess, in a sense. Yeah, what period are you talking about? Well, I guess I'm trying to kind of negotiate the contrast. That's what happened to Elvis. When, when they put, they had to kill the image of Elvis because it was a revolution uh, on TV right in everybody's living room, uh, this vibrating, amazing idiot. And uh, so that, ha- that had to be killed by, in the image TV landscape. Put him in the army, shave his hair. What comes in after that? They, they stop uh, Alan Freed, and they bring it through the payola scandal, and then it's all the Bobbies. Bobby Vinton, Bobby V. And that's when you get the little teen 13-year-old idol. Yeah. Late 50s, early 60s. And what you're talking about, the Michael Jackson or, or whatever, that started after Elvis. And that's that was what McClure called a programmed environment. It became, rock music became a programmed environment. I, I, the one, one thing I do want to add about the, about the, the microblogging issue, and I think, it's, I think that might be the thing that might just save us. And the reason, and I'm, the reason I'm going to say that is because um, the ability for people to produce content might be the difference between them picking up a gun and running out in the streets. But you've got to say which body is being saved. Us is to one level. It's also I'll an illusion, too. I'll have to leave that up for you guys. No, if you say you if you say it's a word illusion or a vibration, one word designation doesn't tell you anything because there's nothing to compare it to. You got to have a relationship. Objects are unobservable, so an illusion is not real. Right. <laughs> I said illusion. Riff Router didn't say illusion. I said illusion. Who said it? Um, Richard Bipple. Okay, it's all right. Uh, it, uh, that's monadic, what they call monadic, you know, calling something a, a one word. It ain't yeah. a word. It's a ratio of two-figure grounds is what we're looking at first. That's McLuhan's point. No, I mean, it's an illusion just because um, in the same way that I could get a pen. What and does write, illusion mean? It I'll doesn't tell you, mean anything. Like, okay, well, illusion, um, uh, an illusion of difference that tweeting is different than uh, writing something down on a piece of paper. I mean, oh, okay, wait a minute. Now, you're I mean. saying that to state there is a difference is error, a fa- fallacy. Exactly. Do you know that McLuhan agreed with you? That's what he said to, Woody, to the guy in Woody Allen. You think my whole fallacy is wrong. Well, uh, uh, abstractly, I'm from Winnipeg, and Lady Gaga was interviewed by Google this past week, and the first time she heard anything on the radio was in Winnipeg. So I don't know what that means, but I just threw it out there anyway. And, you know, I was just thinking about today... Uh, see, I'm part of the Winnipeg School of Media Ecology, created by uh, Dark Matter and myself, and I was telling him about you. And, of course, McLuhan came from Winnipeg, basically. You're born in Edmonton, but grew up in Winnipeg. And I was thinking, you know, in 1972, I actually won a medal in a competition. I was acknowledged as a good athlete, and it happened in Winnipeg. And I thought today, that was predicting that I'd be the new McLuhan. Um, Bob, <laughs> Bob. Can I Did tell anybody you here? Anybody I know here? Anybody here besides Bipple and is Foo Fighters still here? Everyone's still here. Yeah. I'm still working. Is, is Sue here? Is Sheila? Is uh, I'm still here. we're here, Bob? We're here. 
Yeah. Well, I wanted oh, to Sue I'm to laugh here at that. Too. Sue, don't. Sue, this I, I want paddling. I like it. Pa- what? This is ripping. I like it. Yeah, I was paddling for Mick Mac in 1972. He went to Winnipeg, and we actually got second place in the Horkina race. We got a medal. <laughs> okay, guys. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking today, see, that's me getting that thought about the significance of Winnipeg resonates with what you're saying, Bipple, you know, many hours later. That shows you the oneness of the day, the resonating overlap, the composition of the day, because I was picking up in a way, what you were going to point out about the importance of Winnipeg. Well, I'm going to point out this now. I'm going to point out that I'm at my job, and I'm going to point out that I was born in 1972. Aha! See? See how it gets good, Ginny? It gets better and better. Love you guys. (laughs) I think he had to go. He's at work. So, you like that, Sue? Yeah, I do. Yeah, actually. actually, He's probably born on the day I got the medal. That would have been August. We'll have to find out next week if he was born in August 72 <laughs> or 22 days later or something. <laughs> That's so, who is, I'm, I'm just, uh, this is scintillating, and it's so difficult to tear myself away. I wish that the show would be uh, ending, but I'm sure it'll go on for a while. Look, just think, don't worry about your body. Why don't you stay up all day? What's the matter? That's fine for you to say over there in Hawaii. <laughs> you think I'm over here? I'm in the same space as you. Anyway, listen, sports fans, I'm going to uh, sign off here, and we'll see you all next week. Okay, well, it'll get yeah. better every week. Good. Yay. I, love it. I love it. It's excellent, Bobby. Yeah, so you get to hear. What's interesting, it's applying the formula of McLuhan, and that's a guaranteed interesting conversation. It's too bad the culture doesn't know how to do it. Yeah, well, you're teaching us. Yeah, the three people. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> hey, Bob. Well, you always said, Bob, that the, you know, you were the the be- biggest artist in the world, and uh, you had six followers. Was <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like Beefheart said, there are 40 people in the world, and five of them are hamburgers. That that's my audience. <laughs> okay, you hamburger. Talk talk soon. Right. And I'm not intending that. I don't care about that. I'm just interested in people knowing the delight of this kind of looking way to look at social bullshit. It is delightful. It is fun. And it seems like every week something else comes up that we can look at. So. Yeah, yeah. And that's the way it was the McLuhan Seminar. He didn't have to prepare for it. He just showed up, and then people show up, and there would be always some new person who knew something uh, about some industry that no one ever heard of before. We heard from Riff Router the phrase flash crash. Never heard that before. That's an interesting word. For me, it's like this is like a great big bag of brain candy, so I'm on a sugar high right now. Right, and you won't be able to sleep, so you might as well stay here. <laughs> no, I've got to go right now, but I'll talk again next week. Okay, well, thanks for showing up. later. Okay, bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey, Bob, i got to go, too. Who's that? Who just yeah, said what is male? Flash crash? What, what, what male voice said they got to go? Foo. Well, Foo, you didn't get to say anything. I, you've got to stay another minute or two and say something. Uh, I'm at work, too. Oh, okay, well, Foo, we're supposed to have a private conversation. I'm waiting for you to set the time. Yeah, I changed computers. I'm going uh, to get that straightened out, and I'll, uh, I'll send you an email. Yeah, you set the time, and then we fine-tune it. Awesome. Okay, talk to you later, then. Right, it's been great. Thanks. Okay, Fu. Bye. So, uh, Sue, you were saying? What is Flash Crash? The Rift, is Rift Router still here? No, the uh, Flash yeah, Crash was the thousand-point drop on the stock market that recovered quickly. Yeah. Well, it was actually, the there was, there was, that was happened last May. 
um, which was arguably triggered by um, some events by some hedge funds and some high-frequency trading models that went ARI. But um, the one that I was particularly referring to happened two weeks ago, and they called the quote-unquote mini-flash crash, whereas it dropped a few hundred points in the span of 10 minutes. Um, now, since right. the actual flash crash, they've instituted certain types of safeguards um, so that, number one, um, and, and forgive me if I'm getting too deep into the technology. No, no, let, let me say this, Riff Router. Hey, Sue, this is a yeah. perfect example of what went on the McClellan Seminar. Riff, Riff Router is right in the middle of the Android meme after image of Wall Street. He could tell us a lot about the, the subculture that he works in, so we should give him the forum and Sue ask, or somebody, ask him questions when, he, when you run out, because he has a lot of interesting things to say, and we'll figure out how he describes the quantum economy and see if McLuhan applies that or Finnegan's Wake or whatever. All right? Wow. And, and Riff Router has written for Arthur Coker's journal, Caesar. So he is our jest of honor for the next while. So tell us as deep as you want to, Riff Router. Right. So I guess uh, to describe what the flash crash was, so imagine um, what Wall Street is today is essentially um, it's nothing but computers that are running what are called high-frequency trading models that are written by PhDs. Um, from University of Chicago and MIT. And what they do is that they take economic theorems, um, something like, for instance, uh, the Black-Scholes theorem, which was um, authored by a guy who won a Nobel Prize for doing it, a guy named Fisher Black who worked at Goldman Sachs in the 70s. And he predicted a, created a mathematical model that said um, he could price a derivative or an option on a particular stock, say IBM, based upon the actual spot value or the price of the stock that was traded on the New York Stock Exchange. So, you know, you can buy an option to buy a particular stock at a particular price at a particular point in the future. And there's option markets, like, for instance, the Chicago Board of Trade, um, where you can buy the option to buy IBM stock on another market. And those two options, which are derivatives, and the spot stocks, which is like the Dow Jones Industrial Average and stuff that's traded in New York Stock Exchange, they're constantly fluctuating in price, and there's models that this guy Fisher Black created, it's just one of them, that would correctly predict the price of the option based upon the price of the underlying stock. So if you can imagine that happening on a tremendous scale all over the world, you know, thousands of different instruments or stocks you can invest in, and there's constantly people writing models to look at arbitrage possibilities, um, whereas if you you know, if, if the option is priced higher or lower based upon where the spot price of the stock is, then if you can immediately take advantage of that arbitrage situation, you make a great deal of money. So, you know, going back to it, if you have all these models that are literally taking in information and pricing data off of this financial market, and then they're making tra they're generating trading signals or they're saying, I'll buy this or sell this based upon what the price of the stock is or how many shares are being traded, um, you know, it, it's all automatic. It's not human beings. So right. there, because of that, it's not that easy to put the stop in the activity happening because it's, number one, I mean, the whole principal idea behind Wall Street today really is if you can make a penny, you know, a million times a day, it ends up being a lot of money. So let me just interject, Riff. Anybody, doesn't this sound like the machines doing the, the, the trading and not human beings? Software programs and algorithms exactly talking to each other. Is. Isn't that the Android meme, what I'm talking about? That's exactly yeah. what it is. Does anybody have any questions? 
Cool. Yeah, go go with it, Sue, or anybody else. I mean, if you guys have any questions. Um, well, so these are all really set up by big organizations, though, mm-hmm. right? Well, it depends. I mean, you definitely have um, like there's a there's a company that's called TradeBot, and they're in. Surprisingly, there's a few companies that have sprung up in the middle of the country that have um, become quite successful only because they've figured out some, you know, interesting novel approaches to making money. Um, you know, this all actually began by this guy named James Simon, and he's an interesting guy to look up because he was the former chair of the math department at MIT, and he left it in 1970 and started a company called Renaissance Technologies, and they were the first so-called high-frequency trading firm. Um, but it is, I mean, I think those smaller, the smaller hedge funds probably have a little bit more of an advantage because they can take more risks. I mean, if you're a Goldman Sachs or if you're a Morgan Stanley or if you're a large bank, um, you know, by law, and, you know, you're legally bound to how much risk you can actually take. And we actually saw the impact of that, which happened in 2008 with, you know, Bear Stearns failing and Lehman Brothers failing. So, um, I think it depends. You know, so I think it you depends. mean big banks are really constricted these days? Well, they are. I mean, you know, surprisingly, you think that, I mean, uh, there's a lot of the, the amount of regulation that banks have to deal with when they do things like this is quite extraordinary. I mean, obviously they pay some very expensive lawyers a lot of money to find the loopholes in those laws, but um, they are actually fined a great deal of money quite frequently. Um, and does does it really matter to them when they're making tons and tons? Well, it's tough. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that, and this is going to go right into what Bob would say, is that, you know, literally, you know, a, a bad headline can destroy a company in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, it can start a panic on the on the. It can start a panic in the market. That's basically what happened to Lehman Brothers. Whereas, there were some rumors floating around, and suddenly people started withdrawing their money, and next thing you know, the company couldn't pay his depositors, so, um, you know, they had to call in, you know, create the bailout. Mm-hmm. But kind of, I that's a little bit of a drip, but going back to, like, the flash crash, so if you have, you know, thousands of these hedge funds and banks um, buying and selling securities, and it's operating electronically, so it's not human beings, it's actually computers that are generating, you know, thousands of trade per sec- thousands of trades per second. Um, it's quite difficult to stop that. It's almost like an avalanche. Um, well, um, so, you think that it would be crashing several times a week or several times a day? Well, I think it actually probably does, but at different scales. It 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 it, it does at different scales. So and for probably, different different sectors, industry right, I mean, materials. Right, and and, and uh, but so and they've also gotten a lot better at trying to figure out how to prevent that. So one thing that happened as a result of the flash crash is they said, you know, before, you know, if you you could literally just go and put up a bid for a stock way out of the money. So if a stock was trading at fifty dollars a share, you know, you could actually go, well, I'll pay fifty cents a share for it, and everyone and everyone else in the marketplace thought that was. You know, human beings would say, "Oh, you're nuts. Nobody's going to take the other side of that bid." But now there's machines that don't have the human intelligence to make that decision. So what happens is that, you know, everything it actually is takes the market in a different direction. So everything is possible. It really is, and but now they, but but that, and that's basically what happened on May fifth, two thousand and two thousand and ten. Um, 
and to, and and uh, you know since then they've instituted these safeguards to prevent that. So if if a, if a if a if someone in, if someone puts a bid in to buy something or and asks to sell something that's a certain percentage out of where the actual market price of the stock is, then it's then it's considered invalid and the trade gets broken. But um, but with re- with reference to, I think I was the reason I brought this all up. I kind of went on a long-winded journey here, but bear with me. But the reason I brought this up is because, um, you know, two weeks ago, right after this, you know, as Fukushima was you know melting down and so on, you know, the EU nuclear minister came out in public and was quoted as saying, you know, the situation is going from bad to critical very quickly, and it doesn't look very good. And you know, immediately the market. You know, dropped like 200 points in five minutes, huge mm-hmm. sell-off, and that was again triggered by words. You know, and so when we talk about someone like Ben Bernanke, yes, like the things that traders pay extraordinarily extraordinary levels of attention because he has the power to move the markets either way. By his words. Exactly, because he might come out, so he'll speak in Congress, and if he, you know, inflation, jobs, especially inflation, the Federal Reserve. I mean, you know. You know the 21st century model of the Federal Reserve really is, you know, they print the money, they control the money supply, you know, and they're constantly trying to manage how much money is out there in circulation and whether trying to gauge whether or not there's an inflationary environment or there's a deflationary environment. Um, now it's been in, in tremendously inflationary. That's why, you know, 40 years ago you could buy a candy bar for five cents and now it's two bucks. Right. Um, but that's why you know traders pay attention to exactly what he says when he speaks in public, because the market is known to react very strongly, um, even based upon the very subtle things that he says. So, you know, you can look at every day. There's the you can log into Bloomberg and you can see the economic calendar on Bloomberg, and it'll say, well, these are all the things that are being announced today. You know, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York chairman speaking at two, and he's going to talk about the economy, and mm. you know, and people look to see how the market's going to react. Okay, so let me say this. So the it first, is, is, is the, it, hey, Sue, is it the, uh, hold your the question. blood pressure Sue, of the nation? Your, can you hear me, Sue? Hold your yes, question. Yes, I can. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I want to, because he said a lot, here's an interesting pattern. Do you know who was the first person to describe the environment he's describing? No. McLuhan. He did it in September 21st, 1974, in an op-ed in the New York Times called A Media Approach to Inflation. And it's there where he said the word makes the market. Now, Riff Router knows this from his own experience. But did you know he said it almost 40 years ago, Riff Router? Well, I re- you know, I actually read um, that. That article? I read that article last year. So, um, And it's about the beginning of the post-tactile environment and how you can d- divide up and sell anything. Some of the responses Sue made and things that Riff's saying are in or covered in that article. Would you agree, Riff Rider, if you remember? Yeah, it? absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. I mean, you know, they're looking for an economic genius all through the 80s and 90s, and McLuhan was it in terms of explaining the ground and why hmm. futures in, in the nano trade would take over, and that meant gambling mania. And that anything, like you said, Sue, anything is available for any kind of valuation and immediate collapse of that valuation at the same time. Hmm. So that article, which we featured Five Body, is really important. And, you know, no economist knows about it. Harold Channer, I gave it to him. He didn't understand the significance of it. But I, I would say that that article was, a, was the last human being 
talking about the coming of the Android meme. And any comment after that, like the Shoals uh, formula and all those things, Black that's Shoals, the Android right. meme talking about what McLuhan said. But the Android meme says it and provides the formulas. Yeah, well, and so, CNBC is totally, what? Uh, CNBC and all the business news channels are totally integral in the market itself now, where it used to just be like a newspaper would print the stock prices and you would sort of have analysts in the background. Now you pretty much have to watch CNBC the entire business day and it's controlled and it's nonsense half the time, but you can pretty much get around CNBC and that's right. Okay, so, so Matthew, I, in a minute I'd like you to bring in, quote, the conspiracy type of questions, see how Riff Router, Riff Router handles that or, or enlightens this. But the, McLuhan said that news became part of the economy in the 20s with radio. So where you're saying that um, you, can't, you would read the newspaper back then and it wasn't as involving as now. But the better way to say it is that, yes, it did, the news thing and the word taking over the market started to happen in the earliest phases in the 20s and then and led to the crash. But it was mainly just in New York and the major urban centers around the world, not for the guys out in Michigan and, you know, the little small towns. But um, then when the digital environment replays what happened in the 20s for everybody on the planet and off the planet in the same membrane, then that requires even more panic involvement. So you look at the degrees of the replay of a pattern set down 100 years ago or even back at the telegraph. That's why Marshall wrote a book called Clichéd Archetype. Speech became an archetypal bomb under these conditions, and that's Bernanke. He's more dangerous than the latest Harp experiment because what he says can affect trillions of people. Like you say, the word makes the market. Yeah, and that was first said in 1974 <laughs> – and, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to, uh, to be around Marshall and read that, that thing as soon as it was happening, but I already knew it from the Secret Council 10. But it was great to see someone say it. It's always great to have something. Humans love language. They love to have something said. That's our main So what joy happened to the stock market after McLuhan uh, ma- said this paper? Did it uh, have Nobody any read it. Nobody understood it. It was <laughs> called a media, a media approach to inflation. It was right when Dr. Beter was servicing, and Dr. Beter coined the term stagflation in that year, 73, mm-hmm. 74. And what was that? That was the beginning of two environments. There was stagnation for the chemical body and jobs, but inflation for the digital thing that was just starting. So it's stagflation. And McLuhan didn't address that. I don't know if the word was that popular or known in, when he wrote it in the summer of 74, but he uh, was building on what he wrote in Take Today. That's why Take Today is probably the best guide to all this stuff as a book. And mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by a homeopathic, tinier and tinier replay of a cliche that becomes archetypal. I mean, huge, right? Cliche is just like Rebecca Black is, a, is a, the last word right now, becoming eventually cliche. Then she'll be retrieved as an archetype in the memories of the 13-year-olds when they're 35 years old. That's good. And, that, and, and somebody... Uh, somebody brought this up in a tape. It might be in the book Understanding Me, a collection of talks by McLuhan put together by his daughter. Uh, it's a recent book. And I think one of his talks I saw on TV Ontario in the mid-70s is in there. But the kid in the audience says, so you're saying, this is when he st- they started to hear cliched archetype, that idea, a little bit. And they didn't know it was way more important than understanding media. That's what McLuhan said, that book from Cliche Archetype. 
So he said, so the guy says, so you're saying that if the movie obsolesces the book and then the TV obsolesces the movie and he goes through this sequence, then that means this, whatever he said. And he's like a big guy. Is it true that that means this, that we've arrived there? And McLuhan said, we've done that many times. That's happened a thousand <laughs> times. The cycle, the turnover. This guy was just beginning to see the cycle. Hmm. Then he had to deal with McLuhan saying, oh, the cycle's happened a hundred times. That's what I mean by Orphe Broke Spirals on my uh, thing. Twittering is a world of Orphe Broke Spirals. Say that one again. Actually, I'd correct that. A Twittering is just spiraling nanospirals. It's the, it's the web, point, web, two point, web point 1.0 is Orphe Broke Spirals. You can't have all-encompassing spirals anymore or even Baroque, Baroque um, uh, elaborate statement. You know, Twitter, you got to be 140 characters. It's it's nano. <laughs> I just made an insight about my own chart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Yay, cracking my chart. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was asking, is uh, is the market then at now uh, the blood pressure of the Android meme? It was, but not anymore. It was. See, this thing, what, what Riff Rudder works in doesn't exist anymore. And like he, he has a strange thing, having a job in a world, and there's lots of stuff he can't tell us, but <laughs> if he told you how it's programmed, it's so ridiculous. Right, Riff Rudder? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, well, that's what, for me, it's like, I think my understanding of it is, um, I mean, you know, I'm obviously certainly understand the, the 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 ideas behind fiat currency and the fact that, you know, like no, I don't mean that level. The virtual well, well, reality, I, I, the, the well, Ron Pauls, right. the Ron Pauls oh, okay. don't understand the the virtual economy. No, you understand the virtual economy. Why don't you tell? Well, let's have well, Matthew what ask whatever if this relates to the bloodline of Jesus or whatever Matthew would bring up. Matthew, I'm just making fun of you, but bring in your top-down conspiracy questions or what you would say to this, because he's living in New York, too. Um, well, yeah, I've worked for major brokerages. I've worked for mortgage companies. I, I know all about arm trading. Um, but I know... I mean, I'm all into, like, Nazi conspiracy and how the CIA funded the Federal Reserve and how they still run the Fed, and how it's... And now they do what isn't even possible years ago, where they... I had always talked about how they buy their own bonds back. And the Fed don't mention Ion. <laughs> hey, right. no, I'm sorry we mentioned... Fuck you, Ion. You can't come in. We're not bringing... We're not evoking you. Don't mention Ion, please. Okay, but carry uh, on, Matthew, you were saying. Good, we wouldn't have uh, it any fuck, other no. way. Everybody <laughs> ignore him. <laughs> Fucking ignore him. Ignore the fucker. <laughs> and so the Federal Reserve is part of the whole skull and bones German Illuminati structure that goes back 2,000 years. And so, I mean, I mean, you could just fuck around. I mean, there yeah, is we a, know we know what you're referring structure. to. Riff Rider, how would you, you, if there is truth to what Matthew's saying, how do you see it reflected in the Android meme or what? You know, I want to your response. I, well, I think I, I think that's interesting. I probably subscribe to that idea as well. But I think what what we're really subscribing to, perhaps, is 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 a replay of something that existed as a result of probably having a lot to do with 
print culture as well as the spread of these. I mean, the only reason that you know people have really gotten onto these ideas in the mass in mass is really probably is a result of the digital environment. I mean, people weren't really talking about not many people were talking about the Federal Reserve in 1975 unless you know you were on the inside. But now, you know, as a result of probably building with beginning with guys like William Cooper and Ralph Epperson and um, you know, G. Eustace Mullins and um, or I'm sorry, G. Edward Griffin and Eustace Mullins, um, it's easy to access that information. Now, whether the veracity of that situation remains today, I don't think necessarily that they have as much as under control as as they, you know, as 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 we probably give into the image that they do. I think they really are sitting on top of a house of cards. I'm shocked that the whole thing didn't come crashing down in 2008. Really, I'm shocked yeah. it didn't happen. Because there's no finish line. This is where you get into there's no finish line. No median. These are operating on their own, and they cannot be stopped unless you really make an incredibly dramatic new kind of technology that it can be instantly implemented. You can't stop the old, and you can't stop the new. That's why we're in the gap in between. So there is no – and this is what Baudrillard understood. Baudrillard understood that. Read his updating of McLuhan how nothing gets to a finish line, and therefore the old does not crash and it does not live. Well, I think I, I also think to add on to the comments we made about Twitter earlier, I think, I think microblogging might have been one thing that saved. Uh, oh, yeah, I wanted to uh, take on that point. Japan. I mean, what else would people Every do? technology saves for a while. People have no outlet to this tremendous disaster that, you know, is is happening and the issue well the disaster right? you could say couldn't have happened until we got the technology that we could use it for exactly no you're absolutely right you that's the ecology it. McLuhan that's the poetic part of his vision well I just I want to hear um I'm sorry Matthew I, think, I want to hear Matthew I mean do you agree with that do you think that maybe the the image that like I've read let's see I I just read uh, did you read Joseph Farrell uh, Babylon Banksters Banksters of Babylon yeah I'm aware of it yeah yeah it's a great book really enjoyed it you know so I've, I've read you know a lot of literature around that and i'm definitely interested in that image and um, okay riff router to bring in the McLuhan thing doesn't McLuhan's point he writes in Gutenberg galaxy that once you have this printing press and create national languages national vernaculars and national banking systems then men can conspire that's what he writes in Gutenberg galaxy because you're in a top-down, centralized position, so you can play with the speed of the printing press. That's when the conspiracies happen. But they still had the, um, but but Akhenaten, they still have the Atnis. You know, Akhenaten in the in the in the mystery schools in ancient Egypt, even before then existed. So you've had conspiracies far before we've had the. Oh yeah, no, no, no. But look at yeah. Now you have to understand why does he say that? He knows people always conspire. He says tribal. Speech-based, acoustic-based, preliterate societies were mafia-ridden. Okay, that's a given. And, and the reason the mafia took over the 20th century, according to McLuhan's formula, is we've retrieved acoustic space. So the mafias could bypass the printing press and those laws. But to say they could conspire, he's saying it technically. And that means you can manipulate people inside visual space. Well, that finished with 19, when, when the, the fulcrum of, of conspiring, private ownership of money, collapsed in 1929, you don't have conspiracies of that kind, financial, from 1930 on because money's public property. But there is manipulation and hijacking and coups. What do those people think they're getting? 
You know what I mean? That's where uh, one night, one year, McLuhan in the in the Monday night seminars, he they ran a whole seminar. What the heck is power and what is wealth? When everybody has access to the whole new experience of television, which is the real wealth in terms of a new environment. So these definitions are not looked at by the Joseph Farrells and all that. You know, they, they don't look at the ground of what's happening. McClure was the biggest conspiracy freak you could ever get, well, but he knew that it was uh, being changed well, by the new media. Right. Well, I mean, the whole purpose of that particular system might be just to, I mean, you know, have you ever, uh, what is it, um, Michael Desirian, the uh, yeah. Atlantis and Alien Visitation? I mean, so his point is that, you know, there's an alien presence and that, you know, basically the whole past, since, you know, for the past 2,000 years, it's been, there is the Anunnaki trying to get the hell off of Earth, and all this, all this technology is literally them trying to reclaim their technology to get them out. That, that's looking at who made it. That's called efficient causality. You know, Aristotle had four causalities. The efficient is how do you do it, how do you make it? But the formal causality is what's the effect on people and who is ever around it, the side effects. So uh, I had another thought there. So you got the – right now – why would anybody want to be premier, president? Now, there might be a lot of Secret Service guys who see the vulnerability of that position, and they could organize a takeover of the White House and put a double in and all that. But what would you do it for? Well, right. and, okay, so then television saved us from atomic war, because television did all kinds of interesting services in the 60s, 50s, 60s, so that the, the Illuminati conspiracy to have a nuclear war by 1969 couldn't happen because they couldn't get the control of the news, news situation or the, the decentralized effect of the satellite. Okay, so microblogging is always saving us from the big disaster. But as Baudrillard knew, the big disaster never will happen. It can't happen. You can't have a dramatic endpoint. You just have more intensity of all the dynamics of ecstasy and catastrophe. Right. No, that's that's Croker's you're right. point. No, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, it's, uh, you're absolutely right. The, you know, the, sheer, the, the, sheer terror, the, the sheer pornography of it. Yeah, the both. And, and you know, McClellan made it, he said a simple thing. As you have more sex, you have more violent images. So uh, it, he said that sex and violence go together because they're both release mechanisms in the pain-pleasure dialectic, right? The more pleasure, and then you've got to have more pain. Then you've got to have more pain, you get more pleasure. That is the human, the chemical body's eternal condition. But then when it gets confused by having other bodies, that's, if you knew how complex it was when you ever have other bodies, you would write your memo to anybody in the style of fitting his wake. That is, quote, the honest way to write about the factors involved. Hmm. This is interesting. Yeah, because it's multi-level, the beginning. It's only those that think it's simple level get in trouble. Well, what does Matthew think? Um, well, what's the specific question? Well, he, he suggested that maybe the Anunnaki is still trying to get off the planet, but he suggested the Illuminati don't have any control in that way anymore, right now. Well, I mean, it's, it's amazing how well run. I mean, the Illuminati is now just, like, the Federal Reserve has become a power structure, or the CIA becomes its power structure out of nowhere. And not out of no, no, Matthew. Not out of nowhere. It's a result of the technology. The telegraph created the global village, so you had to have the coordination of the international economy, and that's the Federal Reserve. 
That had to be done. The technology determined it. And those that were directly affected by it, the richest people in the world or in North America, had to organize themselves whether they liked it or not. Because the American economy was no longer American. It was interfacing with all around the world due to telegraph speeds. Now, how they handle that, the arguments they get in among themselves, the, the bitter disputes, the, the offing of each other, that's just human foibleness, you know, Keystone Cops going on all the time. McLuhan said, yes, the media missed the message, but man is still the content. And he put still in quotes as if it was dead. Man is still the content, meaning we're the content, but we're dead. Because it's more and more less chemical body. I think my four-body model cleans up the, the confusing part of McLuhan's writing. Or what he meant, but he didn't get as far as talking on the body level. But to put still in quotes is pretty interesting. Man is still the content, but still in quotes. Yeah, most people are willing to mine gold for the Anunnaki, but... <laughs> if they have uh, digital and Twittering and music and bars and clubs and sport and exercise machines, sure. It's yeah, irrelevant yeah. who's running the show. I'm glad someone's running it. Yeah. I don't have to do it. If you give those people a paycheck and tell them a bunch of bullshit, I mean, they will do whatever you tell them. Right, because it's speech, and speech is an obsolete medium. That's where Orwell missed on the robotization of humanity. Of course speech was going to be robotized, because people had post-speech technologies to play with, TV, radio, and magazines, and all the media they had. So you could be a robot and not even have much vocabulary. Why specialize in speech? That's for Truman Capote and Norman Mailer and the fanatic novelists who, who get all tied up in knots themselves, right. or even Prince Charles. Now it's the speed of your texting is more important than your actual... Yes, actual your performance. It's always among the kids. The kids live in the sense of the medium is a message. It's your ability to be cool. What's that mean? To perform efficiently, loyally, or whatever. Whatever the rules are of that kid subculture. It's performance is what matters. Now, as societies turn into Simpsons, where everybody's one year old, because everybody is motivated by and has to do performance now. We all have to, as McLuhan said, be four years old. Right. See, I'm just using these dialogues partly to throw opportunities to tell you what McLuhan said so that you can sit back and be a marvel at what he had said. Right, yeah, it worked. That's why I didn't. I was stunned by in silence. That's why I'm here, Bob. <laughs> so, yeah, the modern, the whole time, like I was saying, is on television. Yeah. And they tell you even what to invest in. They're like, oh, this is what you should do. And I mean, you can actually get a pretty. You can make money just by watching CNBC if you really know what's going on. Yep. Uh, I mean, Making money is a robotic action. And, and money means time. The real, the real wealth is when you have time to do what you want to do whenever you can do it and not have to sit and watch CNN all day to get to pay your rent. Time is, is the one thing. The less time you have, the more wealthy you really are. The less time-bound imposed situations. That's the real wealth. I mean, look at Bernanke. He's got to show up at work every day and fucking worry about this nonsense. No, I don't want to say it's nonsense. He has to worry about his boat, his environment that has a history and that must show up in the future for all kinds of mimic reasons. Yeah, well, people respond to it, which I guess validates it in some way, even if it's not important. It's a service environment. 
the problem is, is that as new service environments come in, they start clashing with the older one, and the older ones are the medium. So the new service environments clash with the medium and causes all this confusion, and there's no one around to spell it out. Usually it's the artist, McLuhan should say in, in Gutenberg's phase, the artist or the novelist or the writer or the philosopher or the scientist would come up with some pattern that would be useful as a perceptual anti, perceptual environment, but most people never understood it. That's why you know it was a complex society with the printing press, so you had to have an elite running it. Now right. we don't have to have an elite running it, but we got a machine that mimes being a elite, an, an elite, and it, the Android meme, is not sure what it is. Right. So now unintelligent people can read other people's writings where you still yep. be able to read like intelligible newspapers. Take education. You know, people were made to learn to in America. The GI Bill, after World War II, all these guys could go back and learn education. You had to have some kind of literacy. You had to learn how to write to get the new techno jobs. And you could, maybe that was the way it was after World War I. Some point in the, in the 20th century, mass education was imposed on people because you had to become a robot and learn to read so you could have those kind of mental functions. It wasn't, it wasn't an environmental reason. It was a technological reason. And the real smart people would not read. They'd look at fitting its wake, which is not readable, as in any environment, to the fact everybody had the right to education. But that was a programming of the industrial meme as content for the new electric age. So smart people, as McLuhan says, imagination is that faculty that is not embedded in any of the senses or the extensions of the senses. So when people say we've got to have more imagination, that's not what it's about. Imagination is not being here in relation to the environment that's seducing everybody. Did you get that, Matthew, or Rhoder, or Sue, or anybody, or Carol? Yeah, James Joyce. James Joyce writes the greatest novelist, you know, voted into the top one by Time Magazine at the end of the 20th century, Ulysses. He then spends the rest of his life undoing the effect of that, or dealing with the post-book world. He did the last novel, finished off the novel genre, 300-year genre, and then moved into exploring the new media. So The Finney's Wake is not a book. It's what McLuhan says, the toolkit on how to get your uh, balance in an increasingly uh, funny, weird situation. Right. So who came in? Was there a new person? Anybody want to introduce themselves, bring some new flesh Barbara. in here? Oh, it's Barbara. Barbara from California? Yes. Oh, great. Uh, I, I you want to say to Matthew? He, he, you've heard Matthew before. He's here. Is it, I'm here. Uh, with him with the RNA drops? Or, no. Or the no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. You wish. No, it's Matthew uh, who was a regular on Cashflow. Right, right, right. Did all the traveling, portal traveling? Uh, yes, in New York City. Yeah. Okay. So there's that t we don't mention Ion, Barbara. Do not mention Ion. He'll come in. Okay. And we don't want him in. We're, we don't do that here because it'll ruin the, the grants. We won't get any grants. Okay. <laughs> so I do know what we're doing here, Barbara, what we're talking about. Um, not exactly. I just remembered you had some sort of conference call on Monday night, and I wanted to check it out, so I just got on the dupes, and I looked it up, and here I am. Okay, good. So this is about McLuhan, Marsh McLuhan. It's his, his centenary. He was born in 1911, and we're supposed to be McLuhan people, McLuhan scholars looking at how the world relates to what McLuhan said. 
Now, Sue, is there Sue Carroll? Would you introduce what you think what we're doing here to to Barbara? Who so me? I, you want me to introduce what we're doing a, here? Anybody, anybody, you, yeah, you. Well, we're basically having a free for all tonight, and uh, it's been fantastic because we're going into everything from YouTube sensational things, uh, lots of McLuhan stuff, and uh, right now we've just been going through the uh, stock market. Right. Now, your your fiance Barbara, was in the arbitrage world of trading. Now, we have we have uh, yeah. Riff Router, if he's still here, and he was talking about the new situation with flash crashes. Riff Router, could you, if you're still here, could you sort of lead for a while? See if it's, because maybe I'll remind Barbara of what she experienced, or what she knew about a little bit. Well, the mar- yeah, the way the markets totally changed the way they do things. Right. So is Riff Router gone? Sounds like it. <laughs> so, Barbara, what's on your mind about the media? What you think the me? What do you think the media is, Barbara? Um, well, lately it's just, it's it's astonishing how there's no the lack of uh, the coverage of what's really going on in the world. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, there's no investigative coverage. It's just repeat of you know um, a, a so-called authority. Figures and there's no real information. I mean, yeah, I, I now, figured out what's that. Now we say McClure would say, and that's a good thing. So then you would say, why would he say that? And then we can yeah, get into some stuff. Yeah, why would he say that? <laughs> Ignorant. Sue, so why would McClure say that? I guess she's gone. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's just good. Yeah. Hey, Carol, why would McLuhan say that there's no in-depth coverage? And he did say this. He did say in 1970 that the, uh, the, he named the CBS, NBC, and ABC, and whichever one, like 60 Minutes, probably ABC was known, no, CBS was known for in-depth coverage, and the other ones were more phony or, or frivolous, like NBC. He said that's better that they're frivolous. Now, there's a reason why, but let's figure if we can discover it ourselves. So, Carol, why would, what do you know about McLuhan? Why would he say that? I have an idea, and I don't know McLuhan, but... Right. Uh, okay, but let's hear Carol, who's heard a bit of McLuhan, what she thinks is the reason uh, why McLuhan would say uh, that the less informa- information is better. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm As soon as I give you the answer, you'll say, oh, yeah, that's what it is, so I'm going to remind you. I just think that... Uh, uh, all right, you tell, you tell me. Yeah, his can, famous can I say, phrase... Can I try? Oh. No, Barbara, I'm going to give you a little McLuhan lesson. Okay, okay, go ahead. Uh, McLuhan would say the medium is the message. You've heard us say that right, before. Right. You've yeah, heard yeah, that. Yeah. So that means the content is not as important as the effect of the medium that brings you the content. So if there's more and more investigation of details of all these different stories by literate journalists or semi-literate journalists, you could get lost in the content, whereas the main reason why there is no in-depth coverage is the speed of the Internet or the speed of this web of technology we're in now. So the medium and what it does to the searching of content is the real message. That's why there's no content, because there's no time to do content. And that the reason that is is because there's so much coverage. No, there's so much speed in the Twittering and the private BlackBerry technology that the old centralized institution, New York Times, NBC, ABC, 
They're too slow lumbering and actually are just trying to look relevant by just pretending they know about something, no time to go into detail. They're just trying to look like they're in, in touch with what's going on in the Web 2.0 technologies. Right. So, so does that make sense? Then? That makes sense, Barbara? Yeah, but what's the point then? So what? The media is the message. So everything goes so super fast and you get really nothing out of it, so why even turn it on? Yeah, you don't want to close off for turning it off. Okay. Now you know why. Because you're, if once you know, if you study a subject and study all the details and read all the books and see all the documents and that, and you don't know that the medium of the day that created that topic is more important, then you won't be able to turn it off. See, people watch their Twittering because they think there's something to know. Some content's finally going to get it all for them. And they don't know that the Twitter technology itself is the amazing thing, not the content. And so they're hypnotized looking for valid content. It's like listening to Castle every week, waiting for the big ultimate explanation, and they're missing the point of the actual technology that makes you all involved in it. Okay, so what if you get the point? What did you say, Carol? Basically, it's the experience. Basically, you're saying the same thing that the, you know, Buddhists do. Experience. It's not the. No, that's one word. We don't say, we learn from McLuhan not to say it's one word, experience, vibration. It's a dynamic of interplay of all kinds of levels of experience or understanding and communicating about the experience. It's the communication about the experience, McLuhan says, that the Buddhists missed. The communication is more important than the experience. And what is the communication? You could say that is an experience, but it's complex when you're a literate person who's aware of TV and, and these other technologies, and is trying to have a conversation over the phone. So, Barbara, yes, what's the point? Uh, that's yeah. up to you. <laughs> well, I actually like getting the details, but you know what? Uh, but it seems like now I can hear, just get a little bit of uh, a tidbit of something, and I, with my own knowingness, actually know better what's going on than what, what's being told at all. Right. And it comes and, out two weeks later that, yeah, I was right. On the content stuff, yes. You're, on the content, you're, yeah. You're actually, if you can know that fast, you're aware of the formal dynamics involved in that little subject area. You're kind of aware of the medium, the containing environment of it. So that's really what you're applying. You're applying media awareness, formal structural awareness to any story. And the structure is always the same. That's why you know where it's going to go. Isn't that what you mean? I think, I guess, like if you take, for instance, the the the, the, the nuclear crisis in Japan. Right. So just seeing that bit about and you know the blow up and whatever, you know the the authorities are lying; they're being lied to, and you know all of that, and then it comes out. But that is well known. Everybody knows it's it's even good they're lying. It, it came in with the National Security Act in 1947. The CIA and news media that were in charge at that time were allowed to lie to the American people because the point is you wouldn't panic them. You didn't want to put out some bad news that would panic. They considered that worse. So you were justified in covering it up. And the New York Times had that role until the late 60s, and then television took it over because that was a more prominent medium. And so the New York Times was forced to be a counterculture, and they released the Pentagon Papers to get the advertising dollar because they were obsolesced as the main cover-up artists. 
and that's a, a, a social, healthy thing to cover up the panic. Now, you, everybody knows that. They've been around enough for 40 years to know about that. But you object to them covering it up, Barbara. Yes. Why? Well, I mean, isn't it better to have people prepared? Or otherwise, what's the point? You might as well get hit with whatever. The point is they'll panic. Well, why and are cause you chaos. panicking? Why do they have to... Why would they have to panic? All they have to do is get prepared. They don't have to panic. Or if they get a heads up, the panic's going to be worse once the truth comes out. That's true, too. So you, so you better tell them nothing. Wasn't it better to have people prepared in the first place? How could they get Actually, prepared? What, what are they going to do? Enough stay under, staying in, indoors for a while until it blows over. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure that was said. There was all kinds of those kind of statements made in Japan. Even I, who don't even look at the stuff very long, saw that. George Bush said, "Resume shopping." He did the same thing. Well, that's to ignore everything that's going on. Yeah, ignore it. And you, well, you know we'll bring that up, but too, you know, uh, right? That's you know, you know whose advice too. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know who says that too. <laughs> that's good, Kelly. You solved that problem. We'll say you know who. That, that's I didn't know how to say that. That's right. You know who. <laughs> yeah. Would say this. <laughs> you know who's working. Okay. okay, so Barbara, no, these are good questions. We're trying to come up. McLuhan came up with a different way of looking at it, and that's what I'm trying to impart to you. And it means putting aside the obvious, the common sense points you make. Like it's obvious people should be know, so should be known. So let's, as a thought experiment, what could be a good reason why people shouldn't know, and why would McLuhan say it's not good to know those details? See, the, you look at it that way. Put yourself in the position. There's this um, rare tape of McLuhan in his classroom, and he says to the students. What would you do if you were president? And this would be when Nixon was president, probably, or Ford. What would you do if you were president? And they're president, and they say, "Oh, I would make everybody have food, or I'd solve the AIDS crisis, I don't know, whatever stupid humanist programs." And he said, "No, you would do nothing." And they go, "Why? Why wouldn't you do it? Because you got, as president, you got too many environments coming at you. No one human being can make a decision about all these environments, and you actually farm it out to committees and departments." And those people don't make decisions either because they got too much information. So that's interesting to think of it that way. If you were made president, Barbara, you would only be able to do nothing. So that means the president is obsolete. So why even have an election? Why do people still have elections? What's the cultural meme that keeps it going? Why are people, quote, brainwashed to keep it going? That's so, bogus anyway. What? It's pretty much bogus elections anyway. People aren't, you know, they still have the electoral uh, college. It's not really people electing who they want. And it's there, and and most of the people don't vote because they know who who'd want to be president. It's a terrible fate. Yet the media pretends they have to to keep their bread going, make it like it's really significant. So the reason right. you have elections right. is because you have information services that you want to use to get the the truth. They the, the whole desire to get the truth out keeps the election thing going. Because you've got news media informing about this important event. There's an election coming up and giving you every detail. The one detail they don't tell you is that it's irrelevant, and they hope you don't realize that. Yeah. The media. The media hope you don't realize it because then they're out of a business. But then they know oh, that uh, people want to read newspapers regardless of who's writing them. 
or people want to tweet because the content or the, the medium itself is a new extension of your sense. So you're going to use your senses regardless of the content. You experience every day regardless of what the weather is. That's regardless of the content. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when McLuhan say uh, none of it matters because, or it's better not to get all the information or have, have the in-depth coverage because if we focus on the details, are we just creating, feeding more into it? Is that maybe why he says that? No, he was trying to point out that the kind of detail that a literate person could get by reading details, he was pointing out that the literate person was becoming a uh, obsolete function. And the reason the media was not informing people in the literate newspaper sense is because the newer media was taking over. And he wanted you to notice how reality changes when you bring in a new medium. So you bring in the speeded-up TV, then cable TV, and you know it's generally said that investigative journalism ended in Reagan's uh, first term Mm -hmm. because that's when you've got amazing media complex happening and there's no time for the media to do investigative journalism and they don't have an audience who wants to read the details. They just want new imagery and they've got channel jumpers. The the voracious beast of the collective meme audience, or maybe the audience is a meme, trying to eat new imagery is the main reason this keeps going. It's, it, the, the reason I keep going is because there's lots of sensory data coming to me. Now, expand that collectively and look at your, all the machines and media as par- extensions of your senses. It's a voracious beast. I'm a voracious beast. I want to keep experiencing this weird experience of sensory life, right? right? That is what you're watching when you watch TV. You're watching a machine breathing and eating. Okay. So what does that mean? That meaning is uh, your relationship to that. What, what, what you want your relationship to be. What's the meaning of your body, Barbara? Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it, it has no meaning, which is a semantic question, a literate question. Your body is going to carry on regardless of what meaning you think it has or what verbal stated opinion you have. It goes on regardless of that, right? So meaning is not an issue in pre-literate societies. They, they don't worry about meaning. But your body is a definition of, of, of a certain thing, though, don't you think? Like, it's the definition that you're alive. I mean, without it, you, you're not alive on Earth. So it is a definition in some respect. It's odd to use the word definition. I, I don't define my body... But you might mean a different meaning for definition than, than thinking of a grammatical thing. Well, what definition? <laughs> What's the definition of uh, my body? It's a vehicle that non-physical uses to uh, experience and interact with, with the physical on this plane, in this dimension. Right. Now, here's McLuhan would say, no, Barbara, you used your mouth to say that on a telephone, on an Internet thing that millions could hear or millions could ignore. Look at all the environments that you uttered those words into. That's what McLuhan, one of the things he was doing. And where do those environments come from and what are they doing? What's the fact you're saying that to anonymous people electrically, uh, you know, from your room? What's the effect of that on you, of where you think you are? Where, where, what the definition of your body is. So that's relevant. Um, Carol's relevant in terms of if you think of us having multiple bodies, then yeah, which, what's your definition of which body is your main body? What I mean by definition, though, would be like it defines the fact that you're living. 
without your body, what would define the fact that you were alive? Yeah, we need to know what define means. To define, that means what would one say about my position? Defining is a verbal activity, isn't it? It's describing... Yeah. Verbal. It's a verbal activity. Yeah. Yeah. You mean I don't think you mean that, uh, Carol. Just, a verbal you know, statement. Tired. It's getting late. I'm tired. I'm not thinking so clearly. <laughs> it's all too interesting to hang up so much. <laughs> well, what did you mean by you don't mean to you know, try to say it in a different word? Yeah, I know. I keep like what other word would I use to um Contextualize. It's why we know we're alive, right? Well, yeah. You, you know who says that we come here to create, and we couldn't create unless we had contrast. So contrast allows you to know the state you've been in. If you're in bliss, you don't know after a while, so you need contrast. That is, quote, defining. Contrast serves to, to uh, create parameters in what you think you're experiencing or what you are experiencing. Because if you experience the same thing over a long time, it becomes bland and you don't notice it. So you have to have a contrary experience to make you aware, like uh, you know who says about stubbing your toe. Right, but that's not really what I'm talking about so much as the fact that, like, without the body, you do not know you exist as far as we know. I mean, Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's right? the agency it's, of contrast. The, the body is contrast to the non-physical. Right, that I will agree with. Yes, in that in that we respect it is, but it it allows you to be without with you know with all the other extensions without the physical you aren't. Right. Right. I mean, even you know who says that. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Now, what are we saying by saying these words? Well, it had to do with something that we were talking about. Right. It had, now, that's a good point. It related to something else. It does not have any meaning of itself. It's the context or the parallel thought that you're bouncing off of. And we've forgotten what that was. I know. It was something about, you were talking about McLuhan, of course, in his classroom. And what did he say in the classroom? Oh, about the, pri- the president would do nothing. Right. Then you got into exactly the president. Right. And then we talked about it was farmed out to all the departments, and they'd be all complex, and and the heads of the departments. All I'm saying is is that without you can live without the other bodies. You can't live without the physical body. Oh, okay. Now there's a good point. Okay, that's a good question. Could is the chip chip body and TV body not as important as the physical as the chemical body? Well. You know that the geeks who, who create the chip landscape, they're known to be 24-7 at their computers doing program and eating crap food, right? So they tried to live without the chemical body, and maybe they did. They, you probably couldn't live totally without the chemical body, but you don't need to follow the traditional cultural definitions of good chemical body life as well when you have the other bodies. So it's like creating avatars, and they can create a better life, so they think, through avatars? Yeah. Yeah, so, and and that's what McLuhan used to say, that the Africans, you know, in the 60s, they got radio, but they said, where are the cornflakes? (laughs) You know, transistor radios were spread around Africa, inflaming the tribal energies, because it was 
overlaying simultaneous acoustic space and already a pre-littered acoustic society, and that will create paranoia, and that's why all that crazy stuff happened in Africa. Um, but where is the chemical body cornflakes? You know, they, they okay, we're giving them all electronics, and we wouldn't give them food. We, right, would, we would bury it out in the prairies because they've screwed up the statistical levels of the economy. Right. And that's the other thing that you could think of. If you don't have the chemical body taken care of to a point, you can't, like, plug the TV in. You can't activate the chip body. or the, You know what I mean? It's like you, that's the one that has to be dealt with first because if that one can't function, none of the other ones function. Right, but how much do you, it's culturally conditioned about how much you have to prepare for that. It might be that well, you don't have to do much with it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's all, I think that all changes too with, you know, uh, the style almost. Do you know what I mean? Like, well. The style I, of what? Well, now it's fast food. And a friend of mine and I were talking about this recently because he said, you know, none of, no, no, my kids and my wife and I, we don't have time for food. He said, I wish we could just take a pill and the whole meal would be there. Right. Said, you know, I think we're moving in that direction. Because you know I mean? like, they can't get rid of the chemical body, but it's one quarter of the whole voluptuousness right. of experience you can have with your four bodies. So right. it's there, you can't get rid of it, And it, but for most people it is an obtrusion. You know, you could say punks start putting pins in themselves in the in the body in the seventies, right when the android meme was starting, and they wanted to show the obsolescence of the physical body, the grievance. Let's put pins in it, put garbage bag. But see, that's the, the. It's obvious when you say the guy wants to have pills so he can engage in his chip body. There's nothing uh, incomprehensible about my five body model, but it's interesting how it does provide a basic, simple point that people could kind of agree on. And yet nobody would do it. <laughs> okay, so anyways, yeah, they got other bodies. So what if you said to your friend when they said that about the, tell them about the five bodies, see how they react. They would go, well, that's odd or that's interesting, but they wouldn't say, well, no, it's just an obvious statement of what it is, of what reality is. The weather we live in today is four or five bodies. That's our weather. That's our physicality. Anybody there? <laughs> yeah, I'm just. <laughs> we, you know, we've been, you know, you have tremendous stamina, Bob. Yeah, and I haven't even eaten today yet. I know. Well, it's oh, wow. Like, but but this back. So yeah, you have what I say to people, Carol. When the next time that comes up, you're talking about fast food and persons that wish pills. Is yeah, they, throw the four body, five body model at them and watch how they react to it. I mean, they are involved in those bodies. Everybody that I know is. I mean, it wouldn't yeah. be like, you know. Yeah, um, yeah but they're not going to identify themselves as one of those bodies as, as that's that right. being chiefly who they are. I mean, Yeah, I, Barbara, that's it. Let me say that's a key point to what Carol said. Because they think the food body is the most important body, they miss the significance and impact of the other body. That's why I don't encourage the idea of thinking, oh, that's the first main body is, is feeding, because that's a very blinder that makes you think the other stuff is trivial, and you don't recognize how, how much of a dynamic is on. That's what I get from what you're saying, Barbara. Yeah, but what, so, 
so but what if you just ignore the other bodies and say so they are just extension of my body or some of my non-physical but it's not it i can live or i don't it's no not that's what, right try to make your physical body the ground and not have these other figures okay attempt it <laughs> yeah, I don't say it can't be done. And uh, obviously the idea that you have a non-physical that's even more sustenance than the physical would, uh, might help you there. Okay, so whenever we go on the Internet, we're utilizing our chip body. Is that what you're saying? Yes, and that you have to, normally in society, you have to check your email, just like you have to go to the bathroom. Yeah, I, I don't have to. Yeah. I mean, you don't have. I don't to. check it very often, but yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Well, uh, take your telephone. You answer the phone. It doesn't have to be just that. It's a digital electronic environment. You have to be involved yeah. with an electronic yeah. response somewhere. Okay, wait, wait, Bob. I know people that aren't involved with a lot of it. There are people that almost have no bodies other than the um, than the uh, physical. All right. And what are they doing? Well, you know. Now, here's McClune's point. They have to deal with the environment of the chip body or TV body because many, so many other people are doing it. So it doesn't matter whether you have a TV or not. You're in an environment, North America, where you're affected by people who are involved with television. Right. So you're indirectly affected in that sense. Yes. So what, what's the important... What's the importance of knowing this or experience? So we experience it, we do it, and so what? The importance of knowing it is is that when uh, someone says, you know, I wish we'd give up food, you know, I just want to take a pill, you bring in this idea to give them the thrill of a different way of looking at their dilemma. So there's simple sensory thrills in giving people a different pattern of way to do it, and people love different patterns. And then there's all the issues. So you take your kid to a school. What is a book role compared to the new digital world? See, there are practical effects of knowing what your weather is, what the environment you're in is. It's practical knowledge on any issue you bring up. Well, yeah, and you can start rebellions and revolutions and all kinds of things if you know how to use your chip body well. Right, and well, they've they done have. it, and they're doing it, Recently. and then, then they have to deal with uh, the speed of uh, America or France coming in with their speedy jets and bombing the hell out of you. You know, they can re- right. respond pretty fast to you. So you've got to consider that, too. The news I saw yesterday, Al-Qaeda is heading over to uh, Libya to help the uh, rebels, right? Oh, I thought that's been going on for, I think that's been going on. That's I know, I just saw it yesterday. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, I just noticed. I hadn't seen that headline, Al-Qaeda coming. And I didn't read it. I just see, I I try to remain as little informed as possible. Now, why is that? What's the benefit of that? I have time to enjoy my own thoughts. I have time to talk to you guys. I have time to interact with you-know-who and go to the beach. I know it's not, I'm not missing anything is what I know. Yeah. So you're not interested in the content so much. Some content I'm interested in. I could in, be interested, but I'm not going to – I'm not interested in spending my time sitting all the time and you're absorbing right, right. something. So but, you, but why – but then, Barbara, look at all those people looking at their – we were talking many hours ago, but the people hypnotized by their little uh, screens and uh, walking around no matter what, looking at the thing. So what is that urgency they got? I don't have that. I know. I, I want – I, what? I don't, I don't get that either. I don't have that urgency either. Now, I find a, I haven't met anybody who doesn't say, yeah, that's odd. 
yet they're all doing it. Everybody, it seems everybody agrees on the chemical. Yeah, that's crazy. Everybody's doing it, but they're doing it when I'm not talking to them. Like I don't know how much. Maybe you don't, Barbara. I don't. But no. there are people here uh, who are listening who use their. They might say be able to criticize it or think it's absurd, but they still got to use it. I think it's generational, though. But yeah. unlike that with the computer, though, I love the computer. I just I love, love the it. internet. Yeah, I do too. I just love it. <laughs> Look at you guys. <laughs> I, love it. I love it. Give me more internet. They were, you were saying, what about if I, st- I disconnected from that? Okay, try that, Barbara. I don't do that. I, you know, I do but that. We, we've, I've grown up with that, not having the internet. So I know the difference. So I like having, I used to have to go to libraries and seminars to get the information I wanted. Right. You know, go out of town and, you know. But no, no, but you, just, but you like that, but you also like the internet. No, that's what I'm saying. I love the internet. It's way easier and less expensive, and I can get oh, all okay. the information so I you, want. Yeah, you, you, you like reading, or do you watch YouTube's? What is it? Can you know, you what? Say I it? have probably a thousand books. I used to read constantly, but then when the internet came out, um, I would say it, it's hard for me to finish one book, probably in six months. Right, but you read on the internet all the time. Oh yeah, I read on the internet all the time. I mean, oh, we count video. we count on your your reading to come up with questions every week on you know whose show. Yeah. <laughs> and isn't it joke. isn't it better like with this crisis situations to be informed so that you can prepare? Okay, if, now if now here that's the exact paradox McLuhan pointed out. Why are we in this crisis situation? Because the internet came in and upset everything. See, that's the funny point. It's because the the solution is in the disease, or you know the solution's in the problem. If you turned off television in the mid '60s, you'd change the whole dynamic, and you wouldn't have uh, civil rights riots because the people wouldn't have TV to be seen on. So all kinds of social services, which can be seen as good or bad, they would not happen. So you're reading all about the crises and on the medium that causes all those crises. You can show how the speed of the internet and its complications. Is causing the confusions and panics all over the world. The internet, the cell phone allows 911 to happen if you take the normal scenario. Just take the normal scenario, okay? Cell phone, the, the guys came under this incredible surveillance by using that new technology. They went around it. So the new technology will always create a war. That's the McLuhan law. Every new invention will create a war, necessitate a war. Because, did you say why? Yeah. Yeah, because the older technologies have vested interests in the old values, wealth, and structure, and the new one is going to create new opportunities, new kinds of wealth, and strange new behavior that threatens the social identity of the community using the new technology. That's the reason. My aunt used to say that the Vietnam War was because of the metric system. Which war? My, My aunt used to say that we fought the Vietnam War over the metric system. Yeah, because those are people don't like the uh, international metric right. system coming in. You, right. They, you know, I don't. I didn't, never read. No, no, that. that's the world anti. That's a John Bircher kind of idea. The international. It's not because of the metric system. The metric system was coming to America because the world was made in a global village by radio, many generations ago. So you had to manage the efficient industrial part, standardize it on a metric system rather than the curious feet thing that and feet and inch thing that you have in the States. Yeah, so we just took out the industry uh, from this country and done with that. We took out the what? 
the industry. We don't have any industry here pretty much. Well, that's because but, software technology took over the great hardware abundance of America, for, which had, was a leader for 100 years on hardware technology. But that was a certain kind of experience that that created, the hardware. No, but also software. Cheap, cheap labor. Oh, so once we made a, a global village, um, all the industries um, yeah. had access out. to any part of the world. They were not loyal to the geographical nation. They could hop over to Brazil in 10 minutes and save money. Now, the reason they were so fanatic about saving money is that money was evaporating in the digital economy. See, that's another reason there's a panic and to move to the other part of the world. So the digital technology sped up the flow of money so much that companies couldn't keep up with it, and so they had very little money, so to speak, so they went to places where it wouldn't be any cost. And they had the technology to get there real fast. So it's almost like it's... it's, Mm -hmm. it's Twill dum twill dee. The technology, the form, and the content, 50-50 of the story. They go hand in hand. And most of literate societies emphasize the content and miss the formal dynamics. Tribal societies see the formal dynamics and miss the content. So that, that's an, it's a sensory dialectic. It's a, a form of knowledge, knowing that the two factors. Two sides of the coin. It's not a flat coin. The two sides of coin are the fact I'm using speech, which is simultaneous and everybody can hear in all directions, and then inside a digital environment that allows anybody to hear this, even though they're not in my uh, physical voice limited you know, distance. So that's, uh, that's the form. So what's the content? Well, in this show or thing, we talk about that. But they're not talking about that in any other media. They're talking about whatever Oprah's talking about or whatever the story is or worrying about the nuclear yeah. reactor. And that story goes for 30 seconds and on to another story. And another story. And there's many networks doing many stories on all different kinds of behavior. So that's yeah. what that... But you walk around thinking about all the communication that's going on as you go about your day. You don't. You don't think about all the chatter, noise, and stuff that's going on, right? You don't even want to hear it. But that, if you make yourself aware of it, that might lead to a different kind of thinking. Right. There's, all, there's millions of, of interaction going on that's not based on books, newspapers, or speech. And imagine that, you know, take an Aboriginal society found in the Philippines in 1971. They never even saw any white man, human man, or anything. And you, start, you walk them into the city, and they saw what was going on. Oh, they had a heart attack. I know. They could die, actually. Yeah. It's so shocking. And probably the fact that white men brought disease to the Native Americans, the disease was a psychological response to the sensory shock of this alien culture coming and, and putting everything in the book terms. You know what I mean? You know how there's plagues happen when one culture hits another? It's probably, in you-know-whose terms, a, a, an allergic reaction to the stress of being transported to another world. Yeah, that, makes, that actually makes even more sense than them catching the disease. Yeah, anyway. yeah. And you know, a thinker who, who developed that theory is Hans Selye, in the 40s, early 50s, he, he wrote a book out of Montreal, famous doctor, uh, Knight of Malta later, uh, he called The Stress of Life. And McLuhan used that book to help explain his stuff. The disease was based on the stress of existence. Yeah, it's it's like an adaptation disease. to stress. 
Yeah, that makes sense. That makes total sense. Yeah. Okay, Bob, I gotta go. Is that Carol? Yeah, it's me. I have to okay. go to New York tomorrow. I'm in New York for a couple of weeks, so. What time is it there now? It's eleven thirty-two exactly, and. So that means it's six thirty-two. So, I've been on the phone for five and a half hours then. Oh yeah, wow! We do that. Yeah. It's been happening, but I don't know if I'll tune in Wednesday, but I'll definitely call next Monday because these are great. I'm enjoying these immensely. Yeah, it, it's we're trying to have intelligent discussion, right? Right. It's, it's, and, and we yeah. got a range of all kinds of great minds. Like I learned from uh, Riff out of the phrase "flash crash." Never heard of that before. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. neat. Well, he had a really good handle on talking. I mean, finance is not my thing, and I don't. If you knew what he did. He is one of the major controllers of the situation just by what he does in Wall right. Street. Well, I had a I had a roommate that was like that too. She was like, you know, sitting at the uh at the conference table when the bank in New York uh you know. That's the one the you told me about who knew Yes. Yeah, yeah. Who knew who? Uh, a friend of Carol's knew about Depot Street. You know, the one that's right, controversial. Right. Right, and, and, and Carol there, mentioned to this person, I know where that. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> Carol, what? <laughs> wow. But she was an executive, you know, financial. Yeah, she, she's she's very high up there and very very smart. And she um, did, well, every now and then, yeah, you know, I was roommates with her for a while, and she come in and she said, you know, oh, I had, uh, I I had lunch. I had to be at a meeting at eight eight o'clock this morning with the Federal Reserve, or you know. Yeah. Gunther or Geither or Geither. <laughs> I don't even know their names, well, right? Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, you know, it's kind of interesting to me. And and I that would be her mythic stage. The technology she worked in and was an expert in, that's her clothing. That's her right. real clothing. And so here's Carol, assuming not having any of those kind of clothes, sitting there. And her friend says, okay, I'm heading off to Saturn with this whole complex technology and clothing. That's where she was going. Right. But then she looked at me like that, too, in a way. Like, she didn't really understand what I did, and she had a certain kind of respect for it because it was so different from what she did. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like, I mean, and I guess that's, you know, the world goes round and all. Um, yeah, your but, collection of mythic media, I call them your mythic stage is your clothes, your media you use and live right, by. Right. Your mythic stage was so different from hers. Right. Right, in the way, yeah. And, you know, like, she'd have, like, a, a business associate over, and I'd be, like, going in and out of the house, and they would just be like, whoa, who's that? What's that? You know what I mean? <laughs> you'd be going to a microtonal like, concert. Exactly, like, dressed <laughs> dressed in some kind of, you know, thing. I mean, Costume. I remember, right, right. Well, one time, like, one of her friends was just, like, she said, oh, my God, you know, you totally freaked him out. Like, you'd never see him. <laughs> yeah, Carol can be eccentric, Barbara. Right, but not right. so wild, you know, like not hot pink hair and stuff, you know, within reason, so that, you know, it wasn't too, too You're outrageous. stylish. You're a New Yorker, Soho, right. hip, artsy person running around with the hip people with the right. latest uh, wrinkle on and uh, right. and, it wasn't and doing, doing it the wrong hours of the day. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so it's not quite Halloween, so they can't dismiss it entirely. Yeah, yeah. It's more like, like a... 
you know, a character out of a book or a movie or, you know, that kind yeah. of, like, drama involved, you know. But, and, you know, you know, she was, she knew everybody in her level, and you knew a lot of important people on your right, level. Exactly, exactly. So it's kind yeah. of an interesting, yeah. So, you know, stuff like that's very interesting. I enjoy people who are in worlds that are very different than I am because... That's the advantage. Now, here's mine. what McLuhan said about cities. The reason the city was more was more intelligence gendering than uh, the countryside because the citizens of the city had many interfaces, many yeah. different kinds of people and different technologies. And yeah. that's the ultimate amazing thing about New York, the incredible interface of different mythic right. stages. That's the advantage and sophistication of the New Yorker life. Right. And, you know, I watch, you know, pictures of uh, Hawaii or you walking on the beach or whatever, right. you know, the bike world or whatever, and I just think to myself, I would probably die of boredom in a week. Me too, but I got the internet. I wouldn't like right. this without the internet. I can see that. Ah, I so you do do the internet it. a lot. What'd you say? I said, so you do do the internet a lot too. No, no. I, I, the internet is on the radio show, and I respond, it's all within the you-know-who world. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, okay. I do not. I, a lot of activity, which is interesting to me. I get to hear interesting phone calls. Interesting emails, interesting interaction with you know who. Anyways, right, it's right. gloriously interesting, uh, and yet it couldn't be done without the internet. Right, right. You, you're sitting in a little piece of boring paradise, gorgeous boring paradise. Yeah, and you're able to access the world through this. I leave bottom. it. See, it's a right. physical chemical body uh, uh-huh. uh, paradise, right. but I have my other body, so I'm not here. Right, right. and that's what I do when I'm in the burbs, Bob. I'm on the internet all day and all night in the burbs. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you. That's how you discovered you know, you know who. In right, the burbs. Exactly. Suburbs. Um, suburbs. Oh. Sometimes I'm I'm uh, at my parents. I go back and forth. I'm I really bilocate. I'm really a bilocator here. But um, you know, when I'm at my parents, I really don't have anything to do with the suburbs. I don't know anybody here. I don't drive. You can't. There's walk not anywhere. enough interfaces. There's no interfacing. Right. There's nothing here for me. So I sit and go to the, you know, the, the global village through my, my computer, and I'm on it all day, and I go everywhere. Listening, and every, and, like she, she processes you-know-who's audio for, you know, pretty quickly, 10 hours, 12, mm-hmm. 15 hours a day, and then nothing right. else to do. Right, wow. for a while. And, and it was exciting because it was the most interesting stuff you could listen to. I know, it was. I had to it was <laughs> You know, you get the top. You get the top for entertainment value. You know what I mean? Yeah. I thinking about this the other day. It's like entertainment-wise, the situation is right up there. For me right, right, but now. when you go to New York, your chemical body has all kinds of other stimulating interfaces, and right. so and you don't have to be on the internet as much. Right. And when I go there, I don't have internet access. It's really weird. Like when when I go where I go, I don't bother bringing my laptop. I could, but right. I don't bother with it because I'm here all day with it. So it gives me a yeah, break. Yeah, you're engaged. From it. Right. So it's a whole other interesting thing. Like I go there, and then I'm not doing any chip body, and I'm not big on you know like these kids with the phones and the Twitter and the texting and the internet on their phones. I'm I'm not into that. 
You know what I mean? It's too small. It's like, uh, whatever. Well, they're just beginning their interfacing. So they want to like be voracious and interface all kinds of things. So they can do it with the tweetering. It's cheap and all that. You're an adult. You've got a whole range of 30 years of interfacing that you can right. tap into. You know. See, right. So actually the kids, it's like McLuhan said, to thrust TV onto kids is to murder them. And the tweeting is probably even worse. I mean, uh, oh, in the end, you can't you... stop it. So we don't. We decide it's not murder, but compared oh. to previous generations, woo. You know, it's uh, we. You missed the beginning. Was you might want to hear the recording of this, Barbara. It would be available okay. in a couple of days. A very interesting thing of uh, Sheila describing uh, Sheila from Nova Scotia, not from Savannah, describing her witnessing parents trying to get their kids on the cell phone, but the kids don't have a cell phone, and they can't get the tweeter and panic. They can't control them. Well, they don't right? have the phone anymore. If you don't tweet, you know, if you call them, they don't pick up the phone. They yeah. don't want to even bother with a message. Or that is true. Phone. They only want to uh, read the text message and text you back. And Now, Barbara, you're saying that is true as if you've never heard that before. No, I'm just saying because I thought, I didn't know if this was just because it's Jim's daughter and his niece. They they don't answer the phone. It's like no. they, you can't communicate with them unless you send them a text from the phone. Right. And you didn't and know it's widespread. You did not know it was a North American plague, that phenomenon. Right. <laughs> no, I didn't. I, yeah, no, I mean, I thought with people, you have a phone, you pick it up, and they don't. They don't. Right. Yeah, they crazy. never had the phone experience. It doesn't mean anything to them. Right. It's really interesting, like that, like the cell phone, it came in, boy, a few years, it went right out, and now they're texting, and something I wanted to say before that I thought about when you were talking about texting, and now it's not, you know, you said it changed the spelling, and now it's like they've, they're leaving out the vowels. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like, yeah. And there's this whole thing that people go into when they um, decipher language about the importance of the vowels and blah, blah, blah. And blah That's blah, right. Blah. McLuhan goes on about the vowels. When you separate the vowels from the consonants, that yeah. creates the Greek phonetic alphabet, and that created private identity. Our whole Western dynamic was over the vowels. See, that's an amazing point. Right, and the Jews also, in their language, I don't think they use vowels in right. ancient Hebrew. Well, they don't That's right. either. They started the phonetic alphabet in early primitive beginning, but it got you know crystallized when the Greeks did it in 500 BC, which is long after the Jewish writing. So, yeah, the Jews were an earlier phase where there was no difference, I guess, between the vowels and, and consonants. I'm not an expert on that, but... Well, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I don't know that much about it either, but I had seen some, you know, videos by, what, what's that guy's name, Graham Hancock, maybe it was him, or, oh, Greg Braden. Yeah, what are you Greg, saying? Who, who Who's the Greg video? Braden, Greg Braden, and it was actually off of Ed's site, Information Farm. When oh, yeah, Greg Braden, right. Right, right, and he had done this whole piece on, um, uh, the language of God or something like this. Yeah, and he went into the vowel stuff. Yes, and it was very... You see, the the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they had on the king's crown or queen's crown the five vowels, A-E-I-O-U. They almost knew the role of the vowels to create monarchies and private rulership. Right, right. They they understood the visual effect almost. They had the A-E-I-O-U on the crown. Right, right. So now these kids are getting rid of that again. 
Stimulate yeah, more not more non-literate identity. Right, right. You you know, uh, okay, Barbara, the way you yeah. said that's right. See, for the moment, that was significant to find out that they wouldn't have schools beyond your immediate neighborhood or your your uh, daughters or whatever. That's where you became that's aware right. of this big picture image, and that was an insight for you. And right. so that's what we're doing. You, 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 I couldn't have stopped you going, that's right. That's me. It's like trying to stop someone in the middle of an orgasm. I couldn't have stopped you at that point. But if you hadn't heard this, this point, this sharing, you wouldn't have heard it. Right. You know, this, this point. And you read, to me, I heard a registration of a new environment and its effects by you hearing it said back to you what you thought was just within your own little world. Right. Yeah, I didn't know they were all like that. I thought maybe that was just. Oh, no. Like, I don't have kids. I don't do texting. I don't do the cell phone. So I'm like a thousand years behind even knowing about this. That's why it's useful. That's why McClune would have people come in to find out what's going on. I mean, for me, I find, I didn't know this was going on, that the parents can't get the kids till today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, good. You too, then. Yeah, I no, I might inform. I'm like I'm I'm re, I'm off the grid basically here. Even though I, I, for the chemical body and some of the normal things, the TV body and chemical body issues, but I'm not off the grid on the chip body level. Right, that's the way I am too. I'm like, well, I ha, I'm I sort of because my sister has kids, my sis, brothers and sisters have kids, and I see the way that that goes down. That I know what's happening. I'm, I have a lot of friends with. Uh, kids that age and, and so you watch what's happening on that level but well I did you know that like Sheila pointed out she was marveling how the mothers can't get their kids because their mothers use cell phones did you know that fact had you seen that uh, you know I think basically parents haven't had control of their children for a couple generations now I mean my no, that's true. That's that. broader. But I'm asking about the particular, the new upscale, hyper version of it. They can't even get them on their phone. Right, right. No, no. Well, y- yes and no. I mean, you know, um, my sister happens to have a daughter who talks to her on the phone like 17,000 times a day. It's <laughs> kind of, he calls her up all the time. Yes, it's like that kind of relationship. But. You know, um, it, that's a form of twittering. That's a form right. of registering what you're doing right. in someone else's consciousness. Yes, yes. But if I want to call my niece, because I'm just Aunt Carol, do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like she blows me off every time. They all do, all of them, all my nieces and nephews do, and they're all about that same age in their early 20s. And anytime mm-hmm. I call them, and I think to myself, when I was that age, if an adult called me on the phone, I would get back to them right away because that yeah. was what you were, you know what I mean, that respect thing or whatever. They that was important. That. Adults right. are in the serious world. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Not anymore. No, we're like, it, it, it keeps going down the notch. Every <laughs> day. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, you know. Um, but Well, I'd say the, the larger dynamic is the chemical body gets, gets ghettoized and removed and marginalized more and more each notch. Yes, I think that that's true. Although and chemical body society, family relations, and all that, relatives right. and, that gets removed. But then removed. there's that other side that wants to 
clean water, no smoking, all, uh, you know, organic. You know, there's that other side. Yeah, you know what McClellan McClone explained that? He said um, the more we, we tidy up nature, we would pollute art. While we're busy polluting art, we're trying to tidy up nature. Now, art meant modern communication systems. That's all you say. Oh, sorry. <laughs> what did you say? That's all you say? I said, well, my son is playing yeah. on Xbox Live, and one of his friends online wants to know what state he lives in. And you said, that's all you play? Is that what you no, said? No, that's all you can say. I don't want him to say where we live. Oh, you're policing, policing over there. Yeah. Censorship right in Barbara's family. <laughs> well, he's addicted to the video games, and he's only eight. No, he's not addicted. He has a chip on him. He likes using it. Okay, then. That's, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a better way of thinking yeah. of it. Oh, okay, so back, what were we saying, Carol? The um, I had a oh, pattern the, there. You know, the organic... Oh yeah, yeah. So we're busy tight while we're busy trying to tidy up nature, we are polluting art. Now nature, Kaplan nature was a construct that literate man created. Actual primitives who lived in nature did not know there was nature as we know it because we put it in a visual picture frame. Right. So we're trying to clean that up and we're polluting the art, and the art was these new TV satellite communication environments, and they were, were just dumping them, the polluting the hell out of kids, dumping all this information on them at the age of two, so they're gray at three because they've taken in so much. We ignored that pollution while trying to fix up some arbitrary first nature kind of nature. And he said, because there was actual pollution happening invisibly, electronically, you know, this, all this stuff was coming in through electronic signals, that we knew that was a pollution, but we couldn't really focus on it, so we focused on cleaning up the physical air. Right. See, the reason smoking went out was nothing to do with the health value of this and that. It was the fact that we hallucinated into fixing up physical air because we knew, we knew that we were being polluted by air, but we didn't notice it was electronic air, information overload. Right. See, so that idea may sound preposterous to most people, most people but it has at least 50% truth in it. Yeah, no, yeah no, but they no. haven't cleaned up the air in Europe. They still smoke like chimneys over there. That's a different culture. That's a different sensory mix in relation to the electric effect. What they do, they don't want McDonald's. No, but they, they, they want to bet. France puts more into betting American culture McDonald's. They don't worry about smoking. They worry about the TV landscape or whatever McDonald's is for them. See, I got a point there, right? Yeah. My sister was telling me today that they're so... Um, protective of their culture and their language that they're having all these issues now because they're not allowed to use anything but a French word. So when they're like, trying to explain like laptop, they, she said there's no word for it. But laptop, yeah. American invention, she said. So you'll see like these things, these ads or whatever, and they're like describing this thing, but they're not allowed to use the word laptop. You know what I mean? That's a great story, Carol. This kind of like... You'd sit in the McClune Seminar, and you'd wait for some crazy personal experience, talking to somebody, saying this, that I wouldn't know about, and that illuminates what we're talking about so much, but we wait. We wait and wait five hours to get that incredible point. The stupid, you know, I know other cultures think Americans are nuts who, who are into organic food. They don't have that concept. What's organic? Right. You know, I mean, they're not health fanatics. Like, they don't worry about smoking. But we would consider them nuts about, but concerned about their fucking language. Right, right, right. 
See, so every culture is on a different sensory level. That's what a culture is. It's a definition, a limiting. See, that's what definition means, Carol. It's a, it's, a, it's a practical way of creating contrast so that you know that you exist. So every culture is really good at something, but that also is a flaw and leads to missing out on other dynamics. So we're moving into a flow where you can't be a culture anymore. You can't describe what the chip body person is. So this is why these kids, and that Friday video is very interesting. You know when you'd see footage of the African tribes and the, the little young people who dance around like robots? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's what, there's no private identity or anything. That's what that Friday video is like. All these little teenagers start of jumping in the car, fatically doing nothing, but just run around jumping around together. You know what I mean? There's no private identity there. That's very, that, that's very teenager, though. I, I mean, I, I don't... Yeah, well, they never had teenagers until radio came along. Really? Oh, yeah, kids went to school, and they couldn't speak, and they had to learn their lessons, and and they weren't meant to be uh, heard. Teenagers are the first young people that were heard in industrial societies. You know, back in pre-literate societies, different. We're talking about the silence imposed on kids uh, in the 1700-1800 period. Matter of fact, if they weren't working in mines, if they had some middle class or middle class thing, they, were, they prepared to be, to be married and prepared to be cultured. They learned the, the violin and piano and all that stuff to perform when they were an adult. Right. To, to meet the prince. So uh, compare that to the way kids live today. It's, it's, we're, we're more African in the sensory level than any uh, uh, of our great-grandparents were. Well, what these kids are doing to their bodies is right out of National Geographic. I look at my sister yeah. and we laugh. Yeah. I, I say, you know, my 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 sister's uh, daughter had a boyfriend with the, you know, the ears that right. were like right out of National <laughs> Geographic. Look at her. We used to look at pictures of that, you know, the National <laughs> Geographic. Where they and now our kids are doing this. But you know. yeah. You and know what that's called? Not, I think it's called scarification or scarification was the technical term yes, anthropologists had for it. And that's also really popular right now, too. Now, these, yeah. these were, I can't remember what these things are but called. But you understand, they're not, they're, they have no eyeball culture going on in the literate, limited liter, Literacy is very limiting. makes you focus on one simple level. So uh, the, the way the, um, what is the jumping around... They, what you see, they they chop up what you see. See, they the body, the the visual body is just one tiny fragment of these people. They live in ear culture and tactile culture, not what they see. So you you play with what you see. But in the Victorian culture, you didn't play with what you see because you were book culture. You were numbed and thought that what you saw was very significant, and you kept it real prim and proper. Right. Yeah, we're actually like at a 360 on the prim and proper level, right? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about all these kids that are staying—they're staying immature? I mean, they don't really mature, or they yeah, yeah, take responsibility. because that's—it's always the same phenomenon in all these cases. 
I just take the formula. The physical body is not important. It doesn't have to adapt to anything because it's a minor body, so I'm not even going to grow it up. It's, it's just an appendage. It's just dangling like a dangling parsable. But they're very keen on what they do on the Internet, and they got values and rules and judgments of how they are there in their chip body, mm-hmm. right? Right. And then they just nope. have this expectation that uh, society or their parents are always going to take care of them or someone's going to take care of them. Right. No, They're almost like not even aware of it. Right. They're not aware of the responsibilities that one right. had a couple of generations. They don't even know about that. And they don't understand why you object to it. What? They don't even understand why you make an oh, issue right. of <laughs> Which right. is strange that they don't even understand it. That's how far removed they are. See, that's, we're mutated. People worry about what genetic engineering is going to do to people or cloning. We are changing people over the last hundred years so rapidly that, there's, that it's mutation, science fiction mutation is going on right in front of us with the tools we give kids uh, Christmas presents for. You know, you give your kid a tweeter thing for Christmas, right? and then they fucking mutate. Right. That's true. That's true. So we're shifting with McClone. We shift the images that we're emphasizing. Why did monster movies happen in the 50s? Because it was a registration by the Japanese, and then the Americans liked it, because TV was mutating them. They didn't know why or how, but they felt it, and monster movies expressed that. Hmm. Some big thing came into our town and destroyed it. Well, that's what television did. It changed and American too, culture from outer space. Yeah, or alien, yeah. The UFO thing was another variation on that, another projection. Not to say that there is or isn't aliens, but the popularity of it uh, is there for a certain sensory uh, um, band-aid, a, an expression of an issue that's going on. And then those that were really interested in UFOs, particularly, they had a great period in the early 50s when there was movies about it, but they didn't know that the movies were being made for other reasons. And so by the late 50s, no one cared about the UFOs, didn't need that imagery. Now they needed hula hoops in the late 50s. The ones that were into whether we have a UFO or not became marginalized. Nobody cared about the issue anymore. Did McLuhan think that almost everything was a metaphor? For some oh, yeah. Metaphor was yeah. consciousness. You yeah. can't know. Like someone asked him, will there ever be silence? Which is an odd question. But anyways, will there ever be silence? And he said, objects are unobservable. Only relationships among objects are observable. Meaning if you take silence as a particular condition, it's not observable. It's in relation to something. Right. So there will never be anything of any definition because you only know one thing by it being compared to something else. Just like you know yourself when you're talking to someone in a conversation, you're judging how you're doing by how the effects are registered in their face. Or their body language. So you know yourself and how you're doing through another. That's the essence of metaphor, looking at one thing through another. Well, you know, color is like that completely. The color is... All experience is like that, Carol. Right. So why isolate color? All experience is metaphorical. Right, everything. And we don't mean the literate book metaphor. We're talking about the interactive process of being. See, metaphor, many people think, refers to a symbol in a poem. No, no consciousness no. is metaphorical. But there is no consciousness, says so-and-so. That's right, and that's true. That, it, consciousness would be an object that's observable, but one thing as an object is not observable. So consciousness is not observable. There's much of stuff said by you-know-who that is 
complimented by McLuhan. You can understand, you know who, when you know under when you understand McLuhan. Well, yeah. A lot of it, not all of it. Yeah, well, you know, but in the mortar part, the mortar part of uh, you 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 know whose presentation McLuhan he cracked the code of mortar. You know, he stood on the shoulders of many people that had got glimpses of it, and then he just happened to be in the last position to to see the whole view that everybody had contributed to. What's cracking the code of mortar? Uh, McLuhan. The language and the word. Yeah, about public language. Uh, Ion, uh, oop, you know who is here to point out the power of your own word creation, which is right. different from mortar. And anyway, so I, is the in, in those terms, I say that that McLuhan is an expert on the code of mortar. You see, in 1953, the genetic code was discovered by Crick and Watson. That same year, McLuhan went public with his media knowledge, which was the, the controlling factors in social behavior, known as communication devices, that control groups of people and crowds just like genes controlled individual bodies. Two levels of control. He must be like, he would have just gone crazy with this Facebook and stuff. He would have just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's really what he described would, yeah. you know. The and, Facebook? Uh, yeah, Facebook. It's like the oh, know, Facebook. One. I thought you said Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, everybody knows all these kids. I mean, there is no way that you are a kid today without that. Do you know what I mean? It's like no, not way. in this culture. Anyway. Yeah, like there's it's nothing about like me. I I choose not to be involved in it. You know, I don't want people knowing about my life like that, and I don't want to find anybody. I don't want anybody to find me. You know what I mean? Like, I'm looking at. Exactly. Yeah, but see, but that's because you're in New York and have ways to find things and interact with and have anonymity. These are, the majority of people are out in Madison, Wisconsin, you know, and all these little places and towns. Yeah, they're burbs. They got nothing going on. That's wonderful. They've got New York in their little hand in their computer. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's part of it. So I don't don't bring up yourself and, and bring in your preferences. It's not relevant. We're trying to look at the dynamics. You know what I mean? Like you say, you went on about how you, and I'm putting you down. I'm just saying it's not useful in this context to go in about your personal experience. Only bring up your personal experience if you tell us the ground and context and city and where you are. You know what I mean? Then it's interesting. It's a figure ground relationship. It's like we don't want opinions here. We want your experience in relation to grounds and different bodies or different environments. Like you telling us what they're doing in France, that's really valuable. That's got nothing to do with you. You just have to be the person who saw it. We don't need your opinion right. on it. We just need the data. Right? Right. I mean, that's an important fact. So... Does McLuhan have an ideal society in mind? Did he have an ideal society in mind or a, a certain way, no. path to go I, on? Or uh, He did. He, he was trying to create a, a more uh, harmonious balance among the different media environments, and he said the only way you solve the TV effect is turn it off for six months every now and then, have a media fast. He thought that might calm down the noise. But uh, as for getting to an uh, ideal situation, that would be an object that's unobservable, unexperienceable. Uh, 
he, he actually personally, as a Catholic, a converted Catholic, said that he's not interested in happiness. He was interested in suffering. And that was ah. the whole interesting thing. Ah, wow. And he wrote one of his books that the discovery of the 20th century was to use pain as a probe. He, he might have been referring to his personal situation. Because mm-hmm. happiness... It's exactly like you know who you know who yeah. develop create and create have contrast to know where you're at. He knew as we were going more and more into a numbed out ecstatic utopian by default society that pain was the only way to create an anti environment. When you live in a matrix tube, you uh, won't know any contrast unless it's programmed in there, so you don't have an anti environment. So he was interested in knowing who he was. So he saw that there was so much. You know, he goes way back. So the the people watching TV and stoned out on TV and media in the 1560s, he thought that they were, he could have seen them, I don't know, as doing Brave New World Soma. So he said the anti-environment to that, from my awareness, is to create some pain. So it was a good strategy. So how do you create pain? I don't know how he did it. <laughs> hmm. he, he, made, he, made, he, he made himself have pain by becoming famous and, and creating this crazy idea that led to a lot of criticism. Matter of fact, there was a conference on McLuhan in Italy last weekend, and one of the McLuhan experts said McLuhan was our modern Galileo. He was mistreated, abused, and ignored as much as Galileo was. And Galileo was put under house arrest. So McLuhan explored pain by taking sort of an essentially new academic topic and putting it out into the public. And know what he says to Woody Allen. You think my whole fallacy is wrong. Why does he call his work a fallacy? There's a lot about that that can be discussed, but it's an interesting statement. You think my fallacy is wrong. No, my fallacy is correct because it's the best fallacy a verbal statement, and ver- verbal statements are obsolete in a multimedia society, but as a verbal statement, it is fallacious, but it is the most appropriate thing that the failed tongue could say. <laughs> That's what he was telling that professor in that scene. Oh. Did he just take that from McLuhan? Yeah, he... no, McLuhan is in Woody Allen's uh, Annie Hall movie. Oh, he himself is? Yeah, if do you know you've probably seen the movie, right? Which one is it? Annie Hall Annie with Diane Keaton. Oh, Annie Hall. I don't know. I've seen parts of it. I don't like Woody Allen. Okay, so you would you and you know what? It's interesting how you don't like Woody Allen. Yet he, in 1971, around that period, he was considered the funniest guy ever for the baby boomers. But right. you're in that later generation, I guess, and his sensibility meant nothing. But anyways, yeah. Google McLuhan and Woody Allen YouTube and watch the scene. I won't tell. I won't tell you about it. It'll be a nice surprise. Note what McLuhan says to the stupid professor, and then send a question on Wednesday about it. If you're, if anything comes yeah, okay. up from it. Yeah, I can check that out. But he says, "You think?" He says to the senior professor, "You think my whole fallacy is wrong? How you got a job teaching anything is amazing." <laughs> That's what he says mm. to the to the. <laughs> To the you know humorous situation okay. that Woody Allen sets up, but he calls his work a fallacy, and that was in '77. And then I read the transcripts of a couple of speeches he gave in '78 and '79 to convocations to graduate students, and I I, under, I would take from the transcripts since he used that line that somebody in the audience sort of heckled him. So he says, "Oh, I see, we have someone who thinks my whole fallacy is wrong." Now, who would say that in academic life? They never would do that. But McLuhan had a good reason to do it. 
and we don't know what it is. Oh, I could go on for many hours, but I'm oh, not going to yeah. go. Well, that's another topic. Do that next week. Yeah, that is a good topic, though. I, I would like to hear what you had to say about what, what, why he. Yeah, hopefully, if we get Scott on next week, he's a good guy to do it with me and him together. Okay, good. I mean, we should almost have required reading, but then that sort of also doesn't really fit the thing. But no, there's no required reading. Right, We're just right. you. You just come here and explore your experience, right. like the fact that the French they, they can't they they got a problem. They can't preserve their language with this uh, new media that's coming at them. Right. The riot. Like when she started telling me that. And that's spoken in written language. France is one of the main, most concrete places of the Gutenberg galaxy, of that phrase. So much of industry came out of France and Napoleon and a certain kind of educational system right, and right. Uh, great culture, great book culture. It's That's their fundamentalism, is about uh, uh, their book learned, you know, speech is conditioned by printing press. That's what they're trying to preserve. They're very proud of that. That's why I have Paris in the first quadrant on my chart. Paris is the, was the was the New York of the world, you know, for right. a couple hundred years. Mm-hmm. It was. So what? Now Americans are not so they built on the only country built on the printing press. And France had all that agricultural stuff before. Before, but America is the only culture built on the printing press. But actually. It then developed kinetic culture, which is the extension of industry, extension of the movement of your muscles and feet. Think of machines as that way. That way. So then we moved into a software tactile culture, which is not the American sensibility. And America's been on the spot ever since, protecting what? Its flag, its image, its, its industrial image is really what patriotism is all about. So they have a different neurosis than uh, the French neurosis. Americans are not trying to preserve their language and their book culture. America is largely considered as an anti-intellectual culture, which that's the way it was in the 50s. Now with the kids being information addicts, I don't know if you can say that, even use that thing about American kids. But anyway, so the kinetic culture of America is what was uh, attacked by tactile television, the global effect of television and satellites. That's why America became, quote, an asshole, the ugly American. It was king for the kinetic industrial period, but then it was obsolesced by the new tactile sensibility, which is largely an Asian sensibility. Yeah, I was going to say, where do you think it? Where do you think it goes next? Went to China, a very tactile culture. Mm-hmm. Their cultural bias was resonant with the tactile effect of modern digital media. But how can you say that when most of the Chinese are in? in factories or on farms in rural areas. I mean, they're not all uh, high-tech or... It's not high-tech. It's the it's the sensibility of their chemical bodies. They're a tactile sensibility, traditionally. British and French are visual biased. Americans are kinetic biased. What is kinetic? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Moving in cars. The car is the image of American culture. It was. Mm-hmm. Moving, extending your kinetic space. Movies are a kinetic medium because there's a lot of movement of the imagery. And then rock and roll is a very kinetic music. Dancing. America's the most dancing culture in the world. Look at all the dances been, dance have been having the last hundred years. So it's a kinetic culture. And um, uh, Chinese are not that. So what are they? The closest we can come to is tactile. They understand the interval 
the resonant interval. Zen Buddhism is a doctrine of the interval. Anyways, there's a lot more to go into that, but I just will say the opening broad outlines. Yeah, save that for the new topic. And i got to yeah, go, Bob. It was a great one. to talk to okay. you guys. It was really, really, once again, wonderful. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Very good. And yeah, either Barbara was going to drop off, therefore I'll end up talking to myself, or uh, <laughs> Barbara will, might talk a little bit, but maybe not too much. I'll talk All a little right. bit. Okay, okay, you guys talk. I'll talk to you next Monday, hopefully. Okay, Carol. Okay. Is All it, right, see you. Good Thank night. You again. All right, okay. Night. You know what I could do, um, Barbara? Yeah. Uh, I could stop the recording so we could go into some things that I'm sure you'd like to talk about, you know, you know who. Yeah, and, okay, good. And uh, we can keep talking and not record it. <clears throat> so okay. let me, uh, I think I just hit star nine and it'll stop. No, I've got the other phone on, so I've got to disconnect that. I can't shut my phone off. I don't know what's wrong, but I can't shut my phone off. Hang on. Hours, but in case you wonder why. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to try to shut mine off. Here goes. Stop that. Now that's all off, and now it should bing.